Good morning and welcome back to the other faces. Welcome to Dance of Dragons. This is Scraps and Scrolls part 14. We are rushing towards the end and if you need any clearer sign, we've got a great collection of four chapters. Four huge, exciting chapters just to make sure you're aware of that. Hello, I am Sir Buckley. I am your resident green person here on the aisle, ready to take you through this exciting chunk we've got here. I thank you all so much for going back and saying hello and interacting as always. It's lovely to hear from you. It's lovely for you to be here. I know you've been catching up with History of Westeros there on the Sundays. There's still a week ahead. I think that'll last for at least another week, but don't worry, we will get there eventually. I promise you, I couldn't be working any harder with this podcast, and I think you might see the evidence of that because today, if anything, it's going to be a big discussion, a long, long episode. If this doesn't break the Isle of Faces record for longest episode, I'm going to have to eat my own hat because, well, it certainly seems like it's going to. We're going to have it all really here on Art Today. We're going to have the frills, we're going to have some spills, we're going to have emotion, and as you always really like, I know you do, I'm going to be swearing. So look forward to that. I'm happy to tell you I am coming from an aisle for the first time ever, actually. It is a snowy aisle, a snowy England. We haven't had it since I've started this podcast, but no, yesterday, full on snow day. It all appeared in the night, and it was Princess Zelda's first sighting of the snow because she's only a puppy. So you know, here on the Isle of Faces, me and Lady Buckley had a whale of a time showing her the snow, having a bit of a play and a bit of a snowball fight. That was lovely to have. That was a good old day, which we're much in need of in these current times, of course. So that was wonderful. Got some good pictures of puppy, got some good pictures of snowy landscapes that we can compare to our current northern situation. Got a picture of the good old Winterfell model I've got in the snow. That's cool. I'll share that at some point. You know, normally I'm all about the solar energy, but we get snow here so rarely. Again, free here's. It brings its own type of excitement. Besides, yesterday, while it might have looked all northern and cloudy, today, snow is still on the ground, but we've got blue sky as well, so you know I've really got the energy ready for this episode, which is, again, sorely needed. I'll make sure I share those pictures for you. You'll like them, trust me. Now, I've already mentioned how much we've got to cover today, so I'm going to keep this intro fairly short. I do quickly want to just remind you that I was recently lucky enough to be invited back on to Radio Restaurants with Lady Gwen and Yoke Boy. So of course my extreme thanks to those guys for having me back on. The subject this time was Dawn, specifically Aereo Hotar and what's going on with him and Obara and Darkstar and Balon Swan. So I was very, very lucky because you know I love that Dawn storyline and talking about Sand Snakes and stuff like that. It might be you were there on the live stream on the day, so if you were, thank you very much, that's really appreciated. You can always go back and listen to the podcast version, or just look it up on YouTube. Of course, podcast version, you don't get to see how crazily long my hair has got, or my cool Aya t-shirt, but you do still get to listen to Lady Gwen and Yoke Boy, which is what really matters, so either option is good. I give my thanks to those guys again, I look forward to returning. I know I did mention last week, but I just wanted to remind you, because always so cool to be invited on. And while I'm giving thanks, well, you know, it's time, I've already waited far too long, have to give thanks to the wonderful patrons that keep this podcast going. I know Sun and Snow, they're a big part of it, but it just wouldn't be possible without you. So as always, my thanks to all patrons, but specifically I want to highlight Aegon the Sixth, Lord Commander Naaman Darklin, KM, and our wonderful Archmaester June, healer of the Lesser Poxes. Your skills and your efforts are needed more than ever right now, Archmaester June and all your colleagues, so a big, big thanks to you. And actually, I'm going to expend some extra thanks this week, because, you know, I always say every episode... We'd love to hear from you, here's how you can do it, get in touch, etc, etc. Well, this week, this past couple of weeks, actually, people have really been taking that to heart. I've had a lot of messages and a lot of uh, emails or whatever it might be from patrons just having a chat. Sometimes about a particular episode, sometimes about the podcast in general, sometimes about nothing like that. Just a general friendly chat. And you know, I absolutely adore that. I love it. So I want to give some extra thanks, some extra notification to these people that have been making that effort. 
So I'm going to do that here. So here's some extra thanks to Glenn T, again to Lord Commander Namian Darklin, to Luke R, to Devorah L, sent a really, really touching, lovely message, to Simia C, I hope I'm doing okay with pronunciation there, to Artist Major June, again, tumbling up, wonderful, and to some really lovely people over in the History of Westeros Facebook group. Not a Facebooker myself really anymore, but I did take a quick glance on a recommendation, and there were some really lovely things being said there. So my thanks to all, truly, I said this to, especially to Devorah L, I can't tell you how much that means to me when I'm going to bed at three o'clock and getting up at five o'clock just to do some extra editing and get all these podcasts ready for you. This really helps. And I can't tell you, I really can't get across how appreciated all that is. So thank you. Thank you all. doesn't matter if you're getting in touch or not. I still appreciate you out there, especially all of you who are. It really means a lot to me. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I've already started going on too long and we've got all these things to cover. So let's realign, let's refocus here. What are we actually doing today? Get on with it, explain please. Okay, I'll tell you, we've got four chapters today, of course. We're going to begin with the slow burn-ish of Daenerys 8, where we're going to see what we see normally, really, build up. Build up of disappointment, build up of unhappiness as the aftermath of Danny's wedding and the peace that she's forged is really, really shoved in her face and she has to consider her place in life, her place in marine, what her future actually looks like and even more interestingly, she just so happens to go back and see her dragons. You know we like that. That's Danny 8, that's first. Then we get into the thrill section because we have, kind of confusingly, Theon 1, which is also Theon 7 which is also Theon's last chapter. So we have a major goodbye today, but we almost don't even get to focus on that because it's the big heist chapter. It's getting out of Winterfell. Well, I'm going to let you wait and see, but the heartbeats, they're going to be pounding. They're going to be coming in that chapter, as will the goose pimples, as will the tears. I'm not going to mess you around here, fair warning, as will the swearing. That is a big old chapter. Then we're going to go back to Marine. We're doing double Danny duty this week. For Danny 9 and the Frills, I'm going to be honest, they don't take a rest. Not in that chapter. Where we're headed to Daznak's pit, we get to see all the fights, we get to see poison locusts, and then we get to see something we've been waiting for for pretty much the whole series. I think you know to whom I refer. Heartbeats aren't going to stop for that. Finally, we'll head back to the wall. We're heading to John 11, which again is a bit more of a slow burn, but to be honest, it's no less weighty as John strikes a deal with Tormund Giant's Bane and then all the tension in the world is focused on him telling that to the people back on his side of the wall. And we get to see pretty much a clear glimpse of what is coming for Jon Snow. So as you can tell, very, very important, thrilling, dramatic, cinematic chapters to go through today. I'm not sure my voice is going to stand up. I'm not sure your ears are going to last. I think we're all going to need it, especially with the high emotion coming today. So let us delay no longer. Again, thank you for coming. Thank you for getting in touch or supporting the podcast, whoever you do, whether that's patrons or retreats or whatever it might be. Thank you to Radio Restros for having me on again. Let's get going with these four chapters. Let's use this rare snow energy here on the other faces today. Let's get going with Danny 8. I'll be up front with you here if I'm going to be honest. Normally, do a little intro for each of these chapters. We might talk about the kind of overarching theme. We'll just do a little round of what we're going to see. I'm going to kind of leave that for today because if I'm being straight up, there's enough to talk about in the actual content this time around. The Google Doc that I've made for this episode, and those notes don't include that kind of overall roundup. I normally just do that off the fly. That on its own, just the pure content of the chapters, was 35,000 words, 61 pages. So we've got a great chance to crack the other faces record for longest podcast today, which makes sense for the chapters we've got in all fairness. So you're going to have to listen to me enough. So I'm not going to completely overdo it with the intros and the themes and stuff. We've got enough to talk about, but I will still do it a little bit because I just can't help myself clearly. 
In terms of the structure and the sequencing, as I mentioned, we have two Danny chapters today, eight and nine. This is the closest that Danny ever has two chapters in this book. It's actually the closest Danny ever has two chapters. I thought we might have had this already at the end of Game of Thrones. She does come close. There is one point between Daenerys 7 and 8 in Game of Thrones that has a two chapter gaps. But this is the highest frequency we ever get. And that is pretty much intentional from George because this chapter here, number 8, is clearly meant to work in conjunction with number 9. This is the build-up. This is the setting of seeds. Not that we don't have plenty of that already. But this is a direct knock-on of the building of tension and really lowering Danny's self-viewpoint of what's going on, her self-esteem, just how she feels, as if she hasn't felt rubbish enough through this book already. We're really going to double down on that. We're going to have the revisiting of certain themes, just to talk about some Game of Thrones there. They're going to link very, very heavily in the event, the big event that we all know is coming in number nine later. I know we want to get to that one. And it's obviously also just a technique for increasing tension. We have that much Danny that quickly. We can't wait. That's how important this thing is. That's how big the build-up, how quick the pressure release. As for what we're actually going to get in this chapter here, which I will say, technically, yes, you probably could have done without if you really wanted to. There's not too much in the plot of this chapter that really strictly needs to happen. It won't all fall apart without it, at least so far as we know. You never can quite tell the Song of Ice and Fire, seeing as we don't have wins yet, but as far as we know, there's nothing really, really that we needed to see. Maybe a little bit at the end with Quentin, maybe. But I think that just adds into my point about it being a supplementary chapter, one that is supposed to work in conjunction with and to support and embiggen Daenerys 9. What we do actually have in this chapter is Daenerys having kind of one last chance to turn away from how things are going for her city. True, she's already married, but there's, there is certain options. We're going to look at that marriage and see what she's gained. She's going to kind of do a totting up and see, was this actually all worth it? What has happened now on the other side? What does the new marine look like? What does my new life look like? Am I happy with the result? And if not, can I put up with the kind of, well, what do I have to pay for this piece that's supposedly been given and all these benefits that, that she supposedly got, which we'll analyse as we go through the chapter. Is she willing to pay that price? Or is she willing to pay the price for her people? Which is a discussion we've had lots and lots of times. We're going to have that really focused on now. Now that's all the, the beginning of the chapter. Well, again, it's very melancholy. It's very hard for us to read, for Danny giving all this up. And we're thinking, no, this, this isn't the victory we want. And then we'll move on to more of a revisit of her dragon theme that huge emotional problem that we dealt with at the beginning of her arc but has taken a back seat it must be said because she's got so much else going on so like i said we're linking back to the, that end of game of thrones as well as all of her books since and we're really bringing that back up just in time for again the big event later and that is going to tie in with quentin as well we're really going to bring him into the fold he's going to have another really really big moment of him personally one that's going to have big knock-on consequences after danny nine later in the book when he gets his own pov back so we're looking forward to that as well and like i say well i should probably just shut up and get on with it because even this one which you could probably say is the least important chapter we're going to have today if i might be so bold you could easily argue against that there's enough to be getting on with so we're going to dive right into the text right now and if i can cast your mind back to last week to part 13 when we left off uh, uh, castle black alice Carstark's wedding feast we've actually got some chapter sequencing right from the off because if castle black is having a pie of all places then surely marine can too although this time it's not a wedding feast even if it does kind of appear like one although well i suppose it is in a way i guess because these are actually peace talks or their celebrations with the yunkish and that only came about because of that wedding and that great 
great sacrifice that Danny made. So, okay. And that's the kind of follow-up we want. Obviously, we ended last time with the wedding. So now we want to see, okay, well, how does she feel about this? What are the knock-on effects? Has it all worked? Has something happened? We're very, very keen to see. And at the beginning, it's shown to be, yes, it has worked and everybody's happy. Of course, as we would suspect, there's one unhappy person here at this party. It's Daenerys. We're already split by half thinking, well, they are here. The Yonkers have arrived. The peace was agreed on. So the wedding was worth it, if you want to talk in black and white terms. But then, of course, we're savvy readers now. And we're also wondering how that might be proven wrong. Because, of course, bound to go wrong, isn't it? We know these books. How will the Yonkers go back on their word? What will be the small print? Or how will they try and exploit Danny as Galaza Galer has already tried with her prior to the wedding, before it even all went down? We've been expecting these things for a long, long time, ever since the wedding was first suggested possibly even before that so now we want to see the evidence now that they've actually got what they want now that they've won all through the arc it's just been bad news of them so we're pretty wary at any situation presented as good to us and that's all without thinking about how his dar zolarak might change now that he and danny have signed on the dotted line and he's got what he wants so will our suspicions about him now be confirmed and it's a strong bet that they will. Just to prove that we're completely correct in our guesses here here's the first quote of the day for you i hate this thought daenerys targaryen how did this happen? I am drinking and smiling with men I'd sooner flay. So boom, there you go. We were looking for that feeling of hidden negativity and Danny's given it to us right here at the beginning. This idea that it will turn out bad, that this is still not really what she wants, even if it does give what she needs, which still wasn't really confirmed, is going to sting for her, it's going to rankle, and it makes her feel dirty and used and false, and she's had enough of falsehood in this city, we've covered that plenty as well, so we hate that feeling for her, and we think it's likely going to manifest in one way or another, we might think it's this chapter, we're going to find out actually it's the next one. And that is not all, there is further excitement just from this first paragraph, when it ends with the fact that this celebration is going to happen in the fighting pits. We're in the Great Pyramid right now, but we're going to move on to the fighting mix later for further celebration, and that means we're expecting to see Tyrion and Penny. So again, we might think that could be this chapter, it could be next time. We'll find out it will actually be next time. But it brings a huge load of expectation and theories with it, because we're still thinking, is this going to be the moment our two great worlds collide, our two parts of the Triforce? And anytime that possibility is brought up, we're of course very, very hungry to see it and see how that's going to happen. In the meantime, We've got a very different type of feast going on to what we normally get. So George is obviously going to take the opportunity to describe that at length. But what we're really interested in is Danny's continued unfulfillment. She repeats, again, what we've said already. This is it. This was the goal, sure, but it still tastes like defeat. So really just honing in on her feeling alone and despondent in the middle of what is supposed to be a celebration and is for many people. It's just the people we don't like. And from the off, just to prove that, we have Hisdar being sickly sweet and onside with the Yunkish as we would expect. He's saying all will be fine soon, the Yunkai will leave and our own situation has already massively improved. He's very much a politician, his day. He knows how to talk, he knows how to spin, and actually what we can see is he's got no interest in Danny's actual feelings about this and why it feels so rotten to it, because he doesn't care. I mean, you can see that. Even if he doesn't come right out and say it, we know that truth. But again, we're already seeing the small print stuff, the Yunkai just being dicks about it because they can, and Danny is noting what his dart is not. The fact that the warships still remain to intimidate or even act, if things get stepped out of line, the siege lines are still out there, all the soldiers, all the war things, all that stuff we talked about in the last two in chapter, they're still there. So let's not rush ahead here, Star, even however positive you want to be. And in fact, we reference that Tyrion chapter now because the worst part for Danny is the fact that the young Kish have opened up a slave market right in front of her, just outside. The one, like I say, we've already visited just for some more sequencing. It was well known that a big part of this deal was there was to be no more slavery here. And, okay, 
No, it's not here because it's just outside the city. That's how they're playing the technicalities as his da supports and enables. But like I say, it's just another example of them being dicks. They're acting in bad faith and they're just outright disrespecting Daenerys for all the reasons we've mentioned many, many times before. They really want to rub it in her face. And that's another key theme of this chapter and the next. Just really, there's no way to say it, just rubbing it in her face that they've won and she's lost and their way of life will continue for everything she's done. They want to tear it down as much as possible. Daenerys has a quote that says basically exactly that. She says, they are mocking me to my face, making a show of how powerless I am to stop them. So there we go. Daenerys and us are of one mind. And I will just include this one quick note. When she's talking about this slave market, she says they've opened it within sight of my walls, whereas Hisdar says outside our walls, sweet queen. So that's just worth noting that he's already trying to take a lot of ownership of Marine and whatever he can get. At least he didn't say my, I guess, as well. He said ah, but still, that's worth just keeping a tab on. So Danny is making these points and saying how she's feeling and his dad just keeps waving it off. He basically just advises her to be as passive as possible. Let them do whatever and then they'll be gone and you don't have to worry, it's his advice. And that just makes it even more vexing for Danny. Her frustration is seething here as his dad is as equal in dismissing the Yunkai as he is of actually supporting them. They are lingering to annoy her, not just with what we've already discussed, but there's also this huge exchange with the Dothraki that's supposedly coming, again within sight of her, just to piss her off. And this time, when she brings that up, his dar actually just shrugs. He does not care. He's got his. So he doesn't care how she feels. He's just going to turn to basically put up with it, be quiet if he could be, and that's as much time as he's going to give you. Because again, he's supporting it in terms of the deals that will be made. And he's really just the ultimate foil. He's the one we're always going to hate because of these opinions, because of things he's going to do later. We all hate him anyway, don't we? He's an op. So Danny just broods on her own and her mood grows slowly darker. She thinks specifically of the unfairness of them all feasting here while people outside are sold like items as we again saw via Tyrion's chapter. So let's give props to her for not dwelling on her own fairness and what's happening to her but the plight of her people. Do we really expect anything less? Of course this is Daenerys. We love her for exactly that reason. Although I will say that the thoughts she's having here about the highborn or the nobility eating well while other people or either starving or being sold off. That does speak to the themes that we've mentioned recently, like with Theon, we've mentioned them lots of times before with Tyrion, about the difference in food and how that's a great symbol for the difference in classes and how they're treated. So that's just another addition into that. But what we really get here on this second page I think we're on now is that Danny just doesn't want any part of it. She doesn't want to be included with any of this because it feels wrong. So not only is she retreating in terms of not talking and just being silent and kind of shrinking herself, She's also deferring to his stuff for any public stuff as she's already been doing a little bit out in the city. We saw that in her last couple of chapters because she's been with Dario before. So she's just let his get on with it. She continues to do that now, even without Dario. And of course, that is what his wants. He wants to be seen as the ruler and not just her spouse. He wants to make that extra grasp for power. So that's great. That's part of his plan. She keeps feeling worse. She shrinks. She retreats into the shadows. He gets to show off and be the king, basically. Fits right into his plan. But it makes us feel worse and worse about what Danny's going through because we hate seeing her like that. We hate seeing her diminished in any way. It is not deserved, is it? The concentration around her is all on the fights that are soon to come in the pits, apparently on the very next day, as we hear all the big names being mentioned. Once we've heard before, like Kraz and the Spotted Cat, and you know the type. I think we've come across basically all of them already. Early in Danny's arc, if you remember, when they came with his star to ask for the pit reopening, so they've got what they want. And some will enter the spotlight now, they'll enter the plot a little bit more, as his star's little group of chums and benefactors, they're going to kind of be his inner circle once Danny leaves. Kraz will probably stand out the most to her, because... 
We know what's coming between him and Barristan, but we have to wait quite a while for that yet. Still, some of them do have other notable parts to come as well. Probably the biggest one is Barsina Blackhair. We're going to see that one later on with her unfortunate interaction with the boar down in the fighting pits. Just to again tie us back to Game of Thrones a little bit there, Daniel actually mentioned that herself, so we'll save that for later on today. The spotted cat, like I said, as mentioned, he's going to be part of that kind of ruling council. He'll argue to kill Jairus and Archibald after Quentin's unfortunate accident. The same can be said for Gohor the Giant, he's going to be on that council. Later on in Winds, he's going to lead the pit fighters in the battle for Marine. And we have Balakwo Bonebreaker as well. He would have fought the giant if all had gone to plan in the pits. We'll see what later. But while that's all very exciting for everyone else, talking, getting ready for these big fights on the next day, for Danny, there is no excitement. Only the thought of blood. Only the thought of death. And this ultimate representation of just the opposite of what she wanted. She was supposed to stop the death and the blood and the slavery. And now she's got one of its greatest uh, representations, its greatest consequences happening again in the fighting pits. The thing that she really didn't want to reopen. The thing that she's really dead against. Again, just to rub it in her face. So it's not good. And we're going to see uh, throughout this chapter and the next just how badly this specific event, these fights, really do go up against everything she stands for. And we get some evidence of that now because thinking of these fights takes her right back to the names of women from her past. Women she was unable to protect and who have died due in part to her women like Dorea or Quaro or Erea just to make myself say that name again even Hosea from earlier in this book with Drogon of course I think that's a really big sign that those names are brought up specifically because again we know the scars that have left on Danny's soul those particular women will always hit hard for her we've always known that so for them to be brought up now that's just extra tough and I think it really does say the kind of pain she's going through and how again this death for no reason this death for entertainment of all things this death of many people who are either out and out slaves or have been cajoled through slavery into it or whatever it might be is just the opposite the most anti-danny thing she can think of and she does try to reason with herself here and think kind of okay well a few is better than the many which would have been the other choice especially when some of those few are so willing like we've just seen with those names that we just mentioned but it's still death and it's still indirectly her fault so again it rankles she does not like it we have this quote here this is the price of peace i pay it willingly if I look back, I am lost. So here comes that mantra, the one we're going to get a lot in her remaining chapters. That one that speaks to kind of trying to stave off self-doubt and just trying to commit to it and do the right choice, even though you're never sure what the right choice is. It's a very, very telling mantra. That's why it has to be repeated by her so often. And this one in this context is, again, just to try and convince herself that she's doing the right thing, that she has to keep going for it. She has to go through or changing her mind or inaction would actually be worse. So she's trying to say, well, this is the lesser of the evils that I have to choose from. Now, we can argue that. We could argue that till the cows come home. But for her, this is all she's got. So she's got to go for it. And maybe that'll make her feel a bit better about it. We know, probably not. And eventually, we'll likely see that Danny will find out she can turn back and not get lost. In fact, Quaif has advised her to do just that. Now that's probably more about focusing on the Targaryen side of herself, but it will come in a variety of ways, some more physical as well. That's what we're thinking in Winds anyway. That's what we might discover towards the end of this chapter and towards the end of this arc. Daenerys now takes the opportunity to look upon her new supposed allies and we get the sense of a link with Tyrion now and Quentin because he did the same thing with these people. So that builds up the excitement of their meeting, Tyrion I'm talking about, but just all of them and kind of interlinking together this whole Myrony's arc getting tighter and tighter. Daenerys is not impressed with what she sees. These people, they look rubbish, both physically and spiritually, as if they've been corrupted from within and we know this to be a case of the cover absolutely being representative of the book. 
They look that way because they are corrupt. They are withering. They are done. That would be a big, big part of Danny's overall experience of this place. It's just done. And she needs to get away from it. That's what the overall message we get. And again, like Tyrion, while she's looking around, she singles out the cell swords. She sees the tattered prince, a man who will unknowingly have a large effect on her life just yet. She sees Gylo Regan of the Long Lances. Now, he hasn't come up in any big way, but he easily could during wins. And Bloodbeard from the Company of the Cat. He gets mentioned. He gets highlighted. Which makes sense because he'll also have a bigger part to play as we go now through the book. He's moving into that section really of his arc where he's going to be important. And we can probably guess that given that we get a very specific description of him. We think that George is pointing him out to us for a purpose. We'll see why that is later on. Unfortunately as well, among these cell swords, again like Tyrion, is Brown Ben Plum. Here again to rub it in Danny's face. The fact that he got away with it and got one over on her and all those other things. And before we explore that specific plane, we'll have a chance for that later. We instead look at how his being here, Brown Ben's being here, means that Darion Harris cannot be present. For nothing that Danny could do would stop him from getting revenge upon Danny's betrayer. So we have to admit we do like that part of Dario because we'd likely like to give Brown Ben a bit of a kick as well. And that just adds to the further evidence that shows that this is not a happy trust between the Yunkai and Danny here. It's not all roses. No, not at all. For example, we have this large number of hostage exchanges. Again, sequencing because we had that last week with Jamie. Here's a quote for you. To balance the three Yunkish nobles and four sellsword captains, Marine sent seven of his own out to the siege camp. His dad's sister, two of his cousins, Danny's blood rider, Jogo, her admiral, Grolio, the Unsullied Captain Hero, and Jaro Naharis. Oh dear, that's big news for rereaders because we know they're not coming back, for the majority anyway. Grolio definitely is not, unfortunately. Maybe the others may have a chance with. So that's another mark of the awaited betrayal. That just has us wondering what could be lost here. Even in the interim, physically losing them, being apart from them, is a big deal. Grolio, big part of Danny's success. Hero, and especially Jogo, obviously being her blood rider. They're important to her in terms of their actual uses and positions, but also emotionally, like I said, especially for Jogo. And to say nothing of Dario himself, we know what he's worth to her, even if we might wish it might not be that way. We know his worth to her over the last couple of Danny chapters. That's another setup for the storylines that we're going to see in Barristan, so we'll leave most of that talk for then. We'll instead focus now on Dario, because it is a, a big deal for Danny to willingly give up Dario and Harris. Now, was it specifically requested that he was included, or did she volunteer the name to get him away? Would maybe if his dad asked the Yunkai to request to get Dario again out of his way? It seems quite likely that could have easily happened. But the most important part is that Danny is waving goodbye to the only thing that has made her happy of late, even if he does bring plenty of problems with him as well. The only part of him left behind, he mentions here, is his twin swords, his girls, he calls them, the ones we've mentioned before. He leaves them with Daenerys, and I wonder actually, I wonder where they are now, because I don't think they ever get mentioned again. Danny He's obviously not got them with her when she leaves Marine, so I wonder if they're going to turn up in the future. Maybe when she eventually comes back and hopefully leaves Marine, she'll take them with her as a memento and a warning against her former mistakes in Dario. In the end, she made this choice to include him, or to agree to include him, or whatever it might be, to keep him safe, even if it seems like the opposite, sending him off into the enemy camp. But she believes if she hadn't, the situation simply would have boiled over at some point, because that's just Dario's nature. He's too affected by these new circumstances, even if it's more a matter of bruised pride than it is caring about Daenerys, but still. It seems like it's just up to her to rise above it, to be the only grown-up in the world and try and avoid conflict for once, despite her actually being the youngest here, really. Just goes to show how good she is, but we have another quote here just to keep up with this theme. Dario was war and woe. Henceforth, she must keep him out of her bed, out of her heart, and out of her. If he did not betray her, he would master her. She did not know which of those she feared the most. So she really is between a rock and a hard place, because, okay, yes, Dario is war and woe, but his dar is probably just as much woe, 
it just looked a bit better on the surface but it's still not what she really wants not by any stretch and she details for us here how dario's rage has increased of late we already saw his tantrums in the lead up to the wedding but now he's lashing out at everything and anything the deal with the tattered prince was even more deceiving than he thought so he's angry about that and danny considers him a ticking time bomb in two ways either he personally makes a mistake at court which we've already kind of seen before barrison had to stop him then and threatens all that they've built in this piece or Danny is the one who makes the mistake by letting him back in and again it all comes crumbling down. So she must make the choice to actively remove that one joy, her one escape. And I think it's important that it can't even be taken from her. She has to volunteer it or at least agree to it. It's essentially a smaller version of what she did with the dragons. Remove the weakness, remove the danger, however it might be worse for her. Because it might save other people's lives. And it also might be for their best interest, their safety, both of the dragons and Dario, as we mentioned. So I think that really sells what's going on in her mind at the moment. We do also have this important note of other windblown deserters then being imprisoned in the pyramid, which sets up Quentin's later storyline and somewhat we'll get later in this chapter as well, so just bear that in mind. We also learn that Skahaz has been removed from office, which is actually probably a much bigger deal from Dario not being here. His dart wasted mere seconds before moving to secure his own safety and police force after their wedding, at the same time nullifying the force that could be best used to oppose him. So it's pretty clever political stuff here. He's also, though, aside from that, just being petty personally. This is a personal rivalry based on the old conflicts between Hisdar and Skahaz's houses. So we get even more chapter sequencing back to Jamie because this seems pretty similar to what we spoke of in Bracken versus Blackwood. And note that Danny did not do this firing of Skahaz, that was Hisdar. Now it doesn't seem like she kicked up a fuss at it, but it also doesn't seem like she was a major part of the decision either. She basically has decided for now that it's best not to rock the boat and she's just going to let these huge changes go by without comment, which is pretty damn worrying. Again, there's that feeling of her shrinking into the shadows letting his dad do whatever he wants he becomes more important publicly and privately he gains all these power points these rocks to stand on and it's, it's, not, it's not good is it this is a big deal it's a big indicator of his dad basically having a larger slice of the ruling pie a larger one than he's supposed to he's already swinging his dick around he's already making it known that he can make big personnel decisions he can fire people from these important places upon the council which is also essentially a change in, in policy and everything else they're going to go for it says he's as much as in charge as danny is and that's another indicator of things to come so this really stands out to us how much more will we change now how many more ways will his that abuse his power while danny is to push back a few more rows each time and not only that he's putting his own family members in sky has his place so the nepotism or the cronyism is so strong we might as well be talking about the government of the united kingdom right now hmm yeah, I, I won't go into that because that'll take all day. Again, it's Hisdar taking advantage. Danny has not been asked on this new appointment to replace Skahaz, even though it's her city. She's the queen. He's supposed to be the spouse, this, the add-on. But this is how it's really going to be. It's almost Cersei-like, really, to look at it. He's filling the government with his yes-men and his best buddies. We've already mentioned the pit fighters and them kind of getting this big promotion. And Danny just can't summon up the fight within her. It's just not worth it to her. She feels too bad. And we can envision this type of thing just happening over and over again because of her spirit being so beaten down. It does leave us to wonder what has become of Skahaz then, because he was a passionate man with a lot of resources, and he doesn't seem like the type to just take this line down and say, okay, fair cop, and then off he goes into retirement. We've discussed before how he's more than willing to take a violent route for what he believes is the greater good, so will we see some retribution from him now? Is he going to strike back, whether that be at Hisdar or at Danny for letting this happen? We don't know. Rereaders know he's far from gone from the ruling scene, and is absolutely not giving it up. If anything, Hisdar being king 
puts him at his most motivated and we've got plenty of influence left to see from him to give to Marine again in those Barry chapters. We're getting so much build up for those now here in these last few that we get from Danny. We have a quick note here of Danny insisting the poor get the leftovers of the feast because again she's great and it seems like such a small thing that she can do compared with her previous deeds but it's better than nothing. And note that she calls it gluttony, what these nobles and masters are up to here. It's more than they need, it's taking advantage, it's, it's just being rubbish in all facets of life and it's another reminder that she hates all of this. And there's more annoyance and more brandishing in Danny's face when the slaves are brought in as entertainment. They are allowed to do so under the rules in exchange for not imprisoning any of the slaves already freed, which is obviously not something Danny would have allowed anyway, so that doesn't really seem like a bonus, does it? And obviously, Danny does not like this, but again, here's Dari's on hand to persuade her it's okay, it's don't worry about it, chill out. And you can see how the Yunkai have really just installed a kind of cotton wool barrier to placate Danny in his dar and just keep her from making too much fuss. Every time she sees something she doesn't want or she wants to complain or do something, his dar's just there to dampen her. So really we can say that they and Hisdar have won. Danny, their great enemy, this person who came in and changed their entire structure and really messed everything up for them, has been nullified and removed. And the taste of that knowledge is as foul in our mouths as it is hers. Everything seems like an insult, and it likely is probably, including this tumbler's pyramid with a girl on top. Danny suspects that, and we have to agree. The Yunkai do see her as a, a foolish little girl, an annoyance, like we say, that they've now found a babysitter for in Hisdar. That's his role. That's why they're going to support him, allow him to be king, because it just takes out the difficulty for them. This is the path of least resistance. This is the easier way of sorting her out. That's basically what they're saying. Instead of all the bother of war, because even though they're confident they could have won that still, wars are expensive. So why bother? They get to keep more of their money this way if Danny is kept as an empty figurehead, but they'll take any chance to remind her of how they view her and how they've won. And now his dart almost seems to take them on a victory lap when they all go out onto the lower terrace to survey the city that is Danny's by name, but which they consider themselves to have won. And that's when the rubbing in the face gets even worse somehow, as, as though we've not had enough of it already, when Daenerys properly re-meets Brown Ben Plum. Now we know how painful that loss was for Daenerys. We were there at the moment of discovery. We've discussed it plenty of times. In this world of vipers, she genuinely thought she'd found a friend. And it's one of the worst pains, we all know the truth of this, to discover that she was wrong. Not only that, it reopened the wound of Sir Jorah if we're going to talk about betrayals, and it makes her worry about future betrayals as well. It was bad news about losing an ally that she really needed and felt tipped the war in her enemy's favour, and she felt foolish about getting played, especially with those extra steps he took to milk whatever he could out of the situation. It was a horrible, horrible moment for Daenerys that broke her heart and led to her basically folding on the whole situation with the Astapori and eventually the wedding as well. And that wasn't that long ago, so it's still very, very raw for her, especially now when he comes sauntering back in, acting like it was just business, and the taste in her mouth and ours becomes even worse. Again, that is one of the worst pains, isn't it? To think you've got a friend, find out you're wrong, this is something most of us can relate to, and it's just awful, awful all around. Because again, she trusted this man, and she trusted him beyond the employer-employee-slash-queen subject relationship. She actually cared for him. He used her, but he gets to live and walk around in her city. So that's someone else who's won instead of her. And that does not seem like justice. And we have to agree with that assessment. Even if we can see all the reasons why it happened and some of the mistakes Danny might have made along the way, it still just does not sit right with us. We're on the side of Danny and all the good she brings to the world. So we hate anyone who gets in the way of that, but we hate those who hurt her personally even more. When Daenerys names him a betrayer, Ben puts his hands up. This is just how it's done, he says. The choice was win or lose, and how many would have chosen opposite to him, really? He also says he put the choice to his men, and they voted. 
Now, do we believe him in this? Maybe it's true, but even if it is, he would still have been the one to bring the option to them when he didn't have to. He would have made that vote a reality. And then again, as we spoke about last week with Jonas Bracken, Ben would have been considering how many men he might have been sending to their deaths fighting for Danny. So we can argue how much that played into his decision, the fight to save lives, or perhaps being aware of a possible mutiny within his own ranks by sending them into a clear loss. It's a very complicated discussion on how much is truly owed by a sellsword contract. How much is too much? What takes them past that contract's honour if they're blatantly going to die? Danny can't just pay them all to walk off a cliff, can she? They would rebel, they would go back on it. And Ben says the same basic thing. The discussion doesn't become any clearer when thinking what percentage of Ben's decision was based on saving his men and how much was about saving his skin while making the most money. Now, okay, each to their own on this, but I think Ben is a lot closer to the him side of the spectrum. Maybe he did consider his men a little bit, but in the end, it's whatever works best for him and what he can get the most out of. But Danny argues it is still betrayal. They made an agreement. You get the money for doing this, and she provided the money. We didn't see Ben just trying to give her a refund and just bow out and say, okay, sorry, this is too dangerous for us, so we're just going to leave and stay alive. That's not what he did. It wasn't just an abandoning, it was him going to the other side. He weakened her while strengthening her enemies. That's the very worst thing he could have done. He was saying that he was just as willing to kill her as smile at her. So Ben's defence continues with this story about his first ever battle, when he found a man who'd saved up all this gold but then died before it could be enjoyed. So what was the point of it all? And this is a pretty good question. When your entire existence comes down to getting paid to fight, at some point there has to be a line in the sand. Gold might be a big part of it, but life has to overrule. So while Ben was sneaky and getting something extra out of Danny, in the end, he generally thought he and his men would die, and who would sign up for that? Right here, he is pointing out what this business of sellswords is. He's setting those limits of a contract, and telling Danny about how this part of the world works, unfortunately. He puts it best here, as he has done before. I told you once, there are old sellswords, and there are bold sellswords. But there are no old, bold sellswords. My boys didn't care to die, that's all. And when I told them that you couldn't unleash them dragons against the Yunkishmen, well... So that's a kind of an extra knife in Danny, really. A reminder that things might have been different if she'd made a different choice about the dragons. This betrayal could have been avoided. But then again, she must realise that wouldn't actually change the nature of anything. Ben would still not be a true friend, as she believed and truly valued. He's still on a business contract that would turn on her if the situation and his own safety called for it. This is just the done way. It's not the romanticism of fairy tales or even the loyalty that supposedly makes up the Seven Kingdoms. So it does make her appreciate the relationship she has with other parties like the Unsullied or the Dothraki, and it makes her point out how truly lucky she really is. Besides, Danny is so low right now, she can't even disagree that she looked like a sinking ship, and rats tend to jump off those, but it's just another punch to her. Does it feel better or worse that it wasn't just for the money, or it wasn't out of spite? I doubt it helps very much at all. You don't never want to trust a sellsword, milady. I've learned that much. One day, I must be sure to thank you for the lesson. This might be upsetting for her, it might continue with this push of defeat she has all over this chapter, but at least Danny has enough spirit left to promise revenge at some point. So that's good for us to see that just that she is in there somewhere. Ben has made his argument about why he made that choice, and Danny has ultimately not accepted it. She still names it betrayal, however logical, and one day he will pay the price, she says. So that's obviously important for what's to come later in Wins, when Ben is persuaded to rejoin Danny's side, even with this threat looming over him. He figures that if he helps win the day for Marine and finally destroys this youngish force, Danny will forgive. I wouldn't be too sure, personally. It's likely going to be a harder, more motivated Danny who returns to Marine. One who isn't going to put up with all the shit that was handed to her in Marine. 
in this chapter. Whatever role Ben plays in her hopeful victory, I don't think she's going to forget this promise of punishment, but it will be interesting to see if she is still forced to work with them in some way anyway. And it just sets another precedent for the future relationship with Cellsaurs, we've mentioned it a few times now. You'd think it would still require them to move west or maybe even to take Westeros, and she still has to deal with Tyrion and Jorah and Daria as well maybe. So perhaps this good lesson can be applied to him also because he also does seem like bad news overall. For now, off Ben goes, but note right at the beginning of the conversation, he was about to tell Danny that he might have been able to get his hands on Tyrion Lannister and bring him to her. That's an option Tyrion didn't even think of with Ben Plum being taken directly to where he wants to go, ironically. That would have been the best for everybody, really, but now it's never brought up. Danny was too preoccupied and she does not remember what he said, and we have a real missed connection type of feeling. With Ben gone, Danny looks out at her enemies still camped outside the walls, and you figure she is seeing what Ben saw the promise of defeat. Not that that makes her forgive or understand, not when she sees the new slave market, that ultimate insult to her. Indeed, when Barristan appears, she even reveals she's willing to play the game that Brown Ben has declared fair by inquiring whether Ben can be assassinated by some other betrayer. Barry is not really the man to be asked about such things though. We know that about him and his knightly ideals, but this is not Westeros and that is not pragmatic right now, as we'll see in his own chapters later on that kind of hinders him sometimes. If others are going to play by one set of rules, Danny figures that she will do the same. She has before, after all, which does spell a little bit of hypocrisy when she remembers she persuaded the Second Sons and Stormcrows to betray in the first place. She obviously never thought such would apply to her, which was her own mistake and is another lesson learned. Still, there's little time to focus on that now. There's still a fight to be had, and again, we love to see that Danny still has enough spirit to consider it a fight still. So maybe a different Cellsword company can be persuaded to come over and turn the tide. That might be more difficult now, but why not find out? Again, Barry points out this is not his area of expertise. At least he's upfront about it. So Danny makes suggestions of her own. She's really caught up in this whole underhanded espionage thing now. If it would be used against her, then she must respond in kind. She suggests using those prisoners that were mentioned earlier, send Pretty Maris back to the Tad Prince as a way of opening a dialogue. So right there we have yet more set up for Quentin's storyline, and it does make you wonder what might have happened if Danny had stayed in Marine, what could have come of that? She says the same about the Long Lances and the company of the cat, and that means Bloodbeard, whom Barry speaks out against as just the worst kind of guy. Danny doesn't argue with that, but privately she seems to have turned a bit of a corner and she recognises that awful people might actually be a better choice. You know what they are about, you know to never trust them, as she once did with Ben, and you can play them a bit easier. Besides, it's better to have someone like that on your side rather than against you, she says. Let him be savage and be horrible, but let him do it to them instead. We know that it's not so simple or definitely not so smart in the long run, but there is some wisdom in there, particularly for this current situation. Besides, on the matter of trust, we have this. First from Barry. They were sent here to worm their way into your trust, so they might betray your grace at the first chance. Then they failed. I do not trust them. I will never trust them. If truth be told, Danny was forgetting how to trust. So she is learning, and again we love proactive Danny being back and coming back that little bit more armoured, but there's still a touch of sadness in that sentence there. This will surely linger and have bad effects on her personally. Barristan still thinks it's a bad idea, so Daenerys replies with this. Do as you think best, but do it soon. If Hisdar's peace should break, I want to be ready. I do not trust the slavers. And then privately she thinks, I do not trust my husband. So that's really, really good to hear after the beginning of the chapter when she seems so defeated. She is not done yet, the fire still burns, so our excitement rises at the possibility of her fighting back and planning and preparing for giving Hisdart and Yunkai what they deserve. It's an alas alarm, really, considering she ends up leaving Marine, but we still hope to see some form of it in the future anyway. And Barry also hints at a slight evening of the field anyway, thanks to the pale mare that Tyrion showed us last time. 
so that rises our anticipation as well, though Danny can't quite work out why Quaife would warn her about the pale mare if it was going to end up helping her. Therefore, she won't trust in it to do their work for them, so that's pretty smart. This is proactive Danny. She wants to do something for herself, not just wait on the pale mare, so she gives the command for pretty mares to be sent back. Barry, for his part, like we would expect, takes one last crack at championing an immediate return to Westeros instead, via this opportunity that has turned up in the form of Quentin Martell. Now much of this is what we covered last time, when Quentin declared himself and Barry tried to persuade Daenerys then, and he pretty much repeats what we said before about ancient ties between the two houses, or his own relationship with Louis Martel, etc, etc. But nothing has changed for Danny. It's just a matter of logistics when you come down to it. If Quentin had come with his promised spears, which we know is unfortunately completely against how Duran Martel likes to do things, then maybe she would do something. If he'd come with a fleet, then fine. And Barry might excuse them as not being a sea power, and fine, that's well and true, but it doesn't help Danny, does it? She would still need them, and she would still demand that her people must come first. She will not abandon them, especially not when it's become so clear what would await them if she did. So again, props to her, because she's at her lowest, she wants out of this situation, and even when someone suggests to her, okay, well, you could get out, that's not good enough for her. That's not going to work. And again, unfortunately, Dawn had just never considered that. Pe even people like Duran sometimes only see so far in front of their own face, and they just did not guess that Daenerys would be this kind of person. Now, she bears Quentin no ill will. Again, she'd love to take up the offer, and she will still need Dawn when she comes west eventually, but right now, he can do more harm than good. So just send him home, she says. Barry replies with this. Dornishmen are notoriously stubborn, your grace. Prince Quentin's forebears fought your own for the better part of 200 years. He will not go without you. Then he will die here, Daenerys fought. Hello, Mrs. Foreshadowing. Yes, you are right on the money. Well done, Danny. Good guess. Still, she does think on Barry's words, and likely considered how different Quentin is to the rest of this world of Marine. He comes to honour an ancient contract, to make good on a real connection between two houses. He's the opposite of a sellsword, somewhat ironically, considering his chapter titles. Even though Dawn is absolutely also doing this for its own purposes, in large part anyway, this is not a fighting for the Starks because that's what's right situation, it's to benefit them. And so she decides she will meet with Quentin again, now and in secret, because perhaps he deserves at least that much. So she tells Barry to go and get him so he can see her children. And at first, we think this means the people in the Marine, that being the context that she's just used and normally used, but then as soon as she turns up, we're told they're going down, and we realise what she actually means, and then we get very, very excited, don't we? Because it's been ages since we've seen the dragons, and that was a, such a huge deal at the beginning. Do not forget, we're writing her early chapters, how much we had to talk about that. So we wonder, why is she choosing now to visit them? Remember, she's only just been reminded that they were the reason she lost Bram Ben Plum. And even for rereaders, we know how monumental this decision is going to be. So she excuses herself now, funnily enough, saying that she's going to answer a call of nature, just like Wyman Mandley once did when he was off to do secret things. And on the way down, she unfortunately still thinks that Quentin is not handsome, and she cannot make herself desire him. But that doesn't mean they can't be of worth to each other, so down, further and further they go. We've talked about how that is fair enough with Daenerys before. She can't just magic up these feelings she doesn't have. She's already got enough of that going on with Hizda. But in the meantime, Danny does hint at this exact idea that they can be of use to each other when she gives this quote. The dragon has three heads, Danny said when they were on the final flight. My marriage not need be the end of all your hopes. I know why you are here. For you, said Quentin, all awkward gallantry. No, said Danny, for fire and blood. As we've spoken about before, she knows that this is transactional for Quentin. She knows it's what she can provide, not her herself, because he's never met her, he's got no idea who she is. But that can still be useful for her as well. And it's still a better relationship than with sellswords, as we've talked about. Danny still hasn't stated why she's bringing Quentin down here, but saying the words 
fire and blood as you're walking towards a pair of dragons is a pretty clear message and we figured Danny might be telling him, hey, I'm worth waiting for. Don't worry, let me show you. Or perhaps she just wants a companion for this particularly emotional experience. Either way, excitement rises as we near the pit and we can hear the dragons roar. That's been too long since we've heard it. And Quentin is unnerved at the sound. Which is again, fair enough. Let's face it, he's unnerved by this situation anyway, being in such close quarters to Danny. The point of his existence and the reason he's here, as well as being taken down secret tunnels and wondering what she could want. But we can also see how much Daenerys has missed her children. They're the only true children she'll ever have, remember, and we don't know what's happening with Drogo and whether he'll ever come back. We know how much it hurt putting them away, and again how much she's missed them, so this is a very emotional choice to come down here, one that she does not take lightly. It's not like she's popping down to visit them every other weekend, is it? So there must be a specific purpose. When those grand doors are open and the heat comes out, she tells Barristan to stay out. Quentin will protect her. Okay, well, you say so. Obviously, she's throwing the guy a bone here. She's trying to make him feel important and wanted, and now he has to act the part or risk embarrassment. So it's pretty clever from Daenerys there. And it's again her telling him that she values him. And now they walk in, and we're back with the dragons again. Hurrah! Like I say, it's been too long. Way too long. And it's great to introduce them again to set up their own part to play in the final part of the book. Rereaders know how much setup we're getting here for what will come later with Quentin, both in terms of him just looking around, saying what the situation is, and him kind of interpreting this, uh, this gesture from Danny as a hint of something that's not really there. But for the dragons, here they are. They're strong, and they're wild, and maybe they're angry too, because both let out great gouts of flame. Maybe that's in protest being stuck in here, or maybe it's in retaliation to Danny's voice, which she herself says sounds small and defeated. Perhaps they can feel the pain she's going through, or how her own inner flame has been diminished. And maybe they do not like that one bit, so they decide to show off some of their own instead. Rhaegal roared in answer, and fire filled the pit, a spear of red and yellow. Viserion replied, his own flames gold and orange. And I include that just because it's been too long to not include it. But also, just remember this bit here, the fact that their flames are very slightly different, because we're going to see another third version later on today. Quentin is intimidated. Duh, that's fine, that's the smart response, and one he probably would have been better off keeping after he leaves, unfortunately he doesn't. And here Danny lets loose some of her inner thoughts and worries about the dragons. To be honest, she talks about them more freely here than she has with anyone else save maybe Dora, and for the longest time as well. There's a real connection being forged between these two teens standing in the dark, holding hands in front of dragons. Unfortunately it's the last alarm, so we'll never get to see that built on further, that friendship that could have developed. Hopefully, it'll turn out that Quentin's last act was a great help to Danny in the end in letting the dragons out and not a hindrance, but maybe it will be. And we have another John mirror here. Remember in his last chapter, he was holding Alice Carstark's hand, another similar friendship. That's what we could have seen with Danny and Quentin here, even if there's no romantic ties to it. Danny admits she does mean to ride a dragon which we knew already, but speaking it out loud and reminding us, we've not focused on it for the longest time, especially in this book when she's obviously not been with them, and it makes us think how much different this book might have been if she'd never imprisoned these two. We know why she did it, we know the logic, but still, we wanted them out, we wanted her to retain that inner flame, and maybe things wouldn't have gone this badly. Or maybe they would have gone worse. Either way, she is sure that no rider has ever flown two dragons, hinting that at some point she'll need two more heads to join her, connecting what she said earlier. She's wondered on who they will be before, but she doesn't know. She's not here to invite, she's just here to get across a message, or maybe a hint, in the kindest, but clearest way she can think of. 
Quentin says this. They are, they are fearsome creatures. They are dragons, Quentin. Danny stood on her toes and kissed him lightly, once on each cheek, and so am I. Holy shit, that is a line we love to hear. Danny admitting she is a dragon. And obviously the timing, considering what we're going to see later in Danny 9, again, at the top, I mentioned this is all about setting that up and really reigniting that for us, just warming the stove a bit. It is amazing to hear her say that. We've been waiting for that such a long time. And again, especially in this situation of this chapter where it's all doom and gloom and she's so defeated, she's saying, screw that, I'm the dragon. And in this context, okay, it's a warning to Quentin. It is a particularly pointed message that's trying to save him and again, just do good because that's who Danny is. But we just like to hear it. Now, in fairness to Quentin, he tries to rally when he realizes that this is a brush off, that Danny is trying to warn him that he's not quite up to this, although not in a cruel way. He tries to cite that they share Targaryen blood, that their houses have been linked through history as he brings up the water garden story that we already got from this boy's father earlier on in the book. Danny, being the caring person that she is, tries to steer him away from his own foolish end as she lists the many dangers he must face. She knows what Marine is, how cruel and cutthroat, and Quentin simply isn't cut out for that, not yet at least. Danny can recognise the danger that both Dario and his die represent and she can understand why even if Quentin doesn't. Now Quentin, either because he's trying to impress this girl before him or because he genuinely does believe this is the only way forward, declares that he will not run from slaves or sell swords. Danny laments that and calls him a fool, and she's not wrong. Obviously his journey and what he's been through haven't taught him quite enough about reality. The death of his friend somehow wasn't enough. If only he had taken Danny's message here for what it is, rather than assuming it's a subtle hint that he persuades himself it was later on about dragons and who can ride them. That idea comes from stories, from the idea he can't fail because he's the hero. And we've had that commentary plenty in his own chapters of what George is trying to get across here and, you know, the hero never dies and that type of thing. He pretty much says as much later on. And ultimately, it will come from his own desperation later on again. If he allows himself to believe Danny here, it means failure and a waste of life in friends. If he believes his own bullshit later though, it means there's a chance for success still. The key difference in both paths is that the one he actually takes is what leads to his death, which is a shame. He's just too full of foolish pride. He didn't get the well-intentioned message and it's all in keeping with his themes. Like we've said, we're going to come back to explore that in his final two chapters. Just think what could have happened if it had gone through his skull. With Duran's supposed reaction to Quentin's death, we've theorised that that would be delivered by Jairus Drinkwater, it now might go the complete opposite direction in what could have happened and what could have gone on between these two parties. We'll have to wait to see the full consequences of that, I suppose. Danny gave her wild children one last lingering look. She could hear the dragon screaming as she led the boy back to the door and see the play of light against the bricks, reflections of their fires. If I look back, I am lost. Danny is sad to realise it and she's sad to leave the dragons behind. And we're sad that she's not going to just suddenly unleash them as we might have hoped. That would have been a really cool end to the chapter. Still, there's one more moment of niceness between the two as Quentin tells her all of dawn as they go back up the pyramid. And I wonder if one day we'll discover what he told her. Maybe if something could be useful for her future. That'd be nice. The chapter isn't going to end on a high note, unfortunately, as we have to witness the happy and victorious Hisdar take his ultimate prize in sleeping with Danny at the end of the day. It hurts our heart to see her have to suffer through this loveless, passionless marriage, to see her essentially just be used in this fashion, especially when we know how Hisdar and the Yunkai view her. This is just the worst, isn't it? 
After the act, his dimension, his hopes that they might have made a son, which obviously sends Danny down the dark path of thinking about how she will never bear children again, which is timely considering she's just been to visit her living children in the dragons. Still, it's a clearly painful thought, one that she keeps to herself, but it still hurts, and it makes her lonely, it makes her pine for comfort, even one such as Daria, which she always knew was bad for her, but she needed it, and therefore accepted it and she wants it again. It is while thinking about how much she needs someone that someone appears out of the darkness and it is Miss Sunday being kind of creepy again and keeping up all those little questions about what she might be up to. Danny enlists her to make her feel better with the talk of Narf and butterflies and family and happy things. After this chapter, that's the kind of talk she needs. It is everything that is the opposite of where she is in the world, isn't it? The opposite of what she seems to have created. For tomorrow, she will see exactly what she's made in the form of people cheering for death as entertainment. It is everything she hates presented right to her, right in front of her, like we've said. Masande is successful. She gets Danny to sleep, but she dreams queer, half-formed dreams of smoke and fire. Now that should get our attention. We can think it's because of who she's just visited, but we could also think it's a signal that Drogon is coming back. Either Danny is foreseeing it, or maybe this is her sending out a distress signal to him. I like to think he knows now is the time. Now is the time to really come back and make his mark. Perhaps even her meeting with the other two was enough to get him. Maybe he sensed that. I like that idea. Either way, as rereaders, we're now incredibly excited for what comes next, which is, undoubtedly, and as we'll discuss a little bit later on, the biggest Danny book of the moment, the biggest Danny moment of the book so far. In many ways, it's going to be her biggest moment in the entire series, and luckily, we don't have to wait too long, just one chapter, even if it is a really big chapter. So I think you'll see the structuring of this chapter that we spoke about before, really laying it on thick at the beginning there with defeat and doom and just this horrible feeling of oh they've won and how small Daenerys feels and how much we hate that and then the building back up of oh no she is still alive in there somewhere she still wants to do something she wants to fight back at least she's going to be prepared if everything goes south so that's good whether that be the pretty Maris plan or just thinking about sellswords or way more interestingly going back to see her dragons and this thing this act that she's done with Quentin you can see I guess why he took it as a hint it is still a semi-recruitment pitch just for later on. He thinks it's now, obviously, and that's not the case. He's kind of self-serving in that respect. But it's also just so important for her personally, just the, the reopening of that part of her soul, which is obviously perfect timing. Now, we could go on and on about this chapter, but seeing as we're going to talk about Danny again in a second, I think it's time we move on because we have another very, very big moment. One of the top moments of the book. And we're going to we're gonna talk about it for quite a long time. So get ready for that as we move from sunny marine to snowy snowy winterfell as we go unfortunately quite confusingly to fion 1 slash fion 7 let's head into it well we promised you big important moments key moments in the series and now we're going to deliver i don't think it's particular hyperbole to say this is the most important point of the book so far this is our biggest highlight and unfortunately it comes in a goodbye this is our last Fion chapter, despite being called Fion 1, just a mess of us. And though we are fairly used to goodbyes by now in this book, we had Jamie last week, we've seen Aria, Hotar, Melisandre. They don't really count though, those guys are only one POV chapter each. We have had Bran and Davos, okay, they're much more major parts of the book, they're big characters, but we clearly had nothing close to Fion yet. He is the one of the most chapters leaving us so far, again this is his seventh he is the most major character in terms of importance, in terms of what he's seen, and definitely, definitely in terms of just the thematical 
literary worth of this arc. We are saying goodbye to one of the highlights of the entire series. I think that's particularly arguable. This is one of the most critical single book runs, sure, but just picking it out as a arc, as a storyline in A Song of Ice and Fire, this is some of George's most beautiful, most emotional, heartfelt, most well-constructed work. I don't even know really how to put it into words, but I think you all know what I mean about this being one of the most artistic flares of George. This is him really flexing his muscle here, again, in terms of the theme and the redemption or whatever you'd like to call it, his ability to make us feel something different for this enemy we hated so much. I know we've spoken about it again and again in every chapter, the tie-ins with Theon and his past crimes and these ghosts and this darkness that perpetuates our building of shining light our beginning in Winterfell and just how that all plays out against each other as well as of course all the war stuff and the Boltons and what we think is going on with Stannis and these murder mysteries everything like that and even going back to the beginning of the arc with Reek and how he's just transformed just from there how different that seems this is an amazing amazing run it's a shame to lose it because it really is brilliant for our purposes of analysis and looking at how George has done this and I mean we could go on and on I did say I wouldn't talk too much about introductions but we can't really avoid it for this one can we this is major major stuff there's a reason that so much has been written about it by so many talented people because again it just sticks out this is a real feather in the cap of this book and of this series and of George so saying goodbye to it is a big thing. And like I say, this is the biggest character we're losing. It's kicking off that new era. We're really starting to see, obviously in today's episode, these big, big moments. If this isn't a signal of coming towards the end of the book, I don't know what is. We've spoken before in the past about when you look at each individual book, who's the big character of that book who has the best single book run and we throw out the neds and we throw out the briennes or the circes and you can very very easily pick out dance Fion as one of the top examples of that in the whole series so really we're getting an absolute treat overall in this book and all we've discussed so far very very dark chapters but incredibly interesting and in this final one we get today which i must say i mean i liked last fion's chapter just for showing us how much the boltons were messing up and how that was all crumbling but this one if this doesn't get your heart going i don't know what else will in this series because wow have we got a chapter for you today and i will say prepare for a long chat about this one. I wouldn't say I know I said that about the whole episode today, but this chapter especially, I haven't looked at how many words it is or how many pages, but this might be the longest chat we're gonna have about a single chapter in this book. So fair warning. I'll have a look at the end, I'll toss it all up. So why are our heart rates soaring throughout this chapter? It's because we've got a heist, everybody. A heist of the most dramatic circumstances. And I think part of the reason why this is such a, a standout chapter is because it's actually, not to give it away, but I think you probably know, a heist gone right, or at least semi-right. They get what they want out of it. And that does not normally happen, does it? Think in the past about the similar kind of attempts we've seen to spring people from certain situations. Probably the most famous is Marcella in Feast. That didn't go so well. That's getting Jamie out of Riverrun. Later, we're going to see a similar type thing with the dragons, which I suppose you could say is successful and that they do get out, but uh, Quentin might disagree with you. None of those worked. The plan is never supposed to work. That's just part of the literary trope. But today, we have something different. Now, you can argue, does the plan work? Well, for certain people, it definitely doesn't. But for our main people, the ones we're really interested in, for Theon and for Jane Poole, of course it works. And you can already tell... Jane Paul, she is going to be a big 
big focus of this chapter. It's almost as much about her as it is Fionn. We're going to have a lot to say about that. So we're actually getting some genuine light here at Winterfell, even if we do unfortunately have to leave the building again after being brought back to it for some of the darkest days of the series. That's been a shame, but we do get it again. Now that will come with having to bear some of the unfortunate scars of these trying times in Winterfell from Jane's wedding, etc, etc, from those trials. But we do eventually get what we want. Jane gets out. Theon gets out and for first time readers no we don't have any idea of their success at the end and whether they actually survive but we do know that one way or the other they are out of Winterfell they're out of Ramsay's clutches and there is absolutely nothing as important as that especially for Jane. So for all the valleys that George has delivered in this book and again there's been plenty we now have an undeniable peak with this chapter and what's coming next to be honest with you. So to look at it in that structuring uh, pacing type view this is a very very interesting point in the book this is really again if you're into writing and how you put these books together i've already said that dance has a really really odd kind of ending last act in my opinion but it's definitely interesting just for the themes of these chapters and what we're getting out of them and again we don't have many good results do we but we've got the biggest here and that idea of dark to light that obviously ties in so well with Theon and his path back to humanity that we've been witnessing. I don't want to tell you what you already know. I'm sure you've read much better stuff than I can come up with about this. But this is the ultimate capper to that. As much as we've seen in recent chapters of him confronting his crimes and talking to the weirwood tree and everything like that. What we've come up with is the idea that nothing can repay what he's done in the past. That's been part of George's overall message. That is just the reality of it. But he has now, in this chapter, injected the world with major, major good. He had a choice to help Jane earlier in the book, even if it meant pain, and he didn't do it. But this time, he does. So I just think that really represents his overall arc, his ultimate tying together of his many, many themes of repayment or redemption or whatever you might want to call it. And again, Winterfell being the setting for this, well, that makes all the difference, doesn't it? That's the cherry on top. There must be a Stark in Winterfell, because the Starks have been charged with the ancient duty of protecting the people against winter. Boltons, we know, have corrupted that purpose, and Winterfell has now paid them back in kind, Winterfell and Winter. We saw that in the last chapter, we're going to see it in this one as well. The comeuppance has finally come home to roost, and we love that. I love seeing that. But beneath that, we have to see that the people haven't been protected, the innocent haven't been protected, Jane Poole most of all. So Theon, who has always wrestled with his identity and his starkness, he subs in to be the pseudo-Stark in Winterfell one last time as he protects this innocent person and he saves Jane. And, well, speaking of Jane, I must admit to you, I'm going to be up front with you in this chapter, even though it's a, it might make me look a bit silly. When I was typing out these notes, I only just remembered that in this chapter, we're going to reach what I believe to be the most single chilling line sentence in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. I don't know if I can really do it justice, so I'll give it a go. But many of you will know of which I speak. I have mentioned it on Twitter before. If you do know, you'll have the same goose pimples along your arms that I already do just thinking of it because there's really nothing in the entire book. And I'm probably including Catelyn's final lines there that stabs right through to my heart but we'll save that for when we get to it like i say we're going to have a lot to talk about today this is going to be an emotional chapter fair warning now on top of that we also have lots and lots of information about the war as well george is really going to pack it in because it's his last chance we're going to lose our winterfell camera which again seems odd on the surface we took all this time to set up brother and sister greyjoy so that we can see the battle from both sides 
like we once did for the Blackwater, and it looks like we will do again in Marine. So if you spend a half a book building to that, and then you remove a half just before the big battle, well, how is that going to work? Is Asher really going to be 100% responsible for this great battle? Are we just going to get one POV chapter for the Battle of Winterfell? Because again, first-time readers might be thinking, oh, I've still got this to come in this book, so how is that going to work? And it's just a valid question for rereaders as well. We're still not sure how that's all going to pan out. But for now, for today's purposes, we get our last remnants, our last glimpse into Winterfell and what the Bolton Alliance is doing in terms of war and how it's again falling further apart. The extra tensions. I mean, there is so much set up for our many, many, many theories about the Battle of Ice and what's going to happen. A lot of that stuff comes from this very chapter, so we really can't overstate its importance. Yes, we do have Asha. We're going to see her later and we'll learn more there. But some things we need to be inside the walls to see, hence what we get in this chapter. I know I mentioned the Castles book way too often, but a large part of that book, the end of that book, was talking about the future of Winterfell, these many, many possibilities and different theories and ideas of how this battle could go down and what's going to happen to the people within. And again, like I say, so much of that is rooted in what we're going to get in this chapter. So lots and lots to talk about. And luckily, most of what we see is, well, you remember from the past few chapters, we've been talking about that snowball, that rolling snowball of the downfall of the Bolton Alliance. And that thing is huge now and it's smashing everything down we get the mandalies coming out into the open with their conflict with the phrase we get another murder that leads to lots of new theories and i'm going to try and tackle that as much as i can although again done that in other places in the castles book so it might not go full tilt on it and not only that but remember losing our camera in winterfell is bad timing that lack of a pov is bad timing it's going to be felt very keenly rather quickly as this is where we get half of the content material for the pink letter think of what is included in that from ramsay wanting his bride back wanting his reek back the talk of mance and the spearwise that is also all pretty much set up here and if we had a pov remaining in the castle the chances are we'd have a much better idea of what's going on in the pink letter and which parts are true but we don't so that whole mystery and all those theories are going to come spinning out of this chapter as well i really cannot overstate how big a moment in dance this is I mean, obviously we're coming to the end these types of things are going to become more and more frequent. We're going to see a similar thing in our next chapter with what is essentially the end of Danny's marine arc, at least. And yeah, there's going to be big moments later with Barristan and Danny's final chapter. And okay, Tyrion's got a few more to go. But I would say, personally, this chapter here slots right in behind Jon's final chapter as the big firework moment of dance. This is the one with the heartbeats. This is the one with the drama, the knock-on consequences. This is the cinematic one. Next chapter forgiven. This is a build-up to the biggest battle we've ever going to see. This is life and death for two really, really important characters that we care about that have been a big part of this book. So we're in the majors here. We're saying goodbye to that big POV again. This is the big time, everybody. And finally, just before we actually actually get into the text here, I haven't even started, we have to note, don't we, the chapter title change. This character started as Reek for three chapters. Then there was the Turncloak the Prince of Winterfell, the Ghost of Winterfell, all these different titles and these things that Theon was supposed to be. And now, finally, he is himself again. And just that, just that little detail by George is, is chef's kiss, isn't it? It is absolutely brilliant, beautiful. I think we better get into the chapter. I mean, I'm just going to talk about it all day unless we actually, unless we do actually start tackling the pages. I will warn you once more, and I won't bullshit you on this. Prepare for the emotions, okay? So let's dive in. So at the beginning, it's George being back to his old tricks again, because he opens with the idea that Stannis is now here, and we think, hey, it's battle time. 
first-timers, potentially at least, would have no idea that the Battle of Winterfell is going to be pushed back to winds. That's definitely not what you would expect, is it? Normally, you read a book, there's a big battle at the end. We've seen it before, in Clash, we know what happens. And if you're holding a physical copy in your hand, you might be thinking, well, this is starting to get pretty thin, so it's got to come soon, hasn't it? And maybe this is the chapter. We're thinking if this is going to happen, it's really got to happen now. Definitely if it's going to be anything like we think it is, in terms of size and grandeur, and after this long, long build-up. Like I've already mentioned, it really doesn't get bigger in terms of consequences for this battle, does it? So we're going to fall right into George's sneaky trap at the beginning when he says that Stannis has stolen up on them. But really all George is doing is continuing what he set up last time, the horns playing and the assumption that Stannis has arrived. So it's on us for being tricked, but we can't be blamed really, can we? Especially with the just blatant confidence of this opening line. Besides, maybe Stannis has gone out of that village. Who are we to say we haven't been in Asher's POV for a while? We would readily accept that something has happened off page if it gets us that battle, and the possibility of such just that chance has our blood surging more than anything in this book yet, I would say. You can see why the people of Winterfell would so easily buy into these horns and stuff, because we're doing the exact same thing. We've had as many as five different POVs circling this plotline. You think Theon, you think Asher, you think Jon. Even Davos has had a little bit of part to play, and there's Melisandre as well. And that's to say nothing of the major non-POV characters and the overall expectation of the series storyline. We know this matters for the series, for what's going to come in A Song of Ice and Fire. So it's big time, isn't it? And that's without mentioning that this is us talking about our emotional centre of the story and the home of the Starks and the need we have to cleanse it of evil Boltons. So there's heaps of expectation right here in the very first line and we are truly pumped, we're ready. George has got us going for this chapter here. And that tension doesn't go anywhere, not at the beginning. We were not actually told that Stannis isn't here, only that he's not attacked yet. So that can still happen at any time. That's true for us, it's true for the Boltons. So that's going to really stay here. It's going to stick with us for the grand majority of this chapter, even though we're going to get distracted by other tensions. We don't know that Stannis isn't going to come knocking on the door at any point. As we finally progress past that first line, we take note that the snow is still falling. The storm still rages. So they've clearly got no idea whether they're going to be attacked or not. But the worry is enough to have them at their defensive stations all night as well in the freezing cold so there's a huge physical toll as well as the mental cost of anticipating an assault and, and not having any idea of what direction it's going to come from or anything like that and you're stood on these walls all night freezing yourself to death and you could worry an arrow can come out of the snow at any time that kind of possibility is going to weigh on you don't undersell it and know that maybe that doesn't match the fatigue or malnourishment that we know stannis's bunch is going through but it does at least even the playing field Here's your first quote of this chapter. Prepare for many, I'll warn you. The storm will end today, one of the surviving stable boys was insisting loudly. Now I include that quote only because of that word surviving as a brilliantly subtle inclusion from George to give this sense of how many people have died, of them all slowly being drained off by the winter or the cold or whatever it might be, of these defences being weaker than they dreamed and of that mighty snowball rolling across the big old cracks we saw from that last Fionn chapter. It's just wonderful writing from George. And Fionn, when he hears this confident declaration by the stale boy, he thinks of old Nan, as we all like to do sometimes, and her tales of winters even worse than this. I include that again because we are living in her story. We've said that before, but normally it's restricted to brand chapters. No longer. We do find out that the battle has at least not started yet. Everyone's waiting around, so some aspects of normal life must continue, such as breakfast. Theon sits having his, watching as he always does in the Great Hall, but now he has eyes for something else that he didn't have before, and it's Abel slash Mance and his group. So we could be forgiven for not even thinking of Fionn's last chapter's end. Remember when he was hauled off by the Spearwise and that kind of cliffhanger? So what the hell happened there? 
We've had so much to think about at the beginning of this chapter, we haven't even got to that yet. Obviously, they didn't kill him, either the Spearwives or Mance slash Abel. So why did they want him then? Was he interrogated for secrets or did they get anything out of him? Well, luckily, we don't have to wait too long to find out. We get our answer fairly quickly with this quote. A few more tankards and perhaps Abel's plan might not seem quite so mad. So Fionn wasn't killed, he was recruited or he was pressed into service in some way. And again, our tension and excitement goes way up because we know there's a plan. You only have to say that word and we start wondering, what plan? What's the goal? What does it include? How is it going to work? We always like to hear that word, especially one that is apparently pretty out there, pretty weird. So we've got multiple strings to kind of cling to already. We're not told what the plan is just yet because George knows how to keep us turning the page, but we can already make some guesses. Now we know Abel is Mance, but does Fionn know? Did he get told that during this meeting? We don't know. We've probably figured not. He's still referring to him as Abel, of course. So maybe we now know more than Fionn still, which is always good fun as well. And then we can start turning our mind to what this plan could be for. Is this Mance's plan to free quote-unquote Aya for delivery to John? Or is it just a plan of escape? Or is it to do with one of these things we've been wondering about in his secrets in the crypts or elsewhere? Again, there's no clues yet, but this is the kind of thing turning those cogs in our mind already to begin and we're very very keen to find out some more. We also are given no hints about what this plan could entail or specifically what Fionn's part could be but we know there's going to be high danger all around the very highest because well, we know who we're sharing this castle with. Again we're looking at how much of the book is left we're thinking well George probably isn't going to pull any punches here and we're still just teased with that possibility of this maybe being a rescue mission. We almost don't dare to dream but our interest is definitely earned and hooked here. You almost don't want to think about it. Is it possible they're going to rescue Jane, that she's going to get out of this hellhole? It's as if you don't want to look at it too closely in case the idea gets chased away and she just gets left here instead. But, well, George knows how to get our motors going. He keeps us just dangling on the hook now. He gives us no more clues as Fionn watches the Bolton Alliance come in for breakfast. Clearly, they've not had to be manning the walls in anticipation. They've been allowed to sleep, or try and sleep at least, as we discover Roos's yawns and Ramsay's foul mood. We've already spoken about the distinction between the upper and lower classes here in Winterfell and how that's not going to look good, is it? Everyone else has got to stand on the walls all night, freezing, waiting for that arrow to come. Your lords are allowed to just go to bed. I don't think that's going to be tolerated for that much longer. Theon tells us the reason for this interrupted sleep is the drums, the supposed follow-on from last chapter's horns. So even their presence alone is confirmation that someone is outside Winterfell, there are drums out there, and at this point we're thinking... Well, it has to be Stannis, doesn't it? Because who else is there? So that battle possibility is renewed again and we're all the hungrier for it. George just keeps teasing it. We'll discover the truth later on about how this is actually an intimidation tactic by Moore's Umber designed to waste Bolton Resolve on an assault not yet coming. Let them man the walls and get all cold. Let them get lackadaisical for when the real army shows up. Remember what Jamie told us last week about people just kind of getting used to things and starting to let stuff slip. That's what we'll see. And then we'll add the sleep deprivation in keeping these drums going all night it just generally annoying everyone and forcing them to make decisions based on frustration we know how effective that's going to be with this bunch and i've got to say i absolutely love this detail this drum playing all night i think it's so clever of george to include such intricacies and it's also brilliantly effective and i think it's damn funny considering all the bolting confidence earlier on and how this even gets under the skin of famously collected roots we just like to see it. They're just like the bad guys in a kids movie that keep getting tricks played on them constantly and just get more and more frustrated. Brilliant stuff. But Fionn is not thinking of what it means in the context of the war, just what it means to him personally. And it means danger. Ramsay is even more of a loose cannon than usual, which is a scary thought. And Fionn has a really, really big secret to hide from him now. One he figures will get him found out and punished eventually. There's no getting around Ramsay, he claims. 
With those thoughts in mind, he turns to Abel to express his worries that this isn't going to work, and we get our first important confirmation, this plan is one of escape. Okay, that's important to know, even if we're still not made aware of the actual mechanics. Mance is basing his timing on the fact that he believes Stannis is just outside the walls and that represents safety for them. We again, later find out this is a huge mistake and that's going to play a part in Mance's supposed downfall. Whether that's true or not, we don't know, we're just going to have to guess through this chapter. It is interesting though that Mance wants to get to Stannis in the first place. Does he believe he'd be allowed to leave with Jane slash Aya and go to the wall for Jon? Can't imagine that being allowed. I can't imagine Mance thinking that would be allowed. I'm still not entirely clear on what Stannis is actually aware of in terms of Mance. I never could puzzle that out. Or maybe this is just something he's telling Theon to persuade him and it's not actually his intention to go to Stannis at all. Very, very possible. But he's confident and he includes the fact that he believes once they're out there in the wild, they will have all the advantages over Ramsay, who has never known the true wild, especially not compared to Mance and the Spearwise. I am inclined to believe him on that aspect. Theon is not, however, as he voices his worries of precisely what Ramsay will do to them if they're caught. We know, we've seen the build-up all through this book, that this is the biggest possible risk that Theon can think of. Cast your mind back to those early chapters and the extreme mind prison that Ramsay had Theon in and all the effects of that. As we've seen through more recent chapters, just him even dreaming of this possibility was huge for him, now he's actually caught up in it. And he has signed up to it, in all fairness, but he still needs Mance's reassurance. He continues thinking of Ramsay's punishment, even if he's now, in the moment, watching Ramsay argue, very publicly, with his father, in front of everybody here in the Great Hall. So that snowball is all the heavier. The drums are doing their work, and we absolutely love it now, I must admit. They're looking weaker than ever, which is going to be very important in a moment. But while Theon is still twisting on this punishment, that they sure is, will be coming to him, he also lets slip the next important confirmation. This plan is about Jane. Mance and the Spearwise intend to escape with her, which makes our hearts sore at the possibility because this whole Jane storyline, you remember from earlier on halfway through the book, how incredibly painful that was, how incredibly unjust and is just oh, horrible, the worst part of A Song of Ice and Fire. And now we've got this glimpse, maybe it's over. Maybe someone is going to rescue her like we've all hoped. Then again, that instantly falls into, well, hang on, these plans, they always go wrong. You never say that you're going to do something because it always ends up going wrong. So now we're worried, are they going to try and save Jane and then fail? And is that going to make things worse for her? Uh, so we're all very conflicted, but we're also very, very excited. And not to be forgotten is the important fact that this gang of conspirators in Fionn and Mance and the Spearwise are double, double crossing, if you get me. Fionn doesn't know that Abel is really Mance, we think. Mance doesn't really know that Aya is actually Jane. And Theon is going to keep his mouth shut about that as long as possible because of this light at the end of the tunnel, this chance of actual escape if he can keep up with the memory, which is kind of fitting for one of the identity issues like him. He's not going to risk the chance of him and Jane being left here just to tell the truth to these strangers, is he? No chance. I like to think it was this possibility of getting Jane out, specifically Jane, that pushed Theon to his eventual decision, because he knows what's been going on up there, doesn't he? I don't think he would risk it just for himself. If Mance came and said, hey, I can get you out if you want to be part of this plan, but it's just you, I don't think Theon would take the risk. As much as he might want to live and might like this idea of getting out, it's Jane that is the catalyst, I think. But there is a key difference in this double-double crossing. If Theon knew the truth about who Abel was, that he was Mance, 
Would that stop him going through with this plan? Probably not, doesn't make all that much difference to Fionn. But if Mance knew the truth about Jane slash Aya, that changes everything, you would think. So we've got an extra layer of tension now, that that could happen, that that could be revealed at some point, and the plan falls apart that way. And it also tells us that Mance is actually intending to go through with his original plan from John to collect his sister. Who knew? After all our wondering, it seems like he is actually going for that as well. Fionn's thoughts are interrupted with a classic George one-liner, or actually, a pair of them. First is this. The doors of the Great Hall opened with a crash. And at first, we wonder if it's news of battle finally being joined. That's what we're all expecting. Great big doors crashing open that normally means something important, doesn't it? But it turns out it's just one man. It's a fray, and he's carrying a body in his arms. So then comes the second one-liner, this time from Fionn's inner monologue. Another murder. Yes, talking about things we'd forgotten just in the build-up of this chapter's opening, we'd almost forgotten about those as well, hadn't we? Those murders that were really focused on from Fionn's most recent chapter. Those that had so effectively worn away at the trust of the Bolton leaders, that had pitted parties against each other, that had eroded the general confidence of those inside the castle and just put everyone on edge. And we don't know that that was the only point of these murders that we now assume to be down to the Spearwives. Perhaps Mance just wanted to sow maximum chaos to kind of cover his escape. If he did, he's definitely done that. Or maybe they just wanted to take out a few of the more evil people who could blame them, these poor spearwives. Either way, there's been another one, and one that we can sense is probably going to be the most important yet, because that's how these things work. They tend to get more and more important as we go. And we're not disappointed on that, as we reach a real turning point in this Northern War, and specifically the Bolton Alliance. My brother Merritt's son. Hostine Frey lowered the body to the floor before the dais, butchered like a hog, and shoved beneath a snowbank. A boy, little Walder, thought Fionn. The big one. So yes, unfortunately, or fortunately maybe, Little Walder, a character who's been with us all the way since Clash, remember, is dead. The latest of the mysterious murders in Winterfell. Perhaps not so mysterious now. And we definitely confirm, right from the off, this is going to cause a hubbub. Hostein Frey makes sure to point out the murderers have also moved from grown men to killing a boy, the dishonourable bastards. And we have to remind ourselves, to be fair, that this is a child lying dead in front of us. One who is of a similar age with Bran, I think. And we spoke in earlier chapters how easy it is to forget that fact with these two Walders because they speak so much older than their years and they act creepy and they take on the roles of adults. We spoke about that way, way back in Fionn's arc. But we've got to remember, this is Ned's nightmare we're seeing. A child's bloody body being laid down before the Lords in the Great Hall of Winterfell, just like down in King's Landing once years ago. Little Walder even has this cloak of pink frost to contrast the crimson cloaks that Rainies and Aegon wore. And again, I'm going to say it again, we must point out this is a child before us. That is supposed to be the horror of the series. We've covered it a million times, way too often in fact. This is the truest tragedy, that's part of George's overall message. Yet, in good keeping, considering whose POV we are in, George is challenging us, because we likely don't feel quite the same horror as we normally would another child being killed and then being laid down on the floor in these circumstances. And that's intentional by George. He made the Walder seem older. He's challenging us in the same way he did with Joffrey's death, Joff being the only other child to invoke this kind of response from us, and he was older as well, but that's how it is. We're supposed to be feeling really bad. Of course, children dying is an awful thing, but we're kind of hesitating because these children are awful, and we're being challenged again, like I say. This Walder was a fray, and we hate them in general. We're always happy when one of them gets knocked off, but like we have with Theon's POV, his arc here, George is saying, well, hang on, calm yourselves down. You're not supposed to think that way, are you? This is a child who's died. You're supposed to be very upset. You can't put all the crimes of the family on, well, innocent might be too strong a word, but this child. So it's a really, really nice touch from him. 
And let's not forget that little Wilder, he was on his way to becoming basically an apprentice of Ramsay Bolton. All signs pointed towards his becoming an even more terrible man than he was a child, but does that mean his murder should pass us by without comment? Is it fair to condemn a nine-year-old or something similar who is obviously being led astray by awful people who are older than him, adults, who should know better? This is all before he has any true semblance of what he's doing or how wrong it is. So are we going to ignore the space and chance he had to change his own ways or fall into a better situation? Are we going to just condemn him like that? Basically, George is asking us, what is the limit to innocence? How long can that protect you? And again, he did the same with Joffrey, but we were all pretty far gone with him. We didn't shed too many tears over his death, did we? Walder is younger. He was in a worse situation when you think about what he's been through in his life, being shifted up here and passed around and whatever else. So George is holding up the mirror here, and he's really making us address our own issues. This should hit us as hard as any other child murder. Maybe it doesn't. So we've got to do better on that. We've got to ask ourselves why that is. The other side to all this is the immediate theories that come up of the complete contrast to innocence, a child being capable of murder. Those theories all spring to our mind quickly when Rowan denies Spearife's involvement in Theon's accusation. And we combine that with the fact that Big Walder, the little one, now appears being covered in blood himself. Now I wish, I honestly wish I had more time to go into these theories here of Big Walder being the killer and all the evidence that mounts up to that. I'm sure you know the majority of that anyway, I'm sure you've come across it. If not, maybe I'll include some links later. But we all know the general idea that Big Walder, the little one, the scheming one, killed his cousin. And the evidence is obviously there, right in front of us. He's covered in blood, it's cold blood, he's been outside, all these types of things. We don't really need to go into that now. I think more interesting is just the motivation or the fact that he is capable of such. I personally think this is as confirmed as you're going to get. I know other people have spoken about how and why this comes about. I think Paul Quentin's done it before. I'm pretty sure I first heard about it from Davos Fingers. So again, I'll try and find some links for you. But there's just this idea of this scheming little guy who's being pretty much just ignored because he's a little kid. Little kids say things, don't they? But he's not exactly made a uh, secret out of his ambitions about wanting to grasp power and wanting to take over the twins and these things. And well... If he's going to do that, that would require getting rid of a lot of phrase, wouldn't it? That's just how it goes. Remember way back in the day and how they reacted to the news of, I think it was Sir Stevron Frey and all those types of things. They're just not normal kids. And we've talked before about how these two cousins represented the two sides of House Frey. One was the big, cruel, violent one. The other was the scheming, conniving, underhanded one. And, well, he's definitely doing that, isn't he? And true, there are questions of why take Big Walder out, why now? I think it's basically just opportunity. He knows that no one's going to look at him. He knows the tension is sky high. He knows that the Mandalays are going to be blamed because that's how smart this little kid is. He is devious. He's a really, really interesting character, evil as he might be. And I think this is a, a really cool storyline that probably won't get the shine it ever really deserves because there's just so much going on in the North. But I really hope it does. I'd really love to learn more about Big Walder and what he's up to, the extent he's willing to go, which he's just proven to us, and what role he could possibly play in the future. I think there are theories out there as well of why George is bothering to set up this guy and how that could affect the future goings on in the North with Rickon coming back and other things like that. I think Davos Fingers do have some more theories of why or how he can get back into the plot. Again, I'll try and find links. I just can't find the time here to go into it, but this is a really, really cool part of the chapter, which is really flash in the pan. No one bothers too much to look at the murder or who did it because the readers, like the characters, are about to be distracted by what's going on between all these two people, which Big Walder knew about. Again, I just find it fascinating. So try and look into that if you can, if you can find the time.
Going back to what we're talking about, both Roos and Ramsey are pissed. Ramsey is just raging, where Roos obviously obviously knows how bad this could be and how it could quickly turn that way. And that idea isn't helped when Big Walder gives his incredibly vague story of owed silver and, oh, I think it's got something to do with a White Harbour man. Yeah, see, this is what I mean. He is evil and he's conniving. He's a fine Frey prospect, really, isn't he? Just like, um, just like uh, I think it's Lothar Frey down there, still in the Riverlands. We've kind of spoken before about how they're like twins to the northern counterparts of, of Big Walder, Little Walder. There's a conniving one down there. There's a strong one down there, just like we saw in the kids here. So it all repeats itself on House Frey. We know what they're like. We know how ambitious they are. And Big Walder really does seem to be the absolute embodiment of that, doesn't he? So again... Just really interested to see where that goes. But for now, for in the actual chapter, this is the last thing that Roos wants to hear. This story of how, oh, it's a White Harbour man, because, again, he knows how this is going to be reacted to. And it is, we've got to say, incredibly clever for this young boy to finger White Harbour as the, as the criminals. He knows that it's going to cause the maximum distraction. He knows that no one's going to look at him twice. And the two parties, the phrase especially, were just looking for an excuse already. So this is a smart, politically astute kid who, unfortunately, will go far down the route of evil, probably. So when Big Walder says this and Hostine Frame makes the accusation, we turn the camera to Wyman Mandley. It seems to be ready for his big moment. He is amazingly casual about the accusations, which makes it all the more frustrating for the furiously frustrated phrase, of course. He's obviously been thinking about his situation, Wyman has. He knows this alliance is finally at its end, at the end of the rope. He's probably hoping that Davos is doing well with his own mission. So you know what? Let's just go for it. Maybe Stannis is here, maybe this is the end, so I'm going to get my hits in while I can. And he says this, So young, said Wyman Mandley, though mayhaps this was a blessing. Had he lived, he would have grown up to be a fray. That's the one, that's the one we love. That's a fan favourite because that is just a right kick in the balls, isn't it? And as expected, it kicks everything off. All the barriers are down now. It's absolute chaos as the two sides, Mandley's versus Frey's, go for each other in truth. Led by Hostine Frey, jumping over the table and striking at Wyman, a fan favourite. It turns to famously small-voiced Roos. He has to shout now for them to stop, and even then, he fails. So this is the sign, then. He has lost control. Roos Bolton has lost control of his people, of his alliance. Everyone is fighting everyone for a moment. It is absolute chaos here in the Great Hall, and for the first time, as it even seems like Wyman has been killed by Hostine, so we're thinking this is an even bigger moment, especially given all the secrets that we know about him. It requires a whole bunch of Dreadfort men to finally calm the situation. So they are basically having to act as a semi-police force now instead of doing their actual job of guarding against Stannis in this potential attack like they should be doing. So it's just another subtraction from the Bolton defence. At the end of it all, there's six White Harbour men and two Frey men dead with more wounded. Plus, another one of Ramsay's lads is scratched off the list, so that's always good to hear. Carnage and chaos are the only ways to describe it. Clearly, a massive line has been breached here. And as much fun as it is to see some Freys get their comeuppance in this house of Stark, Roos has to deal with the utter stupidity of people preparing to be attacked, preparing for the biggest battle of their lives, fighting each other instead, doing Stannis' job for them. Again, there's nine dead and more wounded, and they were men that were needed for this battle, and they're gone because of squabbles. And you'll notice, absolutely no one has paid any attention to Big Walder. So again, I just I really want to give this kid his due, even if we can't really talk about him too much here. It's very, very clever. He's done very, very well. And this whole thing is also clearly irreparable. Whatever Roos or Lady Dustin or any of them can do now would never be enough now that actual blood has been spilled. Jamie and Hosta Blackwood told us about the nature of this a few chapters ago, and we've seen more than enough evidence before. This will just happen, again and again, with each side trying to repay the other for the bloody crimes that have gone past. So in the immediate, that means you're screwed. 
Roost doesn't have the manpower or the space or whatever to separate these scuffles when the enemy is supposedly at the gate. You can't plan an effective defense if you're worried about your two biggest parties, remember, abandoning their posts to recheck each other instead of listening to orders. You can't do more of the enemy's work for him, and you can't have this blatant insubordination or the whole thing falls apart. We've spoken about the optics before as well, how Roost was realizing that he was losing control and it was all slipping through his fingers. Well, here we are. That snowball has landed on the cracks and the ice has shattered. We already knew that really, but now we can effectively declare the Bolton Alliance as finished. Whatever happens with this battle, whatever is still to come, they are through, which we like. Eventually, the hall is silent enough that Roos can be heard, and he makes a new declaration. Stannis is three days away, apparently, snowbound and starving. So okay, that lines up much better with what we've seen in Asher chapters before, so we're inclined to believe him. But if that is true, and we're wondering who could have informed Roos of this, then who the hell is outside playing the drums? Clearly, Roos does buy into the report, or at least he does publicly, as he orders the Freys out of the main gate and the Mandalays out of the east. Both of them are to go and strike the first blow against Stannis, wherever he might be. Now, we can enter a discussion here about whether Roos is being genuine, or whether Roos is being Roos. We know his style, we know how he gets rid of potential problems, we saw it a whole bunch of times down in the Riverlands. Send them off into a dodgy situation, let them deal with themselves, let them die for you basically. So we figure he knows everything we've just listed about how bad this is for him, and he's going to draw a line under it by just getting rid, cutting your losses even if it means his overall numbers going down. But this will be a bonus anyway, because we have established there's too many men in Winterfell. There's not enough food to go around. And if he removes his two largest belligerents, the two strongest and most uncontrollable parties, perhaps he can keep all the others in line and defend this castle. Remember who else is in this alliance. It's all the houses that are much smaller, much weaker, that Roos can intimidate much easier. These are at least the two annoying ones, the most dangerous ones if they were to turn against you. So there are some bonuses here. Roos is a smart guy and he would know that he'd eventually need a split from the phrase anyway if he wants to retain his political power, so why not now? Besides, there's always the added chance that one or both parties are actually successful and do defeat Stannis for him, or at the very least they can go and bother him and bleed him a bit and make the job that bit easier when the true battle comes. So it's a forced hand, but it is a clever one. Remember, the Freys have been asking to be let out to do damage, though they can hardly refuse now. Indeed, Hostine accepts straight away, though he points out there is zero peace between he and the Mandalays, who are currently ringed around the apparently still-alive Wyman. The bickering is enough to almost start off yet another fight, giving a glimpse of what it would be like if they were both to remain in the castle. And of all the surprises in this chapter, the largest might be that it is Ramsay, of all people, who provides the voice of reason and tells the two parties to get in line and obey his father. So if that's not a real sign of the times, I don't know what is. And he even gets an approving nod from Daddy, which might be his first ever, probably. With Roos allowing that there's time to kill each other after Stannis, which doesn't really incite ideas of stability and rule, and instead hints at what he hopes happens to them all out there, the two parties finally leave. As they do, Mance is employed to sing a song, and so he does. A sad, soft song. I wonder which one it is, because it's not mentioned. Could be the reigns of Castamere, that would be appropriate, wouldn't it, to commemorate the official fall of this alliance? Although you might think that Fionn would probably recognise that one, and he doesn't, apparently. So there we go, yet more tension after that little bursting of the bubble there, of what could happen now, these two could fight at any moment, and that's going to stick with us throughout the rest of the chapter as well. Now all of that was shown to us via Fionn Cam. It's one of those passages where you can really forget we even have a POV. I spoke about that last week on Radio Restos, actually. So we return to Fionn now, as Rowan the Spearwife grabs him, and he wrenches us away from her again, claiming that the plan must happen right now. So if you think we had tension before, well, here we are. And what she actually says is, the bath, it must be now. So we're told that it involves a bath in some way, but we're not sure how just yet. And we don't get any more details just now, 
because instead Fionn is resisting. He doesn't want any changes to a plan that already worries him, and even with all the visibility issues in the castle, he still thinks that doing this by day is a death sentence. But it's the continually falling snow that Rowan puts her faith in, as true Normaners and wildlings tend to do. She claims this turn up for the books in the Great Hall scuffle is going to force their hand. If the Freys and Mandalies are riding out for Stannis, that means that they won't be able to reach him because they're going to be in the way. So we can confirm that Mance was being genuine in trying to reach Stannis. Rowan is even calling him King Stannis, which seems significant because I'm not sure why they would head to him still. Maybe it's just he represents safety, I suppose. But either way, it means the plan has to start right now while Mance is off distracting everyone with his song and that makes our blood pressure rise again. Here we go. Fionn thinks it all a doomed hope, which is what we find to be true about most plans of this nature, to be fair. Yet he gets up anyway. He will do it. And at the same time, he gives away basically enough for us to piece together what's going to happen that we'll get confirmation in a moment. Squirrel slips away to get the other Spearwise, but Rowan sticks with Fionn. Apparently, he has been under essential guard ever since they got to him in his last chapter. That's probably a smart move. I don't think he would have volunteered the information to Ramsay for worry that he would still be punished for it, but you never know. He is a risk, isn't he? Outside, the storm still rages, and we get another classic symbol as we see that the snowmen, built along the walls just a few chapters ago, once signs of the sure Bolton victory, have morphed into twisted monstrosities, just like the Alliance itself. On top of that, Winterfell has become a battleground with its huge white walls, its frozen and slippery paths, its trenches lined in the snow, and its non-negotiable labyrinths. Doing anything at all is now incredibly hard in this castle, but Fionnsworth is proven yet again, because he, and he alone, knows how to negotiate, and he knows how to get through, and that value is obviously needed now more than ever. It is the Godswood that they return to yet again, though not to the Heart Tree this time, as there are men praying there before it prior to the battle. White Harbour men, you would guess. Instead, they relocate to the edge wall where Fionn looks at Winter, claiming even this part of the castle now, which is a true indicator of Winter's strength. That leads to him uttering the immortal words, Winter is coming. And Rowan does not like that, does not like Fionn saying the words of Ned Stark, not here, not in his place, and not after all that Fionn did to his family. Which, to me, really begs the question, who is Rowan? Why should the words of Eddard Stark mean anything to her, a wildling who supposedly comes from miles and miles away? And why does she call him Lord Eddard? It doesn't seem to quite match with her backstory. Either she has learned all this from Mance and has just adopted his opinion, or it's something she feels off her own back. And it's not clear why Mance would have this level of respect either, but at least it's more likely, given that he's a fairly worldly man, he's been here before, he'd know Ned's words. I briefly thought maybe this was something he could have got over from Benjamin Stark, but I did check and I don't think they've ever met, so that's an non-starter. But still, the vibe just seems to be coming too strongly from Rowan, specifically. I'd love for this to just be evidence of Ned's greatness and the respect for him being so great even the wall can't stop it, but it is something to think on. We'll come back to that in a second. Fionn's defence is that the Spearwise killed a boy and Little Walder as well, so obviously thinks what she means by what he did to the Starks was the killing of Bran and Rickon. Publicly, that is his largest crime, so it makes sense that he tries to defend against that aspect first, but that doesn't address the fact that he also brought about the fall of Rob and Catelyn and the Stark cause in general. He never addresses that enough in my book. And it's not really a defence anyway, just saying, well, you murdered a child too. That doesn't absolve you, Fionn. Besides, Rowan maintains they did not kill Little Walder, and she's apparently happy to admit to at least some of the others, so that plays into those theories of Big Walder being the true culprit. Besides that, you can see Fionn actually finding some value in himself by saying that he is on the same level as these people. Remember, not so long ago when he thought of himself as lower than rats? So we've absolutely got to a new level on this slowly climbed ladder, and this is an important moment for him. When Rowan calls him Kinslayer again and threatens him, Fionn actually smiles, maybe for the first time in this book, and is able to establish his value. 
He knows that they need him for this plan to get past the guards. He knows he's truly needed. And that has a large effect on his ego and his self-worth, that building sense of what's to come later. This is as go-for-broke as situations come, after all. He's risking everything. He's even risking that wrath of Ramsay, something that was unimaginable for him for this entire book. So if you can't smile and face down a spearwife now, when can you? This is it. Go for it. That doesn't stop Rowan spitting in his face and then wiping her hands in disgust that she got so close to the turncloak. So again, I have to ask those questions about why this matters so much to Rowan. Why should she be that bothered about Theon being a turncloak? Why should his crimes towards the Starks bother her this much? Perhaps it is just how badly the idea of turncloaks and kinslayers are valued amongst wildlings, but it just seems to be a step higher than it should be. It just seems to mark her soul heavier. And I can't work out why. I really hope we do find out. I really hope that the pink letter is not true and we do get to see Rowan again. Maybe she knew Benjen. Is that possible? Benjen had some friend, lover above the wall and she inherited all of his opinions? I don't know. It should be cool. I'd like to hear that, but I don't know. Hmm. One day, I'm hoping. Theon realises that this bothers her so much that it could even mean danger for him. But again, he's up against the wall. He's as sleep deprived as everyone else, so caution is a long forgotten concept. He defends himself again, admitting to certain crimes, but claiming that he is no kinslayer, that being the biggest crime of all. And Rowan thinks he is using his old defence of not being related to the Starks, and therefore it not being counted as kinslaying, a theory we've already debunked. But what he's really admitting is that it wasn't the Starks he killed. It was the two innocent Miller's boys, along with the mother they had once been fond of, or once slept with. It's timely, I think, to bring that up now, here, at the end. In many ways, this was still his biggest crime. As much as it might hurt us what he did to the Starks, killing two innocent boys and their mother is much worse, especially when including how much it screws of him they murdered a woman he once slept with. And many fans use that as a jumping off point that the Miller's boys were actually Fionn's own and he was actually a kinslayer all along, but I personally don't buy that. I don't think the timeline matches up even if the themes do. Besides, he doesn't tell Rowan that, because he doesn't believe her. Maybe that's because someone else being guilty of the same crime will make him feel better, will keep him feeling on the same level as someone else, finally. What he does say is this. There is blood on my hands, but not the blood of brothers, he said wearily. And I've been punished. Not enough, Rowan turned her back on him. To me, this might be a great way to sum up Fionn's future in wins. He has been punished, it's true, we're not denying that. We've seen the devastating effects, and George has coerced us into wanting better for this man that we hated. But that does not absolve him, not completely. He still needs further punishment, and to a degree, even Theon agrees with that. And that is likely what we'll end up seeing, I think. Theon does this grand gesture of saving Jane, and that's brilliant, that's great, but he still has to pay for what he's done. And there'll be a lot of justice talk when that finally does come, especially since he's with Stannis, the ultimate justice man. It'll align with so many themes. But actually, I want to take it back. Remember where we first met Theon. It was the same time we met Bran, that opening scene of the book, that ultimate show of justice and what comes to those who shirk their duty or turn their cloak. So I think that might be a pretty big hint of what's coming for Theon. Still, in the moment, this is nearly enough to anger him, to think that he could still strike at Rowan with his dagger. So there's further evidence of his own confidence returning, his own daring, and he is going to need that at chapter's end, so he smartly doesn't use all of it up here. Most importantly, he thinks that that is what Reek would have done, but not him. So finally, 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 we have Theon being able to dissociate from that identity and that prison in the clearest way yet. And why is that? Well, the answer is, we've already seen it. Reek could not allow that. But the old gods had known him, had called him Theon. Ironborn. I was Ironborn, Balan Greyjoy's son and rightful heir to Pike. The stumps of his fingers itched and twitched, but he kept his dagger in its sheath. So the true weight of that moment in the Godswood, the previous one that we saw, is finally revealed. Bran, speaking through the heart tree, was the true catalyst to Fionn thinking of himself as Fionn again. 
He's the reason for this chapter title change, for this incredibly important shift in Fionn's soul. And again, it's really difficult to oversell the importance here. That is huge, as huge as it comes for personal journeys within this series. And Bloodraven's theory that Bran can't affect things via the Weirwoods now lies in tatters. Now we don't know if that was Bran's intention. Maybe he's super mad at Fionn still, though him having the sainthood to not blame Fionn or desire revenge is a path many think that we will travel down, maybe both with Fionn and with Jaime. The relationship between Fionn and Bran is obviously much more important, given all that's happened between them, which extends before Clash, remember. And while I doubt Bran was hoping Fionn would focus on the Ironborn part of the truth, the point is he remembered he was Fionn. He got permission to be Fionn again from an external source, the ultimate external source in what he believes to be the Northern Gods. That is what allows him to be himself again and free him from Ramsay. He finally gets out of the mind prison. This is what allows him to do this plan. This is what allows Jane Poole to be saved and maybe much more besides once Fionn is outside. So again, it's immensely important for Fionn's soul and the state of it, as well as maybe the Northern War. I can't think of a better way to say this as critical, important. Remember, he once stayed his hand out of cowardice when he had a dagger before. Now he stays his hand out of bravery. Finally, Squirrel returns with the whole cast of Spearwives. Myrtle was mentioned to us before, and we've already met Holly, but now we have Willow and Frenya to complete the cast. And what a shame we're not going to get that long with them. That is unfortunate. They aren't equipped with weapons though, which Fionn takes as another doom sign. All they have is rope, yet they are all confident that the foolish Newlers, whom they seem to hate overall, will die soon enough. And they're probably right in general. Now is where the plan is revealed to us, should they get through the initial barrier of the guards of course. As they already have done with their murders, the Spearwives will make use of male arrogance in their not paying attention to women. It worked when they posed as camp followers, it worked now posing as serving girls, especially when everyone is busy thinking about Stannis or already riding out. So this is what they'll do. They'll get to Jane's room, they'll switch Jane with Squirrel, and then they'll leave. To an outsider, it'll look like six went in and six came out. Squirrel, a veteran climber of the wall, will shimmy straight out and down into the godswood, and there's job done. Even Fionn thinks this can probably work, and to be fair, it sounds a lot smarter than some of the heist plans we've already seen in this series. So the plan begins, and our heartbeats all begin thumping that little bit faster. The first part is in the kitchens. Filling Jane's bath will be their excuse to get into her chambers, so for that they need hot water and they head to the huge kitchens to do that, which reminds me of Aya and Harrenhal a little bit. Unfortunately, it's one of the strictest places in the castle right now, thanks to the food situation. So straight away from the beginning, Fionn's value is proved again. Ramsay's use of Fionn, his keeping him as his pet and his humiliating him by making him Jane's handmaid are all known throughout the castle. That's why George set that all up earlier, so that this seems like nothing out of the ordinary for the guards and the kitchen workers. That's good planning by Mance to use Fionn in such a way. And it also keeps them from being asked too many questions once Fionn declares that he's working on the orders of Ramsay. No one wants to hinder anything that he wants. Without Fionn, it's clear that the Spearwise wouldn't have progressed past stage one. Fionn makes it usual. Fionn knows how to incite Ramsay, like we've just said. And Fionn doesn't require too many questions because... One, they're used to him, but also because no one wants to talk to him anyway. Plus, already the girls are falling short in their required acting. We know they are capable. They've obviously used the camp follower role to great effect previously, but whether it is the pressure of the day getting to them, or just the distaste of acting like serving girls, they're acting all wrong. It was Fionn painted as the weak link, the one most likely to fray, but it's actually them, not teasing or flirting or acting natural, that's going to sink the boat here. Because that does incite the unwanted questions, when people start noticing that this is not the normal bunch of serving girls. They are still mere girls to these men, so it's not too big of a deal, of course, but this is the kind of thing that can trip up and can unravel the whole thing very, very quickly. Fionn is the one to step up and provide a cover story, 
and it just so happens to be one that might speed up getting this water because so far they've had to sit and wait. And as anyone knows in this kind of pressurized situation, the waiting around is clearly the hardest part. So they get their water and they go back out into the cold, back through the mazed castle, now full to the brim of soldiers preparing to ride out to war. Knights and archers and men at arms. Dude George is doing a superb job of doubling up our tension for the chapter. We get that building sense of the riding out and the battle soon to come. At the same time, we have the tension for this Jane plan. Real double jeopardy here. On top of that is the tension still displayed by the fact it's just the phrase Amandley's prepping to go out, and they're giving each other looks and warnings from across the yard here. Nothing actually comes to physical action, as Fionn tells us, not here, it may be different out there in the woods. Oh, we're betting it's going to be very different out there in the woods, and all of these men are thinking about the ones looking back at them far more than they are about Stannis, so it's sure to be a bloodbath once those gates are open. Now we've only been thinking about this from the Fionn slash Bolton perspective, think how much it is actually helping out Stannis as well. He's already on the back foot in terms of cold and fatigue and numbers, so if any part of House Bolton can take each other out, that is a major plus for his chances and the chances of the North. Although not if his potential allies and the Madleys are the ones who go down, I guess. We've been cheering for Team Stannis for the possibility of saving Jane, and that is now happening anyway, but it seems he'll still be a part of it in maybe sheltering her once they get out. And it's probably safer anyway. Let's imagine that the castle was about to be taken by Stannis, and Jane was still in here with Ramsay. Well, who knows what he would do in his final moments. We really, really do not want to imagine that. So in general, we're still pretty keen for Stannis and Asher to be successful in this battle, so it's all great news that maybe he'll get some plus out of it. Plus, anyone outside of the castle walls are enemies that Stannis has a much better chance against than those within, so extra good news. It's also helpful for Fionn and Co's purposes. The Freys and the White Harbour men are too busy giving each other the eye or prepping for riding to pay any attention to the shunned twig of a man and some handmaids. Unfortunately, the Dreadfort men don't have to ride out just yet, and they are the ones who guard the doors of the Great Keep, where Fionn is again required to get them through another barrier. This one isn't too difficult, with only the briefest reminder of what it is that Jane must have been going through which is, is still tough. The Spearwise think that was the last barrier, but Fionn knows better. We've got more guards to go yet. We've still got a need for secrecy. And even at this point, he won't call them bastards boys. Such is Ramsay's control. He's not going to risk that. So up the stairs they go, Fionn in the lead. And here, at the end of the arc, George allows one more glimpse of a mechanic we've seen all the way through Fionn's dance journey. The power of memory and being in a place you've been before. Winterfell, the most powerful place of memory, the one that would affect him most, does it again. He remembers as he has all over the castle, and this time on these steps is the memory of a happy childhood, leaping up the staircase, even if he did once knock old Nan down, and playing with Rob and all these memories that mean so much to him and make him appreciate what he once had. And perhaps these ones are coming to him because he, and likely we, figure he's about to come to the end of the road. Very, very possible. We can't ignore that chance. It's death and memory he fixes on now, as he remembers a great cast of characters that once surrounded him. From Jory, to Ned, to Harwin, to Fat Tom. Men who were lost to war. Men who were lost because of Fionn. Or aside from Harwin, who still lives last time we saw him, but Fionn doesn't know that. It's another type of ghost. Again, making him appreciate how lucky he was to have grown up around such, when he could have just been left at Pike to be beaten by his brothers. So even here, in the middle of this mission, Fionn is managing to have emotional breakthroughs. And that's before he reaches his biggest ghost yet. Here's the quote. And Rob. Rob, who had been more of a brother to Fionn than any son born of Balan Greyjoy's loins, murdered at the Red Wedding, butchered by the phrase. I should have been with him. Where was I? I should have died with him. There we go. That's the one we wanted. That's the one we needed Fionn to address. And he has in some ways throughout the book, but not like this. Rob, his brother, the one he loved most. Rob, who was slain because of Fionn's actions, even if he's still not completely addressing that part. 
and Rob, who he should have been beside when he died. That would have been right. That's how it was supposed to happen. And we've had some very, very similar thoughts from Jon Snow as well. So again, that more than anything probably makes us think that this might be Fionn's final hour. The idea that he should have died serving one of the Starks. And maybe he can do the same now. Jane isn't a Stark, but she is masquerading as one. And besides, she is one of the Stark's people. And the Starks value their people harder than themselves, so this act can still be seen as serving him still. I imagine there's a lot of first-time readers thinking such. About it being Fionn's death, I mean. Rereaders will know that he does survive, but that doesn't diminish the act. Besides, he can still do the same when a real Stark shows up at some point. It's just another superb emotional moment, this final focusing on that relationship with Rob that was so valued, and just reminding us of all we've lost from Winterfell, what was once here. It's a good time to be reminded of that when we've maybe got this chance of the Bolton Alliance finally being defeated. But really, I think it's that Fionn-Rob relationship that we're really looking at. But anyway, we can't unfortunately look at that too much longer because we're here at the final barrier, at the room that might as well say boss level on it and require a much bigger key if we're going to do one of our Zelda analogies. And George knows how to set the scene, with Fionn stopping suddenly and looking dead at two of Ramsay's lads. We get a real sense of the moment. And yet we discover that Fionn's group has actually lucked out in the two that happen to be here in Grunt and Sour Allen. It could be worse, Fionn figures. And that proves to be true. He's got a purpose of some mockery, but then he and the Spearwives are through the door. They are in the chambers. They've made it. The first part of the plan is done. It's the much safer part, sure, but still. And for the first time since that terrible terrible moment on her wedding night we're back in jane paul's presence and again i'm going to give you the warning now you might be able to hear my voice already strap yourselves in for some untethered emotion i'll call it no day had dawned inside this room shadows covered all one last log cracked feebly against the dying embers in the hearth and a candle flickered on the table beside a rumpled empty bed to talk about setting the scene the first two lines are probably more than enough for Jane, she's not seen a dawn since she first came in here on that fateful wedding day. And let's remember, this is nothing but a fancy self-her. She's never left this room. She's had to just sit and stew in her own hell ever since. Fionn even wonders if they are too late and she's maybe thrown herself out the window. We know that Ramsay could inspire such a feeling, but the windows are closed, so the spearwives start looking as they fill up the tub. Then the frayed trumpets start blowing, and itching starts in Fionn's fingers, and it all seems very urgent. And then, there, Fionn spots her curled up in a ball, small as can be, hidden as deep as she can in the shadows, underneath the skins of those that are supposed to protect the people of Winterfell, she is beneath the skins of wolves. Jane had pulled the furs up over herself to hide. From us? Or was she expecting her lord husband? The thought that Ramsay might be coming made him want to scream. I know, I've given you warnings already, but I'm going to do it again, because full disclosure, we are wading straight out into heartbreak country here, so just prepare yourself. It starts off with the stab that Jane has to hide, like a child. She can do the utmost that she can, little as that is, to escape Ramsay. We know she wasn't hiding from these people, she was hiding from her husband, from her own personal Satan. So already, our hearts are broken at that thought, that she needs to do this every day. And Fionn confirms she is right to. She's a defenceless child. He used to be a prince, but the thought of him coming still makes Fionn want to scream. And let's face it, tension here is an absolute pinnacle. Every single reader is perched on the edge of their seat at the same time, wondering if that door is about to open again to reveal Ramsay himself. It almost seems expected, doesn't it? That would be the worst possible outcome, and we've seen enough of those in the past. Out of this pile of wolfskins comes a single, terrified eye, and she says the word Fion, his name, his real name, and I think that's significant. At first, when Rowan comes forward and calls her Aya and talks of brothers, Jane forgets what the story is supposed to be. 
Now, we can't blame her. She's not left the room in weeks. She's not had to use the story of Ramsay. And besides, who cares when you are being put through such pain? But it does remind us of a whole other side of the tension. What will happen if the Spearwives catch on? Will they just take her anyway, just in case? Or will they abandon them? Will they even kill both Jane and Fionn to cover their tracks? At least, we don't want it to happen. Not when we are so close to maybe getting her out of here. And again, all these plans, they always fail at the final hurdle, so we're just expecting for that first trip up to come, aren't we? Luckily, Fionn is thinking lightning fast again to cover up Jane's mutterings, and he makes them seem natural. He says the names of the Stark brothers, and that seems to jumpstart Jane a bit. She remembers they're supposed to be her brothers. She remembers the name of Jon Snow, when Rowan tells her that's where she's going. And in a better world, with a lesser enemy, that'd be enough. Jane would weep with happiness and throw her arms around Fionn and let herself get taken out of here for once and for all. But this is not a better world, and Ramsay Bolton is no lesser enemy. Instead, we see what we've always seen before, the mind prison. The absolute core deep terror that Ramsay can inspire, and a cage without bars, as Jane repeats what Fionn had said earlier on in thinking that everything is a Ramsay trick. We've seen that plenty of times. She considers him the all-powerful, thinking everything is bound to be part of the terrible games that he plays and just another path to pain and ruin. She can no longer think of anything else. So this chapter, it might be called Fionn 1, but never ever think that there is not a reek present in this bedchamber. And here's where I'll admit that I had to take a pause in the writing of these notes. This is where I got the tears and the goosebumps, and maybe they're going to return. The goosebumps already have, if I'm honest. This is where I got that sense of absolute heartache. And I imagine for many of you, it is exactly the same. I'm not going to bullshit you, like I said earlier. I'm going to be upfront about this. This is an emotional part of the book, and I am definitely not exempt from that. After this next paragraph, I think that number of you feeling the same will probably turn to 100% because I am going to read it in full. Now, I'm not going to try and read it in Jane's voice, because there's just no point. I'm not going to be able to do that, but I will read it to you, much as I might not want to, and I'm going to do it because Jane deserves that. So here it is. Jane pulled her wolf skins up to her chin. No, this is some trick. It's him. It's my, my lord, my sweet lord. He sent you. This is just some test to make sure that I love him. And I do. I do. I love him more than anything. A tear ran down her cheek. Tell him... You tell him, I'll do what he wants, whatever he wants, with him, or, or with the dog, and please, he doesn't need to cut my feet off, I won't try to run away, not ever, I'll give him sons, I swear it, I swear it. Rowan whistled softly, God's curse the man. So you'll see what I mean about goose pimples, you'll see what I mean about tears probably, and you'll most likely share the feelings of absolute gut-wrenching horror that I do, and I already wrote this a couple of days ago. And I felt it then, I feel it now talking to you about it. I'm not sure it's possible for anyone to read that paragraph and not feel utterly, violently sick. And this is far from my first time reading it, I remind you. I don't know what number I'm on, but I've seen it before, and yet it still fills me with as much bile as it is possibly to feel. We needn't go too far into thinking of the physical acts that Jane has been forced into. I think just saying them is enough, isn't it? But we know it has been horror beyond horror. It's an abuse... Is an abuse so abusive it honestly breaks your mind a little bit. Physically, emotionally, mentally. I've already just had to pause the stupid mic. It is this breaking of the soul that I will put my foot down and say it's just as bad, if not worse, I think worse personally, than anything that's happened to Fionn. It is just the absolute worst in this dark series with a million dark things, in this darkest of the dark books. We can have a long and frankly pointless argument about who's had it worst or what the most despicable act is, that's true, 
There are so many to choose from, after all, and they're all worthy of their own attention. But I think I can save you some time here, dear listeners. This, this is the worst. This is the absolute rock bottom of A Song of Ice and Fire. Here, in the house of Eddard Stark, our original shining light, here in Winterfell, this is your evil. I believe that to my core, and I'll be honest, I'm not going to be persuaded off of it. And do you know how I can prove that to you? By reading the very next line. At the very tip-top of the page, at least on the version that I'm reading, here it comes, the darkest, most heartbreaking line in the series, a line, again, I'm going to be honest, I've been worried about having to discuss with you since I first clicked there was coming up. And bear with me here, because I'm not sure it's actually possible to read this without your voice breaking a bit, but here it comes. I'm a good girl, Jane whimpered. They trained me. The phrase, a song of ice and fire, seems more appropriate to me than ever, because that previous paragraph from Jane, that long one, that filled me with an icy, a kind of a surprise, it is a, a keen and pointed sadness and horror over what she was saying. And believe me, that's not gone anywhere, that kind of numbing deep down in the soul, just hearing something too horrible to hear. But now, on top of that, my veins, every cell in my body, is flooded with this boiling fire, with this anger over what has been done to this girl. And I could easily spend half an hour, an hour, talking to you about this single line of text. I really could. Because that is how powerful, how crushing it is. But I will try and give you the simplified version. I'm going to blink out some tears here. I'll try and give you some the simplified version. And, well, I've actually wrote that I'll try and do it without too much anger or tears, although I make no promises. And, well, yeah, I'd bear that in mind. No promises here. Firstly, let's select the centre of the sentence. The word whimpered. Whimpered. This is the blade of the sentence to me. I can't actually read what I'm writing here. This is what cuts you down as it floods you with this horrible, stinking pity for this poor girl. This absolute sadness for what she's been reduced down to. She's, she's pathetic. She's broken. She's whimpering like a sad animal or something. And it hurts us more than I could possibly describe. It is the absolute perfect choice as a world, and it makes the whole thing, in my opinion. But then there is our actual speech from Jane, is what she actually said. And if whimpered is the icicle, then these two are the flame. Jane protests that she is a good girl. She says she is a good girl, and here come the warworks again, because she has done what is required of her. And what Jane Paul, that innocent preteen who used to gossip and giggle on the steps of Sansa, has been taught being a good girl means is being a sexual slave. And how does she know that is what being a good girl means? Because they trained her to be such. They trained her to think that. They trained her how to be a sexual slave, how to give every inch of her body and soul to whoever was asking. And not only that, and believe me, I'm not trying to give you or I nightmares here, but she was most likely trained to make it as pleasurable as possible for them. That's what the word good became for her, the selling of everything you are to be pleasing to whoever is in front of you. We've seen the scars. We know how this was built into her. This idea that that is what she is supposed to do, that that is her purpose, that her only worth is as a, a essentially a living, breathing sex doll. And if that doesn't make you feel sick to your stomach, I don't know what to say to you. And even worse is the fact that Jane is saying this by way of protest. She's bringing this up because she's done all these nightmarish things that she was horrifically trained to do, and Ramsay somehow introduced something worse. So it's a, a pain of two halves, the pain of knowing what she's physically been through and the potentially worse pain of realising what Jane has been brainwashed into thinking about her role and purpose in the world. And here, I must remind you, I must shout from the heavens, this is a girl we are talking about. A child. 
So this long dehumanizing journey that Jane has been on, well, when you look at it, I stick by my take. It is the worst we ever see in the series. I don't even think it's particularly close, to be honest with you. This is the very worst thing we're put through as readers. This is the very worst thing a character is put through. And I think that the fact that this is a character who had no part in the plot whatsoever and was just caught up as an innocent casualty of people not just playing at war but playing for their fucking thrones is as on point with George's overall message, his overall point of writing these books and the effects of war as you are going to get. And let's not kid ourselves. Wherever Jane was sent to learn these hellish lessons of both body and mind, she's not the only one. They must churn out thousands of boys and girls every year and there must be hundreds of places around Planetos that do that and each and every one of these victims deserve the deepest sympathies of our soul for it is just as horrifying for each of them it just so happens that we only know the one of them. And unfortunately it also just so happens that that one is the only one to end up in the clutches of one of the only people on the planet who could be conceivably worse. Of course what we all know but don't really want to say is that it hurts so deep because it's so realistic. This happens in our own world, historically, of course, but in the present day as well. And it happens way, way more than we'd like to admit, especially if we don't want to have those nightmares. Again, it is sickening. Both the training and Ramsay somehow topping it. The fact that Jane has even retained this much sanity is honestly a miracle. This poor child, this victim of the highest order. Again, I'll say it, if there's a more sobering moment in the series, I don't know what it is. If there is a line that makes you just forget everything the second you read it, more than this one does, please point it out to me. Because I forget that we're in the middle of a heist here. We're in the middle of a war. You forget whatever the Freys and Mandalies are doing. What's happening with Stannis. You can forget the Starks and Lannisters and Daenerys and the others and all of Westeros. You forget Theon and the Spearwives are here in the room. We're supposed to be in the middle of an escape attempt. All of that is gone when you read this line. This line is one that you read and it makes you forget your own damn name. We should all get on our knees and give our respect to George for being able to craft such a moment much as it hurts us. Let's hope he never does so again. But if we're giving out respect, and I like to think George might agree with me here, let's give it to Jane, for there's no person more deserving. So I'll cease on that line now, that one singular line that still is an ice cube in my soul. At least my mouth will stop talking about it, but you must know that that is a lie, because I'm still thinking about that line, if I'm honest. You never, ever really stop thinking about it after you read it. But that doesn't mean I'm returning to the text. Oh no, not just yet. Because that was all icicle talk. That was the, the cold chilliness of it. We've still got the flaming anger to deal with. And you might remember, what seems like an hour ago now, Rowan said, God's cursed the man. And while I see what she is going for, she's actually wrong on three separate counts. First, she enlists the gods. I'm sorry, but for me, they're just too slow and they're too ineffectual. This is a task that can only be undertaken by us. Next, she says, they should curse someone. And uh, trust me, there'll be a lot of cursing. Cursing right from our cause. Because as readers dealing with literary characters, we're quite limited on our options, but we'll be hoping for something more substantial than that. We want blood. We want vengeance. We want pain. The worst, most drawn-out kind to be repaid to those who are more than deserving for what they've done to Jane. And finally, she says, man. And this too is wrong, for it is singular. And this is not a singular crime. Ramsay deserves our scorn, our curses, as much as anyone. He deserves the very cruelest of ends the character can have, and he deserves years of suffering, don't get me wrong. Rowan is on the money there, but it is not Ramsay alone who put Jane in this position. It is not Ramsay alone 
who knew Jane was going through this and did not stop it. And I say that every single person involved in this horrific plot, in placing Jane here and allowing her to suffer through it, deserves our most venomous curses. Right from the big players, the shot callers, to the men stood on the door and listening. Doing nothing makes you guilty, I say. Doing nothing makes you an accomplice. And we can say context this and in their shoes that. Think of the consequences. Think of what would happen to the guard who tried to speak up. Blah, 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 blah. And I will still say no. Anyone who helped this happen or allowed it to happen is a failure of humanity, is a failure of society. If we were going to sit by and just let that happen right in front of us, then why did we ever crawl out of the ocean? So I will curse these guards. I will curse these handmaidens. I will curse Ramsay's boys and the Northern Lords who are aware of what was going on and were party to it, no matter their circumstances. I will curse Steelshanks Walton. I will curse all those down in King's Landing that allowed the coup to happen. I will curse Cersei Lannister and Janos Slint. I will, of course, curse Ramsay Bolton. And most of all, I'm sure you expected it. With all the spite and anger that I can muster in my heart, I will call out and I will curse Peter fucking Baelish, the man who put her here, the man who threw her into that school and initiated this walk of life, the man who did it all as no more than a side deal, something that may or may not have come about as useful. And this is perhaps the worst thing, that this part, this plan, isn't even important to him. He's torn a young girl's soul to shreds, her one life is in tatters, and it wasn't even for anything that mattered to him, really. He just threw her in there like he was taking a flyer because why not? And I've said it before, and I'll say it again, that there's no more a callous person in these books. I swear the others are not going to be as bad as Peter fucking Baelish. He is the ultimate villain. <sighs> At this point, I'm just repeating myself. I've called him that many, many times, and I will again. He is the worst. He's the man in the street, the most evil, and he did this to Jane. With all forethought and planning and knowing what it was. And... I hate him for so many reasons, but none more powerful than that. And now I'm going to hit pause on this recording because, Jesus Christ, it hits me hard and we still have a chapter to deal with somehow. I'll be back with you in a second when I've calmed down a little bit. Well, I didn't really calm down at all, if I'm being completely honest. Wow, what a moment that is. That singular moment, that singular sentence still, I'm still reeling from. I'm just going to let it settle with you because, let's face it, I can't get across what it's really like, the deep emotion to feel. All I can really do is shout and swear at Peter Baelish, which is a good pastime and I recommend it. I'd love to go on more and more about, again, him being the ultimate villain, him being the most evil person in these books. But I have said it before, we still do have half a chapter to talk about somehow, so I guess I'll move on if I can. So, the Spearwives. The true gravity of the situation perhaps becoming clear to them as they realise that they are dealing with a beast that can do this to another human being are starting to lose their cool, understandably. They need to get out of here, and Holly is so worried she's willing to use her knife to achieve that. Rowan smartly points out that such an approach will make the girl scream, and Fionn knows that that means their doom. And even he's lost his edge now. He's going back to the beginning of the chapter, where he said this is all foolish from the start, that they will all die for this. Yet he summons courage from somewhere. And it's not conscious, he doesn't think on it, he just does it, as we've seen true bravery come in this form multiple times before, with Tyrion and other characters. You know me, he says. I'm Theon, you remember. I know you too. I know your name. Remember, Jane was with Theon while he was being made to be Reek. If he can become Theon again, it opens up the possibility that she can be Jane again. He is her role model in this situation that they alone share. And all it requires is her wearing a false name a little while longer. Come with us. Come with me. We will take you away from here. Away from him. 
Her eyes widened. Please, she whispered. Oh, please. So it has to send our hearts soaring, doesn't it? Yet, also, the tension is again at its highest possible mark. It seems so thematically set up for failure. We know what George is like in these moments. And if we've come this far, if we've been told all of these awful things and made to feel all of this darkness, only to witness this escape attempt fail, well, come on, we'll be tearing apart our books with our bare teeth. And I even contend that rereaders feel exactly the same in this situation. I don't think the tension lessens any if you've read this before. So she takes Fionn's hand, she gets up, and we're on our way even if we do have to see more physical evidence of her many abuses. The two girls swap their disguises as Fionn instructs Jane on what to do, even down to think that this might actually work. Again, worrying readers in the process because that's never a good idea, is it? At the same time, Jane begs Fionn not to leave her, to stay close. And that's something he agrees to as we can appreciate that he is genuinely in the hero role right now. Fionn, remember, this is who we're talking about. You remember what Fionn was like? Yeah, he's in the hero role. So everything is in place. Squirrel is in Jane's clothes, Jane is dressed as a maid, the only thing left to do is to do it. So we all take a big breath as Frenya opens the door. And out they go again. Grunt selects Willow as the one to grope, which is awful for Willow, especially in just how casual it is, but it is lucky overall. Firstly, because Jane deserves no more of that kind of thing, but also because it would have shattered their very unsteady chance. For a moment, Fionn felt almost giddy. They never looked. They never saw. We walked the girl right by them. George knows what he's doing here. He absolutely knows we definitely think something is going to go wrong any minute now. And Fionn jumps on board with the notion. They are nowhere near safe just yet, despite his positive outlook just then. They're in a huge castle that is locked up for siege, though that only highlights Fionn's value again. Winter itself helps them out with the guards outside, given they are turned away from the snow and not looking at them. Fionn thinks of what Ramsay is going to do to them afterwards, and we know it is going to be bad. Although it is hard to feel sympathy for Ramsay's lads, at least. The storm keeps hiding them now. Even though they are stood in the middle of the yard, it is so bad you genuinely can't tell that you're stood in a castle, which is amazing to think of and it's perfect for them. And this is where they drop their pails and split up. Rowan, Willow and Myrtle go off to fetch Mance and we never learn anything more of them other than what the pink letter claims. We've got no idea, which is infuriating, especially if you're like me when you want to know more about Rowan. So that leaves Fionn, Jane, Frenya and Holly. And Fionn is despairing about their chances now with just two allies, especially when Rowan seemed the smartest of all of them. Not only that, but he realises that they are beyond the point of no return. If he'd turned round before entering that bedchamber, there might have been a chance of forgetting it all, but not now. Whatever happens, if it's not escape, then it's death for the both of them. Or even worse, Ramsay. Fionn takes the lead now, wanting to avoid that possibility, heading for the battlements gate. But here is where the details of the castle that we love so much come back into play, for it is only half a gate. You can get through the inner wall, and you can get across the moat, but you can't get out the outer wall. So now is where the plan starts to feel flimsy and short on details, almost as if they'd never really believed they would get this far, so they didn't bother filling in the small stuff. How will they explain to the guards that the handmaids would want to go on the walls? What will they do when they reach that outer wall? And what if they check identities? So we're starting to live on hope, and the tension skyrockets in kind. Yet again, it is Fionn thinking on his feet when they reach the gate. Or maybe this was pre-planned, but even so, well done for remembering it in this kind of situation. And it's Fionn he insists on being, even when they originally called him by that other, forgotten name. And that seems important, doesn't it? If it wasn't no return before, it is now, as the spearwives slip forward with their old camp follower trick, only to flash out their knives and wrestle the spear away before killing the two guards. And that is when Jane screams. Perhaps, by some miracle, throughout all her other woes, she's never had to watch someone die. We can hope. Either way, it feels like all the walls have come down now. All the bets are off. We've got to go for broke. This is it. So Fionn snatches up Jane, clamps her hand on her mouth, and he runs. 
Their amazing run of luck continues with the drawbridge being down, but there are also trumpets and running feet that have been seen. Realising the tactical advantage the drawbridge offers, with it going over the moat, Frenya, in a move only describable as badass bravery and complete dedication to the cause, stays behind to fight off their pursuers with her stolen spear. That's a, that's a pretty wow moment that takes your breath away. Fionn doesn't hang around to appreciate it though. He's essentially, painfully, dragging Jane up the stairs to the battlements of the outer wall and he even thinks he won't make it until Holly helps him out and together they finally reach the top. Frenya is already, impressively, fighting a bunch of guardsmen but while Holly is desperately screaming at Fionn to lead them the hell out of here she realises that their luck has finally run out. Frenya, brave Frenya, had the rope. There's no way down. And in the end, like most good plans, it came down to a simple cog that just didn't turn. It's just human error, as simple as. Perhaps Holly sees the humour in that, as she laughs just before crossbow crawl hits her. And then there's a second, and then she's down. And we assume the same is true for Frenya. All that's left is Fionn, Jane, and the snow. Fionn can see crossbowmen reloading. There's someone running towards them. Someone needs to take charge, and it's going to have to be Fionn. Far off to the north, he heard a warhorn sound. Stannis, he thought wildly. Stannis is our only hope if we can reach him. So there's no Mance, there's no Rowan, there's just them, it's up to him. And if he fails, then it's Ramsay time, and that thought is enough to move his muscles. Fionn grabbed Jane around the waist and jumped. Wow, it is thrilling. Again, I'll ask you, is it the most thrilling chapter in A Song of Ice and Fire? It has to be right up there, doesn't it? It's struggled to top it. Even if it didn't have that massively dark bit in the middle, it would probably be a lot of people's favourites. But now we have to talk about this massive win we essentially get at the end here because it worked. Both Fionn and Jane escape and this is almost as big a win as we get anywhere in the entire series, especially given all that we just covered about what has been happening here. They literally escape from evil. For the first timers, again, it's not that clear cut. They don't know the specifics, but most probably they still want to buy into that feeling of success and victory. Now we know what is coming next. We know that Fionn and Jane are going to be picked up by... Morzumba waiting there outside this wall of snow. We know they're going to get to Stannis and safety. Well, for Jane. Anyway, we know that's all going to set up Fionn's wins preview chapter. So this worked. They are safe. First time reader, we don't know. It's a massive, massive cliffhanger. We're left to wonder for a few more chapters yet. Not that long, but long enough. So the thrill keeps going in that respect. And let's be honest, we could talk about all the potential and possibility of what's going to happen with both Fionn and Jane in Winds and Beyond because there's plenty of plot lines and ideas about that, but I think we're just going to have to leave it because we've spent so, so long talking about this chapter. I can't really spend too much time wrapping it up here, but, well, that's where we are at the moment. We don't know what's happened to them, but we're sure happy that it's not Ramsay so far. Rereaders definitely glad that that's the case as well. That does lean into supporting that the pink letter is true, but let's not dive into that right now. Instead, let's do what we must and actually say goodbye to Fionn. For this book, at least, we do know he's going back in wins. We do have a preview chapter, but still, this is a really, really big goodbye. Like we said at the beginning, one of the most important arcs in a single book, certainly in dance. A heck of a change in pace to Fionn's overall series arc from when we had in Clash. So that can't be said enough. And now we're losing this major part of dance, the biggest part so far. Again, like we said at the beginning. Not only that, but we're losing half of our northern plot. We're going to get no more information on Winterfell or the Boltons, or Mance, and the Spearwives, and everything that's going on there. All we have is the Finkletter, which we obviously cannot trust, and the very little amount that we'll get in Ash's next chapter, a lot of which is guesswork and that type of thing. So after all that build-up, and after finally returning to Winterfell that we want to do so much, that's unfortunately gone, and we have to wait for wins as we realise, oh, this battle is not happening here. We have to wait for this massive, huge moment in the series. So 
So really, without delving too far into it, we've finished with the perfect kappa to Fion's arc. All those themes that we've built up so heavily, all that looking back at past crimes and thinking what he deserves and what he must do, how can he make it right, etc, etc. While those questions are still very much alive and they're very, very complex, but he does have his hero moment. He does serve its purpose. If this is it, if this is all Fionn ever does and Stannis does execute him in Fionn 2 in Winds of Winter, then he's still done a massively, massively good thing. He saved a young girl's life who desperately needed saving. And no, it doesn't clear all the past crimes, but it is a major, major force for good in the world. So that's great. And it really does help to put his whole journey in perspective. Now, assuming that he's not killed straight off, then there's still plenty of things that can still happen. He can still help out Stannis. He can still give information on Windfell. He can help do further good if he's left to live that long. So hurrahs all round. In those regards, we're still probably thinking Fionn's not do that happy an ending and who knows how long he'll last. But he also gets to reunite with Asher. We'll see that soon enough. That's really cool for both of them. That's much needed, especially in all that's happening. But unfortunately, really, we just have to wait. So it is goodbye, Fionn. Thank you for this massively, massively important streak through dance. Very, very dark chapters. They're not that fun to have analysed and gone through, let's be honest. But this one, at least, was a thrill and a pleasure. That's enough for Fionn talk right now. That is a long, long talk about Fionn, isn't it? Let's get back now to Marine. Let's head to our third chapter, which might be even bigger, certainly overall. It's back for Danny Nine. So you would have thought that would be a big enough victory, wouldn't you, there in Fionn's last chapter? But apparently, no, we're going to get another one. And again, well, I'm just going to have to really speed through this intro because look at the clock. Look how much time we've been talking already. We're only halfway through. And like I say, this might be the bigger chapter. So we had that huge build-up of expectation through that earlier chapter, but also just in the arc in general as well. Again, we know we're reaching the end of the book here. And at some point, there has to be a big payoff for this huge storyline and all the things that have happened. So many, many different plot lines in Daenerys' story. We've had all of this set up for war. Now has come a very uneasy piece. There's still the harpy looking somewhere that's got to pay off at some point. And that's just thinking of external factors. What about the internal, what about Danny's personal buildup? Again, that we covered so much earlier. That is going to explode at some point, we would assume. And wouldn't you know it, we've got this big moment of basically everyone within this separated storyline gathering together. And you think, hmm. So we already think that's pretty suspect. And George, well, he's going to have to play on that throughout, isn't he? He's definitely going to play into our notions that this could happen at any time. Something's going to go off. He's going to keep tricking us. And then eventually, well, he'll deliver. And he'll deliver in pretty much the biggest style yet. Certainly, perhaps his most cinematic style. And given that we will spend most of this chapter thinking something is going to go down because of that arc, because of the early chapter, because of Danny's own feelings, I think it's a worthy payoff. And to be honest, I'm not even going to delay it any further. I know there's so much we could say about this chapter before even going into it in terms of theme and everything else we normally go through, but let's just go for it because it's a big one. So we're travelling from the bleakest white snows of Winterfell to the clearest blue sky here on the opening line in Marine. And why are we focusing on the fact that the sky is empty? Well, maybe it's because soon it will become filled with a very familiar, very welcome shape, just to spoil you for anyone who's not aware what's going on at the end of this chapter. 
Danny obviously is not thinking about that just yet. She wants us to focus on the fighting pits, as that is what dominates these early lines. George wants the same, even if he is going to supply all these hints and throw us this big build-up of tension and expectation, he still wants that big cinematic moment to be a surprise, which it certainly is, I don't think anyone was actually expecting that. Now we begin with Masande trying to persuade Danny not to attend the opening of the fighting pits, something Danny would gladly agree to, if she possibly could. And this is another moment that just makes you second-guess Masande a little bit, if you've had that suggestion that she's not quite what she seems. Now I've said before, and I still can't quite buy into that, purely because I don't have an explanation of what else she could be. Nothing quite connects about her being a faceless man, or something to do with Quaif, or an agent of someone else. I always feel that you can get halfway to an explanation, but no further. So, I don't know what to say to that, but it is true, she does keep sticking out to us, and that's going to happen more and more in Barry's chapters, I think, so we'll have to revisit it there. And what she could be doing, for a much simpler explanation, is just caring for her friend. She knows that Danny doesn't want to go, she knows this is the complete opposite of what Danny wants, so she tells her not to. It really could be that straightforward. But it does make you think, why doesn't she want her going? Does she maybe know about the locusts? Does she know of danger in general, or of the harpy? Maybe she even senses Drogon's return... Probably not, but we could make any guess at this point. Either way, as much as Danny might not want to, she knows she must. She has a role to play if this is all going to be worth it, as we discussed earlier. There's no point getting to this point of potential peace and your actual end goal and then throwing it away. Now, we could argue that that's never going to happen anyway, but still, Danny has to try. But she doesn't have to be happy about it, especially about having to wear her damn floppy ears still. But she will do it. Though we should note that in these opening lines, she continues to think on the victims of this grand opening, the death that is soon coming, rather than how she herself feels. She makes numerous references to how she feels and how little she's going to like this day, but for her, the conscious focus is just about the poor people this is actually going to affect, because of course, that is Danny's line, isn't it? Masande also mentions there are other duties to be done. Sir Barristan awaits, as does Quentin, with his chums wanting yet another word. And Danny obviously thinks that she didn't make herself clear with her dragon exhibition earlier on, so she says, oh, I'm going to speak to Quentin some other day. I've got enough on my plate, I don't want to deal with that again. And even the first timers know that's normally a sign that there will be no other day, for whatever reason, and we know that to be true now. This will forever remain a misconnection, first for Danny's absence, and then obviously for Quentin's death. So we have to ask the question, what was he going to say? What was his next tactic going to be? Because we're pretty sure he wasn't giving in or anything like that. Now, we might find out in his later chapters. I don't think we do, but maybe we do. But maybe I'm wrong. But right here, at least, I and the first-time reader are just left to guess. But it is worth bringing up that, again, the first-timer may well feel that this is building up another tension that could relate to Quentin. Why is he being highlighted at the beginning here? Danny did bring up his own danger in that last chapter, so maybe this will be the big ending for him this late in the arc. We don't know, do we? So that's something else we're going to have to carry with us throughout this. Danny will meet with Barry, of course. He's to be part of the day. And he has a gripe when she goes to meet him. Danny will be guarded by the brazen beasts and their masks today, when he would prefer the unsullied. He doesn't trust people in masks as a rule, but when you combine that with the fact there's been a major leadership change in the brazen beasts, supposedly, with Skahaz's dismissal, there's no way you can know what they intend to do. And in all fairness, it will turn out that Barry is pretty right about this when we discover later on that Skahaz is still around. And besides all that, even the ones he thinks he can trust, he thinks they're untried and incompetent and it's just not good enough. Because he feels the same tension and build-up that we do, he thinks something could very easily happen here, I need the best around Daenerys if I'm going to keep her safe. And while this is also a nice setup for Barristan having to work with Skahaz later on, the focus on these masks that are going to be part of his plot, we're also getting another setup of tension for us. Now we wonder, is Barry going to turn out to be right? 
Are we going to see Danny betrayed or let down by her guards when it matters most? This could be the return of the harpy, or we can even build on what we learnt from Tyrion about some of the slaves slash freedmen being displeased about her marriage and peacemaking with the Yonkish, and maybe they'll act out in some way. Possibly we could even think it will be Skahaz back for revenge at his dismissal, very easily. Either way, it's another question that George places in our mind. It really is too easy for anyone to just slip behind a mask. So that's another expectation of something that could happen, just contributing to that build-up we're going to get basically on every page in this chapter. Danny has enough problems on her mind for all that stuff about masks, though. She says, You fret too much, sir. I will have you beside me. What other protection do I need? I am one old man, your grace. So if we're going to worry about Danny and about Quentin, why not include Sir Barry in that? We don't know he's got four POV chapters yet to come at this point, so we can easily envisage a situation where there is some secret attack from these masks or elsewhere and Barry has to die to protect his queen. That just fits too strongly, so again, we're worried. Why is George pointing out that he's an old man, unless that's going to come to play a part in it? And we'll find out actually it will, because he will fail in a certain regard, just not the way we're thinking right now. And all of that is ironic, because the next person that's brought up is Strong Bellas, the one of Danny's group who will actually suffer and come to harm. For now, Barry has to accept Danny's confidence, so he moves to following on of the plots they formed in her earlier chapter. Pretty Maris has already been dispatched, but before she left, she informed Barristan that the Windblown always wanted to come over to her. That was always the plan, even before Danny asked. And that sounds like a convenient lie to these two, but for us readers, we know it is actually the truth. Unfortunately, the Dornish Free ruined that idea with their own plot, and don't fool yourself into thinking that that has been forgotten by Maris and her tattered prince. Treachery on treachery, the Queen fought wearily. Is there no end to it? That's a generally a pretty good summary of almost every part of this world, but especially among all these cell swords. It's actually tough to keep track of, and it's most certainly not going to get any easier at the beginning of Winds, trust me. So even though this sounds like great news that the Windblown wanted to come over, Danny has to be suspicious. Brown Ben taught her that, and Barry shares those doubts. But he still delivers the news that the Tattered Prince is asking for Pentos, not gold, if he is to join her. Originally, that simply confuses Danny. It is a pretty strange request. And it also sounds kind of ideal. You would gain a sellsword company while depriving the Yunkish of one of theirs, which would bring you a lot closer to flipping the odds, and all you have to give up is a promise. One that won't be collected for ages yet. Hundreds of people in Danny's position would have just said yes straight off, but then we know Danny is not your average person. Most worryingly, she wonders if she'll ever even leave for Westeros and get the opportunity to pay the prince with Pentos, which is the opposite of what we want to hear. But then she gets back to thinking of what is right. She lays no claim to Pentos, she says. It does not belong to her, and she has no right to it. As far as she knows, it is committing no crime in the same way that Slaver's Bay has. And on top of that, Ilioma Partis lives there, the one who took her in and gave her Drogo, and gave her her dragon eggs, even more importantly, as well as Barry and Belwas and Grolio. Okay, she's ignoring the rather large important part about him selling her like a piece of furniture, but still. And she's not going to repay all that by torching his city and handing it over to a sellsword. And remember, she knows not of the prince's connection to Pentos, I assume. So that's interesting because she never thinks that much about Illyro, and I have to wonder if that positive attitude towards him is going to last all the way through the series. I'm going to say probably not. And Danny also says no to this idea of giving the Tattered Prince Pentos. So we get more set up for Quentin's storyline because the Tattered Prince really, really wants this named price. Braston agrees with Daenerys' decision, which is cool, but it's a shame for us because we just want her to win this war. We just want her to deal with Marine, get over to Westeros. We don't mind if Pentos gets given to this prince, let's just go for it. Unfortunately not. Hisdar Zolarak interjects himself into the chapter now, declaring the same positivity and brashness that he did earlier on. Everything is wonderful, he insists, as he leads Danny to take up her place on this twin-throned palaquin that will present them just as Hisdar means to, the rulers, the joint rulers, that's the important part. 
Danny is not of the same mood, as she tries to argue still that this will be a bad day for those who die, but his die won't even allow her that. He insists this is something that slaves should aspire to, that it can get no better for them, this is the peak of their lives, to die in front of thousands cheering, or sometimes jeering, their names. We can see that such brainwashing has worked on a good many pit fighters throughout the years, we know that from his dad's bunch, but Danny must just feel like she's talking to a brick wall over here. How can no one else get why this is a bad day? How can no one else think that death is a bad thing? Unfortunately, just no one's getting it. Again, his dad champions whatever works for him best. We've always known that, and we have a bit of a tie together of theme right back from the beginning here. Remember, this was the argument that his dad very first made when we were introduced to him, this opening of the fighting pits. This is it, he's getting it, this is his day. He's very smug about himself. Really, it serves as his big arrival pie, his coming out pie, as much as the wedding was, and it's another subtle I've won sign to Danny. He gets what he wants, she does not get what she wants. The sense of importance builds again as we're shown how busy the plaza outside of her pyramid is already, despite the hot bricks that Danny repeatedly mentions to us. Almost all of these people are heading towards the big show at Daznag's pit, whether they be riding or walking. This is a big deal for everyone, it's an event. And when they see Danny emerge, they cheer, and not for the last time this chapter. But that just makes Danny feel uncomfortable. How can they cheer when she feels so wrong? What have they got to be so happy about? It just all seems completely backwards, both about this and the marriage in general. So the build-up is continuing, again from that earlier chapter. After a whole book of feeling, let's face it, rotten in every chapter, Danny is hitting pretty much her lowest point, which again, always means that something has to happen. And to continue this sense of irony and this weird kind of cheering, clapping, Danny thinks of how they are cheering where she once stood impaling the great masters. So these people in front of her, they're obviously kind of a, a fickle bunch with kind of short memories, and it just makes it all seem that much more ridiculous to her. This is also where the drum beats start booming inside Danny's mind here, and they'll be constant throughout the, much of the chapter, and it just provides some chapter sequencing, doesn't it? We had drums outside Winterfell, now we've got them here in Marine. As she leaves the pyramid and enters this traffic going towards the pit, Danny is surrounded by an outer layer of strangers in the Brazen Beasts. Their masks are highlighted again, so we're forced to wonder who is underneath each mask again as well. Those in her inner ring are those much closer to her. We've got your Belwas, your Dothraki, your Barristan, and also Resnak, unfortunately, but I suppose his dad needs someone to chat to. So they're all here, we can really get this list going, it's just everybody being together all at once, the whole city is joining them, and again that sense of build-up, which I've probably said already 50 times, I'm going to say 5,000 more, is really at full throttle. If there was a time for a big old moment, for a culmination of a two-book arc, it might be right now. And also Quentin is there as an afterthought, just to keep our interest up in him as well. As they move forward, even her handmaids can find interest in the upcoming tilts. They were already chatting about it earlier, but Danny just can't take part. But thinking about these two Dothraki women does lead her back to thinking on her Dothraki husband, as it so often does. She reminds herself that death came with that marriage as well. It was no dull affair, remember, yet somehow the two don't quite match up, they don't compare. And she's gone from proud warriors who make death a part of their culture, however foolish that might still be, to a corrosive society who have made it their sport and their entertainment, and it sickens her. The drums are getting all the louder already, and suddenly we're past thinking about Theon and Stannis outside Winterfell, and are instead zipping all the way back to Catelyn and the Red Wedding, especially when Barry is drawing his sword, everyone's halting, we're outside the Pyramid of Pal, who all hate Danny, remember, and we're already wondering, is this the moment, is something actually happening? Even when we're told it's simply a blocked road, the moment is one of absolute tension. George has made us suspicious people. Even while Danny is getting on with being nice and trying to help out the man who's collapsed, because she's awesome of course, both Barristan and Re-Readers are busy looking for the trap. 
After all, I'm pretty sure something similar happened in the bread riots. I think there was some hold up there, the crowd took advantage, I can't really remember, but I think that's true. Besides, as mentioned earlier, we waited for something to interrupt the wedding, to finally turn this plot on its head, and it never happened. We've already been shown how rotten the piece is, so why is there not an attempt to knock Danny off as well? That could easily fit in. And again, the building towards it is just full of tension. And we're right, we're completely right, and that is going to burst, we just didn't know we'd have to wait a little bit longer for the big moment. But these fake ones, these false starts that George is planting everywhere, they're part of the build-up for that. That is intentional, just to keep us on our toes. We never know when it's going to come. When Barry puts our concerns into words about masks and harpies appearing from nowhere, it's his dart again claiming that everything is rosy, just like he did in the last chapter. Which makes us all the more suspicious, of course. Especially since we're talking about the harpy. He always seems to say the wrong thing, but in just sweet enough a way to get by. Although this time, he actually does pretty well when Danny wonders how much difference she's made in the freeing of her slaves. Some of them still have to go through the same hardships, just with a different label, and she uses this fallen man as an example. But Hisdale points out that things are better. They're not perfect, but they're better. The man is paid now. He's not being whipped because he's fallen down. And you know what? As much as we don't like him, he is actually right. It is these small steps that will eventually lead to the larger difference, we can hope. So Danny finds herself agreeing with him for once, even if he does return to his billboard talk straight off. Now we finally come to Daznak's pit, soon to be famous amongst all us readers. It is the grandest of all the fighting pits, which makes sense, and we find it's essentially a gigantic stadium. A bowl with ringed seats, Danny calls it. But I think we've all got a pretty clear picture on our heads, although the differing colours of these tiers is a nice touch. His star leads them down, through to the red brick seats, so again, just note how many times that red and hot bricks have been mentioned so far already. I figure this is an ode to Astapor, the most famous of the red bricks, and the largest stain on Danny's legacy. She figures this fighting pit to be another great stain, that she should put her name to such an atrocity. That, or perhaps it is another hint to Drogon. The red of fire, the heat of the bricks, dragon. Even as they sit down and witness these vendors, we can see how much this is carved out as entertainment, a sickly entertainment for a rotten city, Danny figures. The comparisons to our own sporting venues are right there in our face now. It is mystery time here in the stadium as Hisdar orders some food and Balwas bellows with delight at the honeyed locusts that are delivered. Hisdar is content to let him munch, but he suggests that Danny try some as well, although she declines. For the first timer, it's completely run of the mill, you really wouldn't notice it, but for the rereader, we are scouting for clues, as we know it'll turn out these locusts were assumedly poisoned. They nearly kill strong Balwas, and certainly would have killed someone much smaller, someone like Daenerys. So unfortunately here, time hamstrings us yet again. There are so many theories we could really get our teeth into about the poison locusts and who put them there and what they were supposed to do. I think we can probably agree they were probably supposed to kill Daenerys. I have my ideas I subscribe to. I'm sure you have yours. There's plenty of questions to ask. I mean, was this an attempt? Was it just bad luck? Was someone even targeting Balwas? Probably not, but you never know. And did Hisdar know? No, he didn't eat any, but he did talk them up an awful lot, didn't he? And if it wasn't Hisdar, then who? Was it Galaza over there on the other side? We'll talk about her in a minute. Are we completely wrong about the both of them and it's someone else, some other harpy somewhere? Is it something from the Yunkai? We don't know. Unfortunately, we just don't have time to really dissect all the evidence. Personally, I say his star, but I normally do. And perhaps we'll find some time to talk about that a little bit more when Barrison's puzzling over the same question in his chapters. So we'll save that for later because right now, the end point is Danny didn't eat them and Belwest does survive. So that's good. Although I do wonder if he will overestimate his recovery during the battle. We do see him back on his feet later in this book, but... 
You never know, it doesn't seem like he's in the best of health, does it? Again, that's going to have to be something we cover later. Meanwhile, the chapter is still progressing as everyone else is filling in this huge stadium. Galaza is there now on the opposite side, so perhaps because that's the best place to see her attempt work. Maybe she really wants to see Danny eat these locusts and then start feeling sick and then die. But then again, we could say the same for the Yunkush envoys, they're on the other side. Or it's the Great Masters, or it could be anyone. Danny is looking around and she's seeing the whole cast of characters. There's cell swords, there's freedmen, there's commoners up above. There is marine all together right in front of her. Everyone tangled up in this great Miranese knot is here all at once. So again, you just know something is going to go down. It's got to after the book that we've just been through, hasn't it? And now is the time for ultimate billboard talk from his dart as he announces Daenerys to the crowd and he keeps up his act of constantly talking her up. That helps out his own station by bringing her up, it'll drag him too. It gives him plausible deniability as well if she is to die from some locust eating. Well, that can't be me, I was just saying really nice things about her. And maybe he's doing it because it's supposed to be the last time he has to. Maybe his plan is that you'll never have to do this again, he can put up with it for a day and then he's king. As we'll find out, he's actually pretty close to the truth there. Marine, let Queen Daenerys hear your love. And in turn, they roar back at her. The old roar of Misa, this whole crowd. The one that meant so much when we first heard it in Storm and all the time since. But it doesn't have the same effect this time around. Even with the entire stadium, thousands upon thousands of people rocking the place to dust with their noise. And hey, maybe that noise is what brings Drogon. We don't know, do we? But let's consider who this chant is coming from. Yes, it matters coming from the freedmen up above. It is part of their soul, it's part of their deal. But what about from the sellswords who betrayed her? Or from the Yunkish and the Miranese masters who enslaved those that she saved in the first place? This is not a genuine call of love for a mother like it was before. This is just a word that they've stolen and corrupted because they figure it's what she wants to hear. This whole thing, Danny knows, especially given his dust style at all, is just another attempt to placate her and keep her out of the way so they can enjoy their victory. Resnats being a sycophant right here doubles down on that feeling. Besides, even if it were the correct people cheering it, and again, it's not, they've stolen this word, Danny still feels unworthy. With the marriage and the peace, and specifically the opening of the pits, she feels like she has failed in what being a Misa really means, even if it was all in aid of helping her people. She says this, Danny let the sound wash over her. I am not your mother, she might have shouted back. I am the mother of your slaves, of every boy who ever died upon these sands whilst you gorged on honeyed locusts. So as we can see, we were right, she doesn't think it's really for her anyway. It's only for their preservation of love, for making people kill themselves for sport. Her children are the ones who really suffer in, either here or the ones out there in the new market, or the poor Astapoi, wherever they all are. This is not a proper chant, it just makes it all the worse. And again, we get that really big sense of the walls kind of closing in, of it all coming to a great big culmination, because this is digging right into the depths of Danny's heart here. She opts for some water to try and make her feel better, while we focused on the first fighter, Kraz, and note that Hisdar says he'll have the day's first kill, not the first fight, which either tells you about Hisdar's confidence or the fairness of the matchings. And rereaders know this is being highlighted to us as set up for Barry's later chapters when we'll see Kraz fight again, his last fight. We also get another connection back to Danny's beginnings when Kraz takes a bite out of the heart of his defeated opponent. And Danny doesn't miss the link to her own Dothraki origins, does it? And that in turn sends her back to thinking about Rago and Miriam Azder. Obviously, she's thinking about betrayals. She, in a somewhat hopeful vein, categorises Miriam Azder as her first, and Jorah as her second, and Brown Bent as the third. Well, that would indicate that there are no more coming, which we can guess to be bullshit. You'll remember when first discussing this prophecy, this guess. I don't think that's how it works. You don't just get free and then no more. It just means you get free. And besides, most of us consider Brown Bend to be the second anyway, I would say. 
But overall, the point doesn't really solve anything. You can see that in Daenerys. She can think that here, she can think all she likes, but it doesn't make her feel any better, does it? But more to the point, talk of portrayals just gets us looking over our shoulders again, wondering if some trap should spring in this place that really seems set up for such, especially when the next person to speak after the word betrayals is Hizdar. The fighting continues next with the spotted cat, another victorious friend of Hizdar's, with the death happening mere feet from where Danny sits. The crowd screams its approval, in absolute contrast to what Danny's heart says. If we've ever felt that she's at odds with this city, that she just does not fit, that she's purely better than them, well here is our ultimate evidence. This whole sequence in this stadium here, in this pit, is really supposed to, if we haven't got the message already, show that Danny and Marine do not go together, that this is a sick and corrupt place and she is better than it. On and on the macabre show goes, and Death is not selective in who falls in this pit. The victims come from all over the world, save for Westeros just yet, and Danny has to watch them all fall. She only mutters something when a youth is gutted right before them, but again his dart is all talk of glory and free choices as if it were ever that simple. Besides, they obeyed the rule, no children this time round. This guy that's just died, he was just above the mark, so they get away with it. Danny has to consider that another small victory, that children aren't included, but let's face it, that's a pretty low fucking bar, isn't it? She says this, or she thinks this rather. Perhaps I cannot make my people good, she told herself, but I should at least try to make them a little less bad. That's a fairly telling quote. Danny will still do absolutely anything she can to make the world a better place, even if it's not exactly how she wants to do it. What we should not do is equate this with the same thought she had earlier about the fallen palanquin bearer. That was progress, however minimal. This is just this city already being far below the minimum. And I think you can just kind of see the tiredness in that quote already. Danny just resigning herself to not being the person she wants, not having the effect she wants. She's tired. She hates it. The build-up continues. Besides, only one Daenerys request was accepted in not allowing children to fight. Even though, I mean, you know, she's supposed to be the queen who can order where she likes. And somehow she winds up not being able to. So that's another clear sign of the Hizdar effect. Her thoughts on women and follies and comic combats have been ignored. And those last two are the ones that hit hard. If women such as Barsina Blackhair freely wish to participate, then there's only so much she can do. Follies and comic combats, they're kind of different category. Because there's a sure bet that these cripples or dwarves or crones are being forced or manipulated into this fight and absolutely do not want to really be there. Besides, there's no glory in their participation like the others. There's no respect, not even the veiled kind. It is out and out laughter for them, and that's more sickening than anything Danny has had to witness so far. Again, we're getting that point across of just how messed up this place is. And then again, the word dwarves sets off alarm bells in our heads as we remember what we were told at the end of Tyrion's last chapter. And now we start expecting, our minds start racing with possibilities, as we wonder if this will be the big payoff, the big moment that we are sure is coming. Will this be where the two sides of the story finally smash into each other? We've been waiting for it ever since Tyrion's first chapter. Will he pull the same trick that he did in the slave market, of naming himself a Lannister to grab Danny's attention? Will we just see that writ large here in front of thousands of people? Or will we even see her reunited with Sajora? The tension dial just went way, way up with all these many, many possibilities. It could happen any number of ways, and now we're really getting expectant. We're made to wait for that, though. For now, we have other participants. There's criminals first, although only murderers, rapists, and slavers, not those who have done smaller crimes anymore. So that's another little victory for Danny, even though it still remains a bit barbaric and a little bit backward to offer such people a chance at said glory. Much, much worse, and I doubt I'm alone at feeling very, very sick at this next bit, is the inclusion of poor animals, and I'm just going to skip straight past it because I hate it so. There is a brief mock battle, just to really fill the bill out and cater to everyone's taste, before we get to the important bit, the bit that makes us hold our breaths. A pair of jousting dwarves arrives. 
We're not doubting their identity anyway, we know what's going on here, but just to remove any chance of that, one of them has been dressed up as Robert Baratheon and one as a Golden Lannister. Wow, so this really is it. This is the moment that Daenerys Targaryen first claps eyes on Tyrion Lannister, whom we all assume is going to be a major part of her life going forward in some way eventually. I think we're all pretty sold on that. At the very least, it is a huge moment for the meeting of two of our Triforce, two of our central, central pillars of the series. Even if they aren't exactly meeting just yet, it's still a big moment. And now we've got to wonder how this all came about. It's firstly just weird to see Tyrion through someone else's eyes again. We used to be used to that when it was Sansa or Jaime for a little bit, but we haven't had it at all in dance. So it's odd to get used to now, especially in such a major moment as this. And we know Tyrion. We can imagine how this must feel to him right now. We've had enough build-up of that throughout the book as well. This would be the absolute peak of loathing at having to do this hated tilt in front of tens of thousands of people. And make no mistake, he's going to be aware of their laughter and their ridicule and what they think he's worth. It's going to be burning him, truly. But we also have to wonder how he came to be dressed as a Lannister. Clearly, any plan he might have had to get out of the tilt has failed. So has he admitted his identity to someone? Was this his idea as a signal to Daenerys or Brown Ben or similar? You have to imagine it's not for Danny, as he doesn't want to be seen by her like this. But then again, if that gets you out of this situation and out of this damn pit, then why not? Or maybe it's all just a genuine, incredible coincidence. For now, we'll have to wait to find out. We don't get any answers here. Either way, whatever the situation, Danny does not like it. And good for her. She can sense the ridicule and unfairness, and she wants to put a stop to it, which is where the situation changes. Be patient, my sweet, said Hizdar. They are about to loose the lions. Daenerys gave him a quizzical look. Lions? Three of them. The dwarves will not expect them, she frowned. The dwarves have wooden swords, wooden armour. How do you expect them to fight lions? Badly, said Hizdar. Though perhaps they will surprise us. More like they will shriek and run about and try to climb out of the pit. That is what makes this a folly. So now our hearts really are in our mouths. We might genuinely be about to witness Tyrion, or Penny, or both, die in an agonising fashion, with cheers and mockery raining down upon them. It's just about the worst way to go, in Tyrion's mind, and of course, we don't ignore George's cruel sense of poetic justice, there would be a lion ending a lion. And as if the possible death of one of our Triforce, or beloved Penny, isn't enough, there is this beyond sickening attitude from Hisdar, and assumedly the crowd as well, that watching these two human beings desperately try to save their own lives will be the most hilarious event of the day. So again, we've had this message from what Marine is in this pit, but it is louder than it's ever been before with what his dice just said. There's plenty of things in this chapter to refer to as sickening, but I think we're in agreement this is probably the top one. This is evil personified, and yes, we are looking at you, his Zolarak. Luckily, Danny can see such, and she's had enough. She puts her foot down. This is too far. She lays it out plain for them. She is forbidding this, and she is queen. Now Hizdar, being the master manipulator that he is, tries to incite the disappointment of the people, because the people are normally the right button to push with Daenerys, but luckily she is not taking any of that bullshit today. Hizdar went back on the agreement of only grown men and free consent, and he broke the rules, and she is allowed to give an order as queen anyway, which she does. You will stop it. Now. The king's mouth tightened. For a heartbeat, Danny thought she saw a flash of anger in those placid eyes. As you command. The most important part is that Daenerys saves the lives of Tyrion and Penny, although she doesn't know the true worth of what she's done just yet. She's just being her awesome self. Obviously, this is going to have huge knock-on effects for her life in general and the future plots, but we have to wonder if it will ever be pointedly brought up between the two. Will Tyrion ever find out? We'll have to wait for later. But this extra note at the end of that quote is very interesting, isn't it? This flash of anger in Hisdar's face. This guy is a spoiled brat who's used to getting everything his own way already, but especially since he got married and has become king. This isn't how it's supposed to go, clearly. She's supposed to get in line. 
he is a king, remember. Kings don't get ordered about. So we get this hint to a true nature that we already suspected was there, and it gets us wondering about what he might have planned for right now, or what he might plan for in the future. And we're probably pretty lucky that we won't have to find out, at least not in Danny's case. Marine, not so lucky, but for Danny, she's going to get away. So Tyrion and Penny are led out of the pit, even while being pelted with stones and fruit just to really make our hearts go out to them, and it's on to yet another fight. This time, we're mixing humans and animals, as Barcina Blackhair takes on her boar, to keep that Baratheon theme going from a minute ago. And for the rereaders, for everyone who's read this chapter before, this is where we all shift forward a little bit on our seats. Barcina seems to be a favourite of Hisdar, Resnak and the crowd, and at the beginning it's easy to see why, as the proposed plan to slice the boar as he charges past works like a charm. Barry is not convinced though. He says she needs a spear, and perhaps that's because he has seen what happens when it goes wrong. I mean, you might want to listen to him. Although even Danny is dismissing his advice, yet the truth comes out as the boar wises up to Barcina's technique, waits for the right moment, and goes for her. And so far, all of his dar's bunch have been successful, but not this time, as Barcina's upper thigh is ripped apart by a tusk, and then things go from bad to worse. Yes, it's all fun and games, isn't it, Marine? But now you have to sit there in your chair and watch a person get eaten alive by a boar. Well done, you. Danny at least turns away and ends up looking at Belwas instead. He's complaining about Barcina's screams as the boar begins eating her, but then he's complaining about his stomach hurting as well. The first-timer likely isn't thinking of that at all. As Danny decides, she's had enough of this. This is a step too far. Here's the quote. The smell was more than the queen could stand. The heat, the flies, the shouts in the crowd. I cannot breathe. She lifted her veil and let it flutter away. She took her tokar off as well. The pearls rattled softly against one another as she unwound the silk. Khaleesi, Eri asked. What are you doing? taking off my floppy ears. The moment is not lost in us, especially for those of us that have been waiting for this since the beginning of the book when these floppy ears really got put on her head. And the symbolism is not lost either. Daenerys is finally, after so long, shedding Marine physically. She's done with the place, even if she doesn't quite know it just yet. What she does know is that she's done with the fighting pits, as she asks Barristan to escort her back to the pyramid. His dad does not like that, and he protests most strongly, perhaps too strongly. Does he want her to stay and eat more locusts? Does he want her to stay because there's some other larger attempt still to come? Or does he just want to continue rubbing her face in that which he knows she hates? Either way, everyone is now talking at once. Eerie and Jiqui are arguing over who will win the next tilt. Belwas is complaining even louder. His dart is insistent that Danny stay. Just for one more. One more is all he needs. All of it is noise and chatter and we get this real zoom in on Danny as everything is crashing around her. Every sense is overloaded even as she denounces the people cheering her rabbit ears and this entertainment as a pointless abattoir. She could hear the boar snouting, the shouts of the spearmen, the crack of the pitmaster's whip. All of it is too much. All of this build-up is getting to a pressure point. And while we're super focused on his dar, we get the sense that this, this is the moment for something big and we are not disappointed. Please enjoy this quote. Sweet lady, no. Stay only a while longer for the folly and one last match. Close your eyes. No one will see. They'll be watching Balakro and Gogor. This is no time for... A shadow rippled across his face. Now, if you're listening along with me, this is the time for hopping up and down on your chair and clapping with glee if you are not already. I'll read more, as I simply cannot resist. Besides, this is one of those raw moments that really defies any sort of analysis. This is one you've just got to read and feel. I'll continue. The tumult and the shouting died. Ten thousand voices stilled. Every eye turned skyward. A warm wind brushed Danny's cheeks, and above the beating of her heart, she heard the sound of wings. Glee, 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 glee. Clap, 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 clap time. Above them all, the dragon turned, dark against the sun. His scales were black, his eyes and horns and spinal plates blood red. Ever the largest of her three, in the wild Drogon had grown larger still. His wings stretched twenty feet from tip to tip black as jet. He flapped them once as he swept back above the sands, and the sound was like a clap of thunder. The boar raised his head, snorting, 
and flame engulfed him. Black fire shot with red. He's here. He's actually here. Drogon is here. He's returned. Finally, now we can all just dance around and jump up and down. He's come to save his mother when she needs him most, when she is defeated and despairing, when she's shuffling through a half-life of staleness and where her queenship has essentially been revoked, when she cannot be a queen any longer to her people and has most importantly forgotten what it is to be a dragon. But she cast down the Tokar and her rabbit ears and Drogon heard that. So now he is here to be the last second saviour just at the clutch. And even more enjoyably than that, he is awesome. Look at him. He's grown huge. His wings sound like thunder and he breathes black fire shot with red. How very, very Targaryen of him. This, just on its own, is one of the major, major moments and payoffs of the series. Ever since we read the final chapter of A Game of Thrones, we've been waiting, hoping that we'd see at least one of these dragons grow to adulthood. And here we are. And he's not even full size, but he is definitely a proper awesome dragon so our hearts are pounding now just at the sight of him before we can even really imagine what this could mean plot wise and personally for danny at the very least we can imagine it's something good his dart and the yunkai have dampened her she put away the other dragons she turned away from her own nature despite quake's advice so this seems to be a pretty big symbol of flipping the script of course as soon as we start enjoying those thoughts george reminds us of what wild beasts these dragons be as drogon begins eating not just the roasted boar but barcina's corpse as well Already, the stadium is in pandemonium, but Danny sees the hungry look on Hisdar's face, that greed we know him for as he weighs up his options. People are stampeding out, Belwas is on his knees in the chaos, and there's men down in the pit with Drogon too. One of them takes a charge, and time seems to stand still for a moment as Danny considers who this man might be, and why he would do such a thing, before he climbs atop Drogon's neck and plunges his spear down into the dragon. Danny and Drogon screamed as one. Universally, we all think, George, if you have built all this up and brought Drogon back just to die in front of us, then we are through. Seriously, George, don't you dare. But while we're worried about Paul Drogon, we're also thinking about this line of unity, of shared soul between Danny and Drogon. We've always had a sense of that, right from the beginning, right from the House of the Undying, right from the beginning of this book, and certainly after what happens at the end of this chapter. For whatever reason, he's the one that shares her spirit the most, and we really get the sense of Dragon being Danny and Danny being Dragon. They are one. Luckily, Drogon can take care of himself, and one piddly spear is only going to annoy him. He wrenches the would-be hero off his back and then tears his arm off him like a ragdoll. And this is the moment that his Darzotharak makes a decision. He's clearly been weighing up whether he could control such a thing and increase his own prosperity, or whether this is too big a threat that might help Danny more than him. After seeing the ease with which Drogon dispatched the hero, he's made up his mind. Kill it, his Darzotharak shouted to the other spearmen. Kill the beast! Thus, our hatred for this man reaches a new high. So Barristan evidently has no confidence in Drogon's chances and tries to spare Danny the sight. But we all know in this moment, of all moments, there is no chance of caging Daenerys Targaryen. She's twisting out of Barry's grip. She's cleared the parapet. She's down on the blood-soaked sands. Now it's all true chaos and we completely lose the details of what's happening behind her, despite one quick note about Belwas vomiting, which is enough mentions now to really get us wondering about what's happening to him and maybe even enough for the first time is to take a second look at the locust. But Danny is focused on only one thing now and she's sprinting ever closer to him. There's chaos on the sands as well. Some are very smartly running away. Some are very stupidly running towards Drogon and he is pissed now as he douses men in that black flame that surely has his thinking of Valerian the Black Dread. His tail is strong enough to break a man in two. These Miranese, not satisfied in quelling Danny's inner dragon, want to do the same with this living one, but she will not have it. When she screams his name, he turns at recognition, but that's only for a split second before he fells her with another thunderclap of his wings and then snaps her with a smoking jaw. She's saved merely by stumbling back over a corpse. Danny can't believe it. We can't believe it. This is the exact opposite of our hope. 
Drogon is supposed to be here as a saviour, coming in the hour of need. He's not supposed to be turning against her. Again, we've been hoping for this for an entire book, and surely we've not been that wrong, have we? Surely this is not how a five-book journey will end in terms of their relationship, to say nothing of the immediate danger to Danny's life. But perhaps it is. Perhaps the pain of these attacks has driven him mad. Maybe the time away has made him too wild. Maybe he's even forgotten, although we can bet not. Still, it doesn't look good as Drogon roars and bays Danny in heat. Danny contemplates her own death as it sure looks like it's imminent. His eyes were molten. I am looking into hell, but I dare not look away. She had never been so certain of anything. What Danny is hinting at, as Drogon again breathes on her, his breath now hot enough to blister her skin, is that this is a challenge. A challenge she must meet or die. Perhaps she doesn't know it so succinctly in her own mind yet, but I think she can sense it. This is just a matter of the soul. She knows what to do, as she once did when she climbed atop a funeral pyre. Somewhere, Barry, probably already hating himself for letting Danny get this far, is trying to distract Drogon, so we have a moment of worry for him as well. Maybe we're going to see him cooked in an even worse fashion than Rickard Stark was, but for Drogon, Daenerys is the whole world right now. The pair stare into each other's eyes, and Danny becomes a bit more aware of this apparent challenge. By absolutely insane luck, there is a whip at her feet. She once did great good with a whip, it was one of her finest moments, perhaps she can do so again. Even without knowing exactly why, just relying on that sense of Targaryen blood, Danny whips at Drogon when he snaps another challenge at her, almost like he's teaching her what to do. Perhaps he is relying on his sense just as much as she is. We sure do hate to see Drogon get whipped, but we also don't want Danny to be eaten by her own dragon. So even as he resists, she hits again and again, until this time he issues a more serious challenge, fire. Her own house's weapon comes at her for the first time ever, but Danny dodges and whips again. No, 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 get down! His answering roar was full of fear and fury, full of pain. His wings beat once, twice, and folded. So there it is. That's the moment. We're all too caught up to even know what this really means, but it worked. Danny took the challenge and she won. She gets to be a Targaryen. Drogon, unlike Marine, has submitted to her. They are one again. And just to prove it, we have this line. He is fire made flesh, she thought. And so am I. Again, I say get on your chairs, clap and grin as much as you like. Glee everywhere. Yet before we can even appreciate that, something else is happening. She's on his back, ripping out his spear. Obviously she's doing it to save him. And then we have this. The black wings crack like thunder, and suddenly the scarlet sands were falling away beneath her. At first it's pure surprise for Daenerys, as she sees the Myrony spreading out from the stadium, running from her and her dragon. She barely has time for conscious thought, but then she remembers her whip, and in what is surely one of the more monumental and important moments for the overall series, Daenerys decides she's all in. Here is the line. The lash was still in her hand. She flicked it against Drogon's neck and cried, Higher! Her other hand clutched at his scales, her fingers scrabbling for purchase. Drogon's wide black wings beat the air. Danny could feel the heat of him between her thighs. Her heart felt as if it were about to burst. Yes, she thought. Yes, now, now, do it. Do it. Take me, take me, fly. Motherfucker, what a line. How can we even begin to talk about such an amazing moment, an amazing end to the chapter? That's how it ends. This is a wow if we ever had it. Daenerys is riding a dragon. This is it. This is the moment we've all been waiting for since the Game of Thrones. This is the confirmation she can basically do anything in our minds now. If you can ride a dragon, she can rule Marine. She can conquer Westeros. She can defeat the others. This is a tentpole moment in the series. I know we don't know what happens with Daenerys in the future, what happens with Drogon, but I'm going to put my money on it. I'm going to say we're going to look back at the end of the series. We're going to look at this as really, really key for the progress of the plot. Even when we consider that far off future of Dream and how it all ends, I just say this is a moment that will stand out as how we got there, really only matchable with the dragon's birth itself. This is 
everything. This is pure excitement. We thought we were all heartbeaten out with Fionn's chapter, but look at this, he's come along and topped it. And again, we've got no idea what it means in the future for her or for everyone she's left behind, but it's very, very hard to care right now, isn't it, in the first reading of this. She's leaving Marine. She's done it. She's out. Or maybe she's just going to control them with this dragon, either way. But let's assume she's going. Well, it's good riddance, isn't it? Fuck you, Marine. Yes, we'll have to come back and worry about you with Barry and Missandei and Tyrion still there with Penny and what the hell has happened to Bellwurz, but in this moment, in this first reading, no, we don't really care. All we've seen is the struggle of Marine all wrapped up, presented to us in this Dansnax pit. We've seen her tuss the Tokar away, the rabbit ears are gone. She had that ultimate choice of, again of choosing either to be the Queen or the Targaryen and that was linking right back to the beginning and this time she made the correct choice. That's going to come up again in her final chapter. And that's just wonderful to see, isn't it? Wonderful for us, wonderful for Danny personally, Danny being herself again. It's the ultimate moment of satisfaction after this long, long dragging arc of everything just being rubbish for Daenerys. Every single chapter, something new comes up. She gets knocked that little bit further down. And now George has finally repaid us. He's finally made that all worth it in the ultimate payback, this ultimate moment. Really, it's a moment of indulgement for, again, both us and her. Ultimately, after everything, she has chosen what matters in her soul. And we're going to see a very similar situation via John. There's a reason his chapter is next, don't forget. We could even argue that they're both going to have another rebirth moment, even if John's is more literal and Danny's kind of already had one. We'll sort that all out for later. Let's just focus on this moment for now. Let's consider this is a huge mystery also, a massive cliffhanger that George has decided to put right in the middle of his final act, and he's going to keep it around for 18 more chapters. That's how many we've got until we finally get to see what's happened to Daenerys. So he's really going to test us, he's really going to work us here. And there's so much to think about in Marine during the meantime. For all we know right here, she's going to be back the next day and taking names. But next week we're going to find, oh no, she hasn't come back, thanks to Barry's POV, and we're going to find out what happens in the vacuum. It's not as though there's an awfully large hole to fill in in terms of what his dad's going to want to do now he's unrestrained and what this might mean for the peace. But we do have to wonder how will Barry respond? What's he going to do? What's everyone going to do without their queen there? Without this person who was holding it all together there? What happens? We will get to find out, thankfully. It's a pretty massive deal for the city as a whole, obviously, and the Yonkish as well. I mean, in terms of them, they might change their minds a bit about what they want to do considering they've just seen what they might actually be up against. Find Daenerys is one thing, Find Daenerys now she can ride her dragon, that might make you reconsider. And as always, we could go far, far into the meanings of that and, well, we could talk about this moment forever, couldn't we? We all like it, that's the point. Like I said, it was the payoff from a book of build-up, but a chapter full as well. This was another heartbeater put so close next to Fionn's. It was another superb moment after a book full of defeat. It was George really being in his best mood and we have to thank him for it because what a moment for us. This is up there in the moments of A Song of Ice and Fire is essentially also the end of Danny's arc. Danny 10 basically serves as an epilogue, given that it's the last chapter of the book in total, before the actual epilogue, and it doesn't interact with any of the main plot. It's just Danny in what's essentially a bottle episode. So this is it for Danny in Marine, after a book and a bit in Dance and Storm. And you could have expected for that to be that. Instead, Barry does get involved to show everything that happens in that vacuum. For these remaining chapters, like I say, we've still got 18 of them before Danny 10, with eight of those actually being Miranese based by Barristan, Quentin, or Tyrion, and during all that time, we don't know what's happened to Danny. We've got no clue. The majority of us probably don't think she's died, because that would be weird, but we don't know. She could be going to Ashai to complete that prophecy. She could be going to Valeria. The guesses are infinite, and we will get to find out as she really, really turns into her Targaryenness, and we get all excited for that as well, although there's struggles with it. But there's that potential everlasting now that we love maybe she's even going to break out the other two that would be grand wouldn't it 
Again, Barristan will provide answers, but we really almost don't care about the plot right now. We just care about the emotional moment of Daenerys being her true self, linking back with Drogon, and all the possibilities that comes with that. And the very, very exciting ones, full of black fire, shot with red. What a chapter. So I say to you, John, John 11 here, that we're going to get to now. Good luck following these two chapters. It's not a position I'd want to be in, but let's get to it. It's been a long old podcast today. I think we're going to break the record. We'll find out after I edit. Let's get to our final chapter of the day. Here's John 11. So I'm hoping, again, I'm watching the clock of how long this podcast is. You can probably hear my voice is beginning to go. I'm hoping you're going to forgive me the intro stuff, at least on this chapter. What I will say is, no, it's not going to be the heartbeater that Theon and Daenerys have provided us with so far today. But in terms of weight, in terms of importance, it's not that far behind. This one is the setup, really. This is like the first Daenerys chapter that we got earlier, before the big moment. And again, that one's not a thriller either, when the wildlings finally come through the wall. But it is damn, damn important, damn consequential, influential, whatever you want to call it. And we get a lot of that drama here as John makes that happen. This is a big deal. A big deal to thousands and thousands of people. John is saving lives. So, okay, no, it's not the same, but it's damn important. Let's get into it, shall we, before my voice goes completely. So right at the beginning, we're back to Tormund's giant bane, straight away, which is just what we like. He's always been a fan favourite, even if it's difficult to take in, when the hearts are still beating from that Daenerys ending. But we immediately know that John's guess from last time, the end of his last chapter, was right. It was Tormund knocking at the door of the wall, and he's deigned to come for negotiations at the very least, even if he's more filled with wrath this time rather than the laughter that we're used to with this guy. It's a very expressive wrath that John allows him to get on with, even when it, in- even when it includes insult, even when it includes insults and threats to John. He gets so very many of those in this book, doesn't he? Whether it's an attempt to intimidate or goad, or it's just completely genuine, proves immaterial, for John is more than prepared for this meeting, and there's few better moments for his growth than measuring his early meetings with Tormund and Storm with this meeting now. For now he is a man, he really is a Lord Commander, and he's the cool cat at the negotiation table. While Tormund rages and throws drinking horns and makes accusations, John is neither goaded, nor intimidated, nor bothered at all. He does not react, but nor does he give any ground, he's that strong, at least not more than the private barrier he'd set himself previously, so that's pretty impressive. A lot of people would will, or at least react, but not John. He is too good of a leader, I'll say it again, and he's aware of how much this deal means and to how many people. And in the end, it works. Even after long hours of torment, feeling leader for the remaining free folk, and a man of a thousand names, he accepts. He says this, Done then, and may the gods forgive me. There's a hundred mothers never will, I know. So he's not entirely sold on it, he knows he's going to catch a lot of flack from his people, and we're obviously very keen to discover what the terms are that he doesn't like. Surely there are large parts that John isn't over the moon about either, so we really want to know what the details are. But then again, that's just the overall. This is going to happen, John has done it. And John confirms that while this is a victory in the moment, he has a lot to consider that might not be agreeable. He's already double-guessing in typical John fashion, as he thinks about his eternal oath, the horn that wakes the sleepers, the shield that guards the realms of men, and for him, a new refrain. I am the guard who opened the gates and let the foe march through. So the weight is here from the beginning. This is huge from the start. We guessed as much, but now we get confirmation. The wildlings are coming through. This is happening. And John doesn't know if it's right or wrong or well-intentioned but stupid, or if he's an oath-breaker or not. It's very hard to sift through all that for him, trying to imagine the blowback, both immediate and far-flung, of whether the this is legal or not, and then balancing that against the big issue of whether it all matters, really, because at the other end of the scale, 
is saving lives and prepping for the ultimate war. Is there anything that can really hinder that, can stop that? So there's self-doubt that will probably never leave him. This is John, I remind you. And this expectation of bunches of very real problems. But there's also little choice for John as he gives an ode to Danny and declares that he cannot turn back now. These two are forever linked. But just because he agreed does not mean that Torment is any happier than John and he lets him know about it as this formerly jolly man turns very dark and accuses John of taking advantage of the situation or acting in bad faith. Whatever happened to that sweet lad I knew? They made him Lord Commander, John thought. We could apply the same logic to Torment, to be fair. Being a leader in such hard times has changed him as well. But it speaks better to John, who has had to harden because of all the tough choices that have come his way, all the commands he knows are ill-received. Like with Danny, George chooses, George chooses to connect us to the beginning of John's arc again. Remember the start that he had at the beginning of this book with that incredibly tough conversation with Gilly. It's not like it's got any easier since then, is it? John mentions that both sides theory again, then tells us there is three days before the deal goes through. Three days until the wildlings come, and three days before John breaks a fundamental law of this world. Tormund doubles down that it's not just two of them that are unhappy about it, both of their respective sides will be displeased as well. Luckily, the Haras return now. Good, normal, jovial Tormund is still in there somewhere, even given the circumstances. And that's a relief, because we do love that side from him, we need him out here for this kind of occasion, and John can't deny his fondness for the man, the one with such a curious and yet apparently healthy take on the world. After all his blustering a page ago, he's now promising that they'll drink as friends once it's all done. This is just a nice thought, it's one that we really, really would like to see, we know John needs it. But there's still much business to be done here. John, even though he very much wanted the wildlings beneath the wall, persuaded Tormund there must be a prize paid, and apparently it was gold, as Tormund insists on handing over his huge engraved armbands, the ones that John made note of way back when, when he first met the guy. Indeed, he says they are part of the man, and we agree with John, it would be a shame to lose such a thing to payment, especially of our own suspicion about the power of runes which cover these armbands. But Tormund is too proud for that, he's too good of a leader. Besides, if the very first part of the deal is John making exceptions for certain people, the whole thing is likely to fall apart. It seems that John is continuing his pursuit of gold as he did with Tycho Nestorus. Whatever he takes from the wildlings will either also be used to buy food, or more than likely will be used to pay back the Iron Bank. If it's for the second option, that's pretty clever planning by John, and a great use of a situation to make sure he can sort that deck quickly before it gets out of hand. If it's for the first option, then it's well intended, but it's ultimately fruitless. As we discovered before, there's just no food to buy. It might also just work as a way to placate his many, many moaners that he's sure to meet soon. So many will be unhappy that John is allowing the wild things through the wall, but some will at least be softened when they hear that at least the guys had to pay, and just maybe a bit of gold will fall their way. That's not the worst way to persuade people this is, it might be a decent idea after all. When Tormund starts making member jokes, John actually gets to laugh out loud, as rare an occasion as we'll find in this book, and it only makes Tormund all the more valuable to us, which makes it a shame that George immediately counteracts that by making Tormund go all introspective. His grin melted away like snow in summer, and as he thinks on all that has changed, and all he has lost since this journey began, this hulking man, so loud both in anger and in laughter, a constant spark on the page, and basically all round good time, proves to us that he actually wears all emotions on his sleeves, as he lets loose about the two sons he's lost. Dormund, to one of Stannis' knights in the battle beneath the wall, and then the younger Torwind, who simply died of cold, but that one was the harder, for he rose as a white, and it fell to Tormund to burn him. So this is a new level for us, someone who saw a relative rise up and then, had to, and then had to deal with them themselves. We've never come across that before, at least I don't think we have. Osha might be a possibility, or I might be crossing over the show slightly there. But either way, even if it was Osha, that was a long, long time ago. So having the idea of actually having to experience that and go through it all 
really frames the whole war and this deal in a whole new light. Tormund has been mainly included as comic relief in his previous appearances, yet here he is delivering a key moment and context that is sorely needed. Yes, he blusters and he makes his dick jokes while he chugs away on his mead, but he's as straightforward as they come and he treats John as an honest equal here, perhaps even as a friend. He does use his first name after all, and very few people actually do that anymore in this book. Here's what he says. That was hard, John. Tears shone in his eyes. He wasn't much of a man, truth be told, but he'd been my little boy once, and I loved him. John put a hand on his shoulder. I am so sorry. Really, it does put the worth into what they are doing, both here and for the overall. Now, thankfully, Tormund still has two sons and a daughter. He still gets to play his beloved dad role, so that's great. At least we can take comfort in that. It's only now that we reveal that John is actually out there, visiting Tormund above the wall rather than the reverse, which is probably a bit surprising. It's certainly the more dangerous option, but it also shows that John is strong and brave, which have earned him a lot of negotiating power. As the two say goodbye, John can't resist reminding Tormund of an apparently critical part of the deal. The free folk must send their boys first. It's a semi-hostage situation. That word seems to be cropping up so often in John and Danny and Jamie chapters. Soon, it will be included in Barristan's as well. As John leaves Tormund's tent, he's in such high spirits, he even considers the wall as beautiful. Perhaps he just likes having good weather for once, as the sun has finally returned. That might inspire hopes that the storm around Winterfell will clear up long enough to actually get a battle going, but he also states the storm only lasted at Castle Black for two weeks, and it's been way longer than that down in the north, so don't get your hopes up. Besides, John is still wary, because this is John after all, and great as it might be to get this deal done, there are still a lot of challenges to come with it. John brought two human guards in Levers and Harif slash Horse, the former of which is talking to Tormund's eldest son, Torog, who will become of note slightly later on. He brought two for various reasons and presentations in terms of the trappings of power, but most of all, it's because however many humans you bring, you only ever need one direwolf. Here's a quote. Ghost was the only protection John needed. The direwolf could sniff out foes, even those who hid their enmity behind smiles. Listen to your own advice, John, because you could really use it later on. You are not taking advantage of this ability nearly as much as you should be. This is just a reminder that George is giving us a little stab there in the back. It turns out a fourth came with him as well, although uninvited, in Mormont's Raven, opening up all sorts of questions about how he's got this far, or why he would bother to if he's connected to Blood Raven or whomever. Perhaps they just know, on the other side, when to be available for the truly critical moments, as this deal most certainly is. But we're far more interested in Ghost's reappearance. Then Ghost emerged from between two trees, with Val beside him. They look as though they belong together. Again, I'm going to say, listen to your wolf, John. I truly hope nothing happens to Val. I'm far more interested in her and John than John and anyone else. The possibility of a relationship between those two? Well, that would be great, wouldn't it? I'm just hoping he's not too changed when he comes back from death. If he should come back from death, which I'm... I'm going to bet he will. George is really hitting us over the head with this vibe now as he takes time to describe Val in detail, especially the part about her being all in white from head to toe, perhaps to represent the opposition to John and his blacks. So that could either symbolise how the two could offset each other, or if John does come back from the dead and decides he's done with the black, maybe he will move towards this symbol of white instead. Having said that, her eyes are blue, and we're always worried about blue eyes, aren't we? Especially when they're surrounded by white. George might be cruel enough to have John open his heart again, go for it with Val like we're all hoping, only for her to die and then be turned by the others. We have just had Tormund talking about that almost exact same situation, so it definitely is set up and linked for us there, but that would be mightily cruel. And I suppose there is tension that that could happen right now. We are above the wall, you never know, especially with John pointing out it's nice weather for one. If that changes all of a sudden, well, our hearts definitely would be beating fast again, wouldn't they? For now though, we love having Val back in the mix. We've been denied everything but quick glimpses of her so far in this book, and we had legitimate reasons to be worried for her safety once John sent her out, but she not only survived, she succeeded, and has played a huge role in this great changing of the world. 
John is still looking at her when he thinks this. It had been a long while since Jon Snow had seen a sight so lovely. Take Tormund's advice, John. Don't wait. Just get on with it. But of course, John protests about him and his, and his self-chosen vows, but it doesn't stop Tormund from being classic Tormund and Val herself from getting in some flirting at the same time. Once Tormund leaves, Val is giving away her own weakness for Gilly's child, much as she might protest about it. Luckily, we hear he is doing fine, and it makes you wonder if that could be how Val meets her end, trying to defend the child, either against Melisandre, or maybe even the others. Those thoughts are just in our head now. It's also noted that Val must remain a captive of Jon and the Night's Watch. Her perceived position is too valuable, and Jon needs her for Stannis, even if she is allowed to roam the castle. She's going to be moved to Harden's Tower, away from Selyse, and more importantly, away from Axel Florent. One one will sleep at the bottom of the tower, which makes you wonder what will happen in Jon's final chapter. What will her reaction be to not just an attack against one one, but a fatal one against Jon? We don't get to see her in the final chapter, I don't think, so we don't know. We're going to guess she's not going to take it well, but will she also try and take bloody vengeance? It's just another question we're going to have to answer at some point. John takes analysis of Tormund's gigantic group as he walks through them. As suspected, they are almost all women and children, slowly run ragged after their great and painful journey. Their animals are long gone, and they themselves are beginning to waste away. It drives John's thoughts to the east. Firstly, there are mammoths, who we were told earlier on would be driven all the way to Eastwatch and then around the wall, for they cannot fit through the Castle Black Gate. So we have to remember that they are still out there somewhere with their giants, we have to wonder if that contingent will come into an important place sometime. Hopefully they're not going to be attacked by the others all at once because that would be a big blow. Imagine trying to counteract a dead versions of them. Maybe this little side note will even be the trouble that we suspected might come from that new Eastwatch commander. I think it's Sir Glendon that we wondered about last week. The one that's been left um, in charge by Cotter Pike and the one that was friends of Alistair Fawn. Could be. But mainly John is thinking of the people at Hardhome. If these ones are sickly and wasting away, then what are they going to be like? And any talk of sickness has us worried because we might see even more comparisons to the Danny storyline than we'd like in terms of disease. Still, he tries to remain upbeat that maybe it's all gone well, and Cotterpike has succeeded in saving all these people, and will soon be bringing them home. Unfortunately, we'll soon find that that is not the case. His larger and more urgent concern is what awaits him at the wall. Getting Tormund to agree was hard enough, but it was the much easier task. When he gets back to the wall, he'll have plenty of moaning coming from Bowen and the other brothers, which he will likely consider as merely annoying and not treat it for the danger it really is, and he will have to convince Elise, for she is linked to Stannis, however tenuously, and John needs Stannis' backing for this to stick, you know, should he ever actually surface from the snow. Val, because she's great and seems pretty fond of both Jon Snow and his cause, offers to help out. She's willing to play the role that they've all put her in if it does help, and to be fair, John is actually tempted to buy into that attitude he's been arguing against for most of the book. If it helps, then it helps, and he needs that. Though it is a serious thing they are doing here, as John tells Val when she tries to answer in her usual playful way. May I laugh when I kneel? You may not. This is no game. A river of blood runs between our peoples, old and deep and red. Oh, that's a pretty cool way of putting it, John, it must be said. And it works, for Val accepts and agrees, again understanding the weight of what they must do. So it's back to the wall with his little ragtag group, and he can't even get his foot out from beneath the wall before a whole group of brothers surround him and ask if it will be peace or war and don't think there's not a large contingent who'd prefer the latter. But John makes his monumental announcement straight off, the one that will spread through the castle far quicker than wildfire. Peace, Jon Snow replied. Three days hence, Tormund Giantsbane will lead his people through the wall, as friends, not foes. Some may even swell our ranks, as brothers. Oh, they are weighty, weighty words. These ones aren't captives like before. These are invited, this is planned. This goes against everything the wall stands for, supposedly, for many of these men at least. For a good number, it is an exact breaking of the oath, and we know we're going to see the result of such feelings soon enough. 
For some, it might just be the fact that so many will be joining the watch again, which seems so strange and alien. Hopefully, there is a matching number who believe in what John is doing, or at least in John himself, and welcome the news as helpful to the overall picture. That's what we hope. I don't know what the reality actually is. And just because you've turned home doesn't mean that John has time to rest. It's quite the opposite, in fact. This is the most important news of the book for the wall, which means he has many parties to inform and probably argue with. First will come Solis, then a summoning of his leaders within the castle, plus the two old Northmen we mentioned last time. He will meet that group atop the wall at sunset, which is pretty intriguing for what he's up to, even if we're not told why just yet. And then we do get a Sam mention, I'm going to mention that now, because we always love Sam mentions. But first up is Solis, so he and Val get on their way to the King's Tower, and Val is still cracking off jokes and just being genuinely cool, and John finds he yet again cannot resist smiling, not when the beard jokes start coming out. So that's two John smiles in one chapter. Who'd have thought it? Val has powers that no one can hope to match, evidently. Obviously all the fun has to stop the closer we get to Solis, but at least we can enjoy Val putting Sir Patrick in his place when he makes a very guessable play to get himself noticed. Up with you now, Sir Neela. Up, up. She sounded as if she were talking to a dog. It was all that John could do not to laugh. That's a triple laugh, everybody. No one has ever had this kind of effect on John, I would say. We really, really have to hope these guys are going to get it on at some point. Seriously. Unfortunately, poor Ghosty isn't allowed into this meeting. So is that bad luck for John, or is it good luck for Ghost? Because we do not really want to speak to Solis, do we? Once they actually get up to the Queen, who is only accompanied by Shireen and Patchface, Val plays a required part by kneeling just as Jon Snow does. And let us not skip over what a big deal that is for her and her people. She's giving up a lot here. Unfortunately, but unsurprisingly, Solis does not return the same respect. She does not even officially acknowledge Val. And remember, she thinks of her as a princess in the same way everyone else does, so that's an ultimate sign of disrespect. And instead, she gets in a complaint about Gilly's child, while also chiding her for leaving in the first place, with a little bit of an unsubtle threat thrown in for good measure. Shireen, curious as ever, is much better. She's merely interested in meeting another princess and having someone to talk to. Her existence must be insanely lonely, cooped up with a mother such as hers here on the wall. And she gets an Edric Storm mention in, just to remind us of such. After Shireen is admonished for daring to speak at all and sent away, John gets on with the big news about Torment and the Wildlings. Solis almost seems like she doesn't want to talk about it, but she does approve. It's what Stannis wanted, and she is his queen. So fine, just don't bother me about it. Things get much more interesting when John and Val give us some extra details, like the fact there are 200 giants left. Recall right back when we first met the giants way back in Storm, we zipped void in our scope to this very point, where this contingent of giants that we mentioned are out there somewhere. Like we said earlier, we've got to figure they are going to be of importance, 200 giants, good or bad, somewhere along the rope. I don't think you get a group of 200 giants together and then forget to use them. They could change quite a lot, and I don't think they get remembered enough. So let us forever remember Giant Watch 2021. They are going to do something big, I am convinced about it. The next important detail is how many remain of Mance's grand army. There are 4,000 of them about to come through the wall, which doesn't sound like a lot considering how many originally came down, but it really is one giant number about to pass through the wall. It really gets the scope of this whole deal across because this is a huge deal. We don't just see 4,000 strong groups wandering around, especially not in this part of the world. Remember, there's approximately like 100 crows left in Castle Black, so don't think there won't be an intimidation factor and safety concerns brought up as well. That's still the size of a decent army, even if they aren't really made up of fighting men and women. So where will they go then? Well, in this, John lucks out. This is the kappa to his regarrisoning plan that he's had all the way through the book. He now plainly has the numbers to line the whole wall, every single castle. And though there will always be questions about control or loyalty, that's still an overall win in John's book, even if most of the castles are still ruins. Speaking of which, aren't you supposed to have buggered off by now, Solis? Off you go. The biggest point of it all is they are now behind the wall. John has added 4,000 to their number. He stole 4,000 from the others. That's as big as it gets. 
Solis is even approving enough to give John the slightest of compliments when offering that Stannis might be pleased, before the meeting takes a turn for the worst. Of course, the Queen went on, the wildlings must first acknowledge Stannis as their king and R'hllor as their god. And here we are, John Fort, face to face in a narrow passage. Your grace, forgive me. Those were not the terms that we agreed to. The Queen's face hardened. So, more details now slowly leaked out to us over the course of this chapter, and we get an instant explanation for why John has been dreading talking to Melisandre. Clearly, she's going to hate this news, but R'hllor was something that Stannis and his Red Queen imposed on the Free Folk, not John. They were Stannis' captives, that original bunch. That was his prerogative. But this time it was John making the negotiations, making the deal, and that was not included. He doesn't let slip if Tormund refused, or if John didn't even push for it, although likely it was a little of both. Though it will make things harder for John personally, dealing with Melisandre and Solis, it's going to make life easier for the Wildlings when they do come south, especially when they are giving up so much, as we'll see later. He does not want them tied to that religion, he does not want to bolster Melisandre's powers, and he likely doesn't want any more burnings either. Besides, maybe Tormund would have balked, and there was no way John was risking the deal just for R'hllor. But it's Val who gives us the real reason. Those former Wildlings were captives when they took R'hllor, and they had no choice. Tormund's bunch were given a choice, and it was not to kneel, to come down south as equals instead, guests as John calls them. Free folk do not kneel, Val told her. Then they must be knelt, the Queen declared. Do that, your grace, and we will rise again at the first chance, Val promised. Rise with blades in hand. So there we go, there's our tension. Didn't take that long to arrive, did it? Tension between Silice and Val, tension between their two respective parties. Right from the off in this chapter, we've known it could very easily grow sour, but now we're actually being shown. So the question has to be asked of when will this all spill over, for it surely will at some point. Will it come at John's death? That's pretty likely. For some time after as well? Yeah, sure, why not? At the moment, all we have is John stood in the middle, trying to keep the peace, which just makes his final chapter and the aftermath all the more chaotic. He was the one holding that river of blood back. And you can see here, again, we have the mirror to Danny. We just said she was the one holding Marine together. She goes, then it's battle pretty quickly after that. We're going to see the same later. John goes, it's chaos everywhere. They are the same. Solis doubles down by calling Val insolent and implying she could be controlled by a well-selected husband, which is the last thing we want to see. There's definitely no friendship being grown between these two, is there? And Solis is just as scornful towards John now, spreading the threats out to him about Stannis' return as well. Solis gives John a chance to reconsider. He does not take it, which is key, but he does still play the game, admirably, considering what's going on here, and considering how Solis is talking to him as well. He still kneels, and he remembers his graces and the such, but Val does not kneel this time, which is just as key. She does manage to hold on to her anger until they're outside though, but what's surprising is that it's only very briefly focused on Solis. For the most part, to John's surprise and ours, Val goes after Shireen. Val is incredibly passionate about the fact that Shireen has grayscale, or the grey death as she calls it, and she is convinced it is still active and dangerous even in children, which is not what we've been told before. Even as John tries to assure her it is dormant, Val insists, insists most strongly that this is a disaster, that if she were Shireen's mother, she would have given her the gift of mercy. John and the reader are as one, we would have never expected this. It's come out of nowhere, and we don't really know how to feel about it. We've just spent half a chapter talking about how awesome Val is and how much we love her and want her to get together with John. Now she's talking about murdering a child, a child that John considers a danger to no one. And it's Shireen, no less, the sweetest, most innocent girl we know of. We've already got more than enough to worry about her end without Val, of all people, providing another potential enemy for her. So John is stunned, and he tries to put up a resistance, but Val's conviction cannot be curbed. She insists that if Shireen lives, people will die, right from her mother and this castle all the way out to the Seven Kingdoms. Here's this quote. The Grey Death sleeps, only to wake again. The child is not clean. Whatever the medical truth might be, 
and let's face it, we've got no idea, Val clearly believes in what she's saying. This is honestly a matter of life and death for her, and Grayscale is a danger as large as any other, or so she tells it. So again, we have to revisit this mystery of Grayscale and what it actually is, and what role it's going to have in the future plot, because it certainly seems like it's going to be something weighty. We've been talking about it a lot, in this book, considering Tyrion and John Connington, we've spoken about how a pandemic in Westeros is the absolute last thing the Seven Kingdoms need, considering what's happened lately and what is still to come, especially when George is in the midst of showing us how devastating disease can be just on the outside of Marine. We may well see that to come though. So is Val being prophetic here about the overall end state of things and is just wrong about the source? Or will Grayscale eventually end up in the north and maybe Shireen will get the blame? Should she live that long, which doesn't actually seem likely. Just what is the nature of the disease and what will it do? How is it that both the wildlings and the sorrows have sources for it? And why is Val convinced that it acts differently in children than the rest of the world is? There's a lot of very important questions, and it makes you wonder if it is connected to the others in some vague way. That line about it sleeping, only to wake again, well that just sends me right back to the words of old Nam when she spoke about the others. This idea of carrying death around of you. Well, I don't know, but it clearly means nothing good. John, again still on the back foot, tries to defend poor sweet Shireen, but Val will give no ground. And while she invokes the eternal words of Egret about John not knowing anything, she demands that Gilly's son be taken out of the tower, that it is not safe for him, and the pair finally come to a split over the matter. You cannot leave them in that same tower as the dead girl. John shook her hand away. She is not dead. She is. Her mother cannot see it. Nor you, it seems. Yet death is there. Calling Shireen a dead girl is a step too far for John, but Val is insistent. Death surrounds her. So we have to wonder if Val is again just being pathetic about Shireen not having long left, or if she really will end up affecting the world in such a negative way through no fault of her own. Maybe that's the reason she's burned, who knows. Val continues her demand and says it is a debt that John owes, with all air of friendliness between the two now absent. John admits he does owe a debt, so promises to do what he can. Val walks off and leaves John in the snow, trying desperately to convince himself that she must be wrong, she has to be, because the alternative is too horrible to consider. That, as much as anything else, convinces us she's probably right. So we're just left with the same huge questions. What is it? What is it going to do? We don't know. There is no more time to consider that or his relationship with Val though. There is still work to do and John now considers it the toughest task of all. He had foes to face. Foes of the worst sort. Brothers. John reaches the top of the wall first and on the way up he at least shows some awareness when he considers the wall again and thinks that it is his but maybe only for two more days. So John is aware of how volatile the situation is and how it could easily end up very very badly for him. Perhaps it's that idea of brothers turning against him that makes sure he appreciates both the winchmen and the guards, but we figure he probably does that anyway. Especially when he remembers Ned's eternal advice to always know your men. John is a good leader, we've got no doubt of that. While he waits for his summons to be met, and we wait to see why he's brought them up here, John has a chance to get reflective, just to add to that sense of his arc beginning to close. First he thinks of Mance and whatever happened to him, whether he found Aya or just made a fool of John from the first. We can tentatively provide half an answer, but as to where he is now... Again, we've got no clue. That leads him to think of Aya, finally daring to access those feelings that he shut down the moment he realised it was Alice Carstark who'd come to Castle Blank. It's now that he truly misses her. He thinks of her and of Needle. He thinks of when he last saw his sister. And to turn it to a sad note, he wonders whether he'd even recognise her, perhaps hinting that he'll meet her under a second face at first, or just touching on how much she's absolutely changed since he last saw her. He thinks what she might be suffering through with Ramsay, and that's just as painful. And he thinks if Val can collect on a debt, then so can he. He set Mance free. He saved his son. He's about to save his people. Mance can pay the price of one girl for all of that. So at least it swells our heart to see how much John does truly want Aya back. John flexed the fingers of his sword hand, remembering all he'd lost. That's always a key moment and a sign of John's frustration, which he now turns on Sam again, how he made the connection of saving Mance's son. This conflict with Val has hit him hard. There's definitely no laughter now. 
Instead, he's cursing his life as Lord Commander, especially the fact he lives his life without friends, which is slightly of his own doing, to be fair, but let's not twist the knife right now. Perhaps he's especially aware of that, given that enemies are just about to join him on the wall. Though first comes the two old clansmen that we got a glimpse of last time, Flint and Nori, and they absolutely look the part of two elders from the mountain clans. Then comes the trio we're much more used to, Bowen, Offal, and the Septon. Once they've arrived, John wastes no time in making his announcement. He's allowed one brief second of silence before the protests start coming in, so he quickly points out that the majority of them are malnourished women and children, of no danger to anyone. And then Bowen, because of course he needs to be first, chimes in that there's more likely to be 3,000, not 4,000, according to his count, which I guess he just wants to show off. Apparently, double that number at Hardhome, which is surprising, I always considered Tormund's group to be the largest. So that makes Cotter Pike's mission even more important, and places even more focus on the possibility of what we could see from the others if they attack as we suspect. Numbers would have already been lowered by then, but still. Imagine if they are able to turn anywhere near that many, and what that would mean for the rest of the people here on the wall. Bowen then adds onto that that some have also mastered the other end of the wall, by the Shadow Tower, and John cannot bring himself to deny either count that the Wildlings will try and force the Bridge of Skulls again, and that he will let the Weeper through if the opportunity comes. I know I'm speeding through this meeting here a little bit, but here, we must slow down, we must say this is where John makes one of his biggest mistakes, in my opinion. I'm hardly well versed on the subject, but that's what I think. The first issue is that only one of these three great parties of wildlings both has the ability and the motivation to actually force their way past the wall anymore. That's the group in the west by the Shadow Tower. The other two are failing, dying, they need help. But the minds of these men, before John here, are so shallow that if one group is presenting a danger, then to them they all are. And it's by pure bad luck that that also means that Bowen is much more likely to turn against John's idea because he is still clearly traumatised by his experiences on the Bridge of Skulls the last time they tried to force their way across, which gives us the Weeper connection. Now John has his logic that if he starts picking and choosing, he'll lose all wilding trust. That he's trying to recruit as many as he can for service within the Night's Watch, and that means opening the opportunity for all, including the Weeper, who would then have his crimes forgiven. That's part of the deal. And he's also trying to start off a new age between these two sides, one where they work in harmony to fight the larger enemy. If he starts saying the Night's Watch needs this debt paid first, then you'll have half a thousand wildlings claiming for the exact same privilege. It just won't work. That's the theory anyway, that's what John says. And we can see where he's coming from. And in 99% of cases, he might be right, but not for the Weeper. The man is simply too dangerous, too wild, too cruel. It was mere weeks ago, he not only killed three rangers, maybe more, for we know, he left their heads in front of the wall to mock John and his brothers. His crimes extend far back in the past, and they aren't even limited to the Night's Watch. He has killed Northmen, he has killed other wildlings, he rapes and blinds women. He is simply too far past the line to be considered part of all this. If John wants to make this peace, he has to consider it from both angles, not just the wilding ones. Yes, they're the ones he needs to shift, they're the ones he needs to get out of the path of the others, but it's not going to work if he doesn't consider the feelings of his brothers whatsoever. And let's face it, while we have seen his reasons throughout, his brothers and their wants have almost always come second throughout this book. So I say, use this one instance as an opportunity. Use the Weeper as payment to your brothers. Say, I know you don't want these people through, but it could be worse, I could be letting the Weeper in but I'm not, so count your lucky stars. Put your foot down with Tormund. Say this one man has gone too far for forgiveness. His crimes are too violent, too recent. You've got to give me something here, because at the end of the day, I am saving all of your people. Now, of course, it's not so simple as that. All those reasons John just gave us ring true, and to be honest, there's no right answer. What if they did put their foot down and say, no, it's got to be everybody? Can John really sacrifice 4,000 souls because of one man? And even if it did work, that just means the Weeper and those who follow him will continue to make themselves a nuisance or will fall prey to the others. So John is trapped in a tough spot. But you can see why these men and others are bulking at this one particular guy. 
And if they're going to do it to him, then why not all of them? So yes, I do think, I will repeat, this is John's biggest mistake. One where if he had changed his mind on this one note, then he might have honestly changed the course of all that is to come. But that's easy enough for me to say now, isn't it? Who really knows? The point being, I get where these guys are coming from, and I do think they are in the right this time around. Every man there has a dissing point about not letting the weeper through. There's no guarantee he'll even say the words, or stick to them if he does. And while John is right in his snide remarks about not trusting them either, the weeper is clearly a different breed who'll only bring more chaos. Yes, John is right, he could be as use of a fighter or a ranger, but there are many others who can fill that same role. This one man is a symbol, and you actually look out there is one that half of the wildlings also hate. This isn't like proposing mans can't come through. You have the opportunity here, John. You might lose something, but you'll gain so much more. So again, I'll say for the third time, I think this is John's mistake of the book, personally. Broen then brings up a point that's been waiting in the background for the duration of the chapter. Let these people through, and the Night's Watch is seriously outnumbered. And that is just with Torment's bunch. If they let all of them through, then what's to stop them turning around and wiping out the Night's Watch for good? And let's face it, it is a valid question. But it's one that comes about because of men like the Weeper. Again, leave him out of the equation, and they're that much more likely to accept that the majority are sick and starving, as John claims, but the man is just too polarising. He will influence opinions on the whole bunch, yet John cannot see the easy fix. Unfortunately, when Yarwick makes the offhand comment that he doesn't care and would still prefer the Wildlings dead on the other side of the wall, John has had enough. It does not please me. John's voice was as cold as the wind, snapping at their cloaks. There are children in that camp, hundreds of them, thousands, women as well. So yes, he might be making a mistake, but he does properly value human life. These idiots are the ones who can't disassociate one man and their own prejudice from thousands of innocents on death's door. John might have had an easy fix, but he wouldn't need it at all if these were decent men he was dealing with. So he snaps back at Yarwick, even at the assertion that some of the women are spearwise and dangerous. That's true, but they are outnumbered by those who can barely lift their arms. It's the Northmen's turn to interrupt now. They have their own to worry about. This is a lot of people about to come and join them in North, so where are they all going to go? Nowhere near them, they say, or they will meet with death, whether they be warrior or maid. It's too close for winter for such, even if we ignore the old grudges anyway. So John repeats what he told Selyse about putting them along the wall, but with more detail. The families and the orphan children, the ones likely to be the least trouble, will go to one of the ten still-abandoned castles. The spearwise will all go to Longbarrow, so we don't have any trouble with the men becoming predators as we discussed earlier in the book. And he hopes to take as many as possible for the Night's Watch. Those will go to one of their three main castles, so as not to mix with the others. And Tormund will get a castle for himself, Oakenshield, so that he's easily controllable and it was likely part of sweetening the deal for him. There's problems within that that we'll explore, but we must admit it's a beautiful dream. Every castle of the wall manned, not up to code or fighting fit, but full of human life for the first time in centuries for many of them. The wall will act as it's supposed to, with eyes along every mile to fully prepare for the coming war. This is finally it. John is actually preparing humanity. How close we look to be now. And what a shame it might all fall apart, just because of stupid humans. Bowen now brings up another relevant point. How in the hell will they feed all these people, even if they are peaceful? We have to admit, we know he's right here. We saw the stores, but John has his answer ready in this plan that we've seen him making. Through Eastwatch, he said. We will bring in food by ship, as much as might be required. From the Riverlands and the Stormlands and the Vale of Arran. From Dawn and the Reach, across the narrow sea from the Free Cities. Oh, John, 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 John. As we've discussed before, we know this simply isn't going to work. Food from the Riverlands? Ha! The Stormlands might have been a decent bet a while ago, but they are on the cusp of invasion. Dawn and the Reach? They're an entire continent away, with Euron in the south and pirates on the step zones. The same pirates who, combined with the storms, make crossing the narrow sea just as difficult. The Vale is really his only chance, and even then it is by no means a certainty. 
and unfortunately the difficulty of transport works both ways. If he sends out the treasures for the wildlings and half of them sink or are poached on the way, what then? It's not John's fault entirely, but he should be more considering about the state of the realm at large and what's been going on. He focuses on the payment of the wildlings rather than the deal with Tychus and Astoris, again because he wants this group to feel like the wildlings are paying for the privilege of coming through the wall and that they're losing something. That should make them all feel a lot better about the whole thing, even if they're not really convinced. Then Clyder sticks his hooter in, asking about the wildlings giving up their arms. That'll make everyone feel safer, won't it? Everyone, except the wildlings, of course. And what use would they be without them anyway? Even the other men don't expect them to do such, and John says it would have collapsed the deal anyway. In the end, it all matters little, as there is simply no faith in these people. There is no trust, as nearly all of them agree. Until Lever speaks up and reminds them all he stood there. He once fought on the other side, but now he serves as faithfully as any man. Of course, the unmade point is that they probably don't trust him much either. But he does make the point that they share the old god, he and his wildlings and John and at least some of the brothers. John uses that as his pushing point that they can indeed be trusted, though he might go a bit too far in reminding them how close he is to Tormund and was to Mance. That plays a little bit too well into the narrative already formed in their minds. He says this, I know him, as I knew Mance Raider. I marched with them for a time, you may recall. I had not forgotten, said the Lord Steward. No, thought John, I did not think you had. Bowen pushes the manse angle now, trying to frame those outside as the last push of that offensive, this broken sword that can be remade and kill them all. They simply won't let go of that war, no matter the circumstances. So this is where John gets smart, when he switches it to force him to think of the wildlings as parents instead. He only needs the admittance that yes, there are children down there and they are probably loved by those parents, for John to hit them with the fact that he's demanded hostages, and he's pretty pleased with such because he knows what it's worth. I am not the trusting fool you take me for, nor am I half a wildling, no matter what you believe. The blood price is enough to at least get the two Northmen reconsidering, which is the biggest victory of this meeting yet for John. He did put his foot down on certain issues and this was one of them. 100 carefully selected hostages. The Northmen might not buy into words or deals struck by wildlings, but they appreciate a parent's love for their child. Once they confirm that Tormund has agreed, they start believing this could actually work. They've had to do the same with Winterfell after all. This is a part of the society that they can understand and share with the wildlings, but only if John is willing to go the whole distance. And though he hasn't mentioned it himself, don't think this possibility hasn't played out in his mind, just the same as it has in Daenerys's. So tell me, boy, if these wilding friends of yours prove false, do you have the belly to do what needs to be done? Asked John a slint, John thought. Tormund Giantsbane knows better than to try me. I may seem a green boy in your eyes, Lord Norrie, but I am still a son of Eddard Stark. Invoking his father's name is enough to quiet the Northmen. They know what Ned would do when needed. John will do the same. Unfortunately, the same cannot be said for Bowen, who now gives himself for his own offensive when he confirms that John means to train some of these squires in arms. It all just fits too neatly into his own narrative of John trying to replace them with wildlings. Now it seems like he's making his own damn army, and as much as we might like John snapping back at him, it doesn't help Bowen's mindset, which leads him to laying all his cards out on the table, and this gives the guy credit where it's due. This is a pretty brave move to make. Marsh flushed a deeper shade of red. The Lord Commander must pardon my bluntness, but I have no softer way to say this. What you propose is nothing less than treason. So there we go then. What we were all expecting, now out there, out in the open. And Bowen still has another issue. Lord Snow, must I remind you? You swore an oath. John replies with a passionate rendition of that oath, the one they all share. He asks if he has forgotten any parts of it, and they don't have an answer for him. Then he focuses in on the ultimate point. I am the shield that guards the realms of men. Those are the words. So tell me, my lord, what are these wildlings, if not men? That's the bit that matters. That is the bottom line. This is the argument we've been having almost the entire series, and we know that. It makes John awesome. He values life above all else, and we love him for it, even if these men mistake him. Bowen has no answer other than an angry red flush, and we have to figure that this relationship was broken long ago. Maybe he had already made up his mind, but this is the true breaking. 
This is where Bowen makes up his mind that something has to be done. He called it treason, and he's sticking to that idea. The conversation ends up taking the same structure as it has already several times in this book. John brings up the value of human life first, which should really be enough. But when that fails, he brings up the ultimate of what they are trying to do here overall, what's coming for them, and what they need to have any chance of victory. This, surely, should be enough to persuade. He puts it all into a brilliant, passionate speech like he always does. Winter is coming, John said at last, breaking the awkward silence, and with it the White Walkers. The wall is where we stop them. The wall was made to stop them, but the wall must be manned. This discussion is at an end. That should make them all understand. That should have them begging to serve however they can. But it doesn't. Their minds are too small. Their hearts too inward. They can't see past their own situation, even with the whole world at stake. It's all too real, but we love John for it. So he gives them each their duty, and they say the right words. But John doesn't mistake the tone, especially not from Bowen Marsh. Yes, Lord Snow, said Bowen Marsh. And John thought, ice, she said, and daggers in the dark. Blood frozen red and hard and naked steel. His sword hand flexed. The wind was rising. Oh, we know why that hand flexes, and we can certainly turn up the dial now. The tension is at an all-time high. Something is definitely going to happen, even if we don't dare dream close to what actually does. John, he, he says it. He knows what's going to happen. And yet he doesn't prepare himself in the proper way. He just gets too distracted with what comes in his last two chapters. But there it is. It's as big a moment as you can get, both for John, both for the wall, for the world. This war against the others. We're really just stepping up of each chapter today, aren't we? This one started out so well, with that victory with Torment and all that laughing, and now at the end, he's at odds with Solis, with Val, and all these officers. But still, that doesn't matter to John. He's sacrificing himself, all these relationships, for the overall, and yes, he does make mistakes, but in general, he's just awesome, isn't he? So we build, we build, we build. If Danny can have such an ending, surely John will too. Maybe not right here, but it's gonna come. That thrilling part will come. Unfortunately, for Danny, it's a flight into the positive. For John, it's a knife in the other direction. And I'm going to leave the round up there, because as you can hear, my voice is nearly on its last feet. You've definitely had enough of me talking this time. I would be astounded if we haven't broken the record. I'm not even going to tell you what my timer says here, but it's definitely the longest ever recording. We'll see what the editing makes it look like. I don't know when you'll be listening to this. Whenever you are listening, I hope you've enjoyed. Thank you for being here. I'm very, very quickly going to tell you what's coming next week. It is a whole new era of dance yet again, because we've got not one, not two, but three new POVs to deal with. We're going to have Cersei, then Barristan, then Victorian, and Tyrion will be back to tap that all off. So no John, no Danny, just for a bit of a change. Three whole new POVs. I know it sounds so strange. We'll get into that more next time. I don't have the strength right now. For now, I just say thank you ever so much. Please do come back again. We love to see you here. We love to interact with you. And we will see you next time on the Isle of Faces. Thanks, everyone.